Greetings, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend, and I want to wish each of you a very, very happy Valentine's Day for Tuesday. This is a month of love, and we're going to be activating everyone's hearts here today. So please begin by going into your own heart center. As we go into the heart center, we see, sense, and feel that flame of love. Divine love, unconditional love, comprehensive love. And we see the beautiful rose pink energy in through and around us, filling our pillar of light. Please take a moment to see, sense, and feel your pillar of light fully anchored to source, fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. And expand your pillar and expand your sacred heart to be able to hold more and more love than ever before. We call forth the full emergence and integration with our soul, our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence. And as our I am presence, we connect with everyone across the planet. So please affirm after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath, feeling yourself connecting to every man, woman, and child, heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. And and so we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the Diva Kingdom, the Elemental Kingdom, the Fury Kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, dolphins, and unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. And we welcome at this time all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim to assist us in this ascension work, including all angelic healers and healing teams, all the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, 
the Sisterhood of the Raisin Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams, as we ask to open the hearts of every man, woman, and child to their fullest breath and bring everyone into unity consciousness. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and the healing teams that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic, galactic, and universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God, to magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do, 10 billion times 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all the rays, <clears throat> all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work fields multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. The maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. <clears throat> and we ask at this time to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve and truly recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We call on everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created it. To every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, <clears throat> each and every nation, each military, each government, the legislative aspect of each government, and all laws that are created the executive aspect of each government and all leaders and cabinet posts, the judicial aspect of each government and all judges and legal affairs on every level from the Supreme Court here in the U.S. to the highest court in each nation to all local courts as well. And to every situation that we've ever placed in the circle of support, every weather condition, the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, and all that has taken place there. And each and every weather pattern and storm and hurricane and typhoon and fire and drought, every aspect of the weather 
in every condition of life that have not been transformed to heaven on earth, that does not emanate pure love, light, and the energy of God. We have old all conditions of life <clears throat> in the circle, and we hold them in perfection. And we utilize the energy, for example, for tomorrow's um, Super Bowl and the energy of Valentine's Day and all of the occasions of February from our cross point to our tutu portal um, and all of the energies throughout the month. We ask that they be placed in our collective cup of consciousness to transform every man, woman, and child to bring heaven to earth, to open people's hearts and minds and souls and beings to the truth of who they are, that they are a being of infinite love and light here to bring heaven to the planet. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orcs, the old multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, every every aspect of the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution along with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as freedom star. Our focus is on love, and we see that divine love in through and around us and in through and around the planet. Strengthening the love and affirming to ourselves, I am all love. O supreme presence of God, goddess within all life, into your eternal heart of love do I immerse myself and all life on this sweet earth. I now consciously surrender my vehicles to be merged with the love nature of your being until I am a pure focus of love, a loving jewel in your crown of adoration. The path I walk in life leads only to love. My physical body, filled with love, becomes shining and invincible. My etheric vehicle, radiating love, transmutes the past. Love in my mind ensures the expression of your divine thoughts. Love in my feelings reaffirms that God is the only power acting. As I am thinking, feeling, and remembering only love, I know that at, that my I am presence is working through me, radiating forth the perfection of my omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent Mother, Father, God, the cosmic I am, all that is, to humanity and to all life, which I have promised to love free. In this awakened consciousness of divine love, my spirit becomes Holy Spirit. And I am the love of God, Goddess, reaching out to claim this earth. 
in love, I magnetize all of God's blessings to me. And in love, I radiate these blessings forth to all life around me. I am the spirit of love permeating form until all is drawn back into the indivisible whole. I feel the pulse beat of love in all life and the continuity of love in all of the experiences I have ever known. It is all love. I was born out of love. I'm evolving through love. And I'm ascending back into love. I am all love, and I am grateful. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath as we assimilate more and more love. The love of the divine, the love that exists within us. The comprehensive, transfiguring divine love of our Mother, Father, God. Assimilating it more with each breath that we take. And we affirm, as I assimilate the love of my Mother, Father, God, I begin to realize the truth about me. And we're calling this forth for ourselves and for every man, woman, and child to really know the truth of who they are. I came into this world with a very specific purpose. I came to fulfill a mission. I came to love life free and to realize the truth about me. I came to contribute to the salvation of the sweet earth. I am a part of God, Goddess, and the fullness of my mother, father, God abides in me. In the mind of God, no one is useless or meaningless. Every single person is valuable and critically important to the balance and order of the universe. Without me, God would not be complete. Without me, the universe would lose its equilibrium. All that I am called to do, I do with happiness and enthusiasm, for nothing is too insignificant. I am now embraced in my mother, father, God's love. And never again will there be a sense of futility in my life. I am overflowing with gratitude for the opportunity to be on earth at this time. I am so thankful to be right where I am right now, serving all who come my way with love, joy, understanding, and forgiveness. Recognizing my true worth, I now go forward to fulfill my divine mission. With my inner vision, I see the loving and all-encompassing light of my I am presence freely flowing through me. With my physical sight, I see lavish abundance everywhere. I am peaceful, powerful, and filled with divine love. For I remember who I am. I am a beloved child of Mother, Father, God. And all that My mother, father, God have is mine. 
and it is now so. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Allow yourself to expand your heart even further. Feel it growing in love and peace and gratitude and harmony. We continue to invoke the comprehensive, transfiguring divine love of our Mother God into the world to work with ourselves and every man, woman, and child and create an amazing force field of protection and divine love around each and every one of us and around the planet. And we decree, I am aware of my presence in the world. And I know I am one with all life. I gently remove my attention from the outer world and enter reverently deeper into the divinity of my heart. I breathe in deeply and on the holy breath, I ascend in consciousness into the heart of my mother, father, God. Instantly, I am enveloped in the embrace of my mother, God's unfathomable, comprehensive, transfiguring divine love. I hear the melodious tones and I absorb the celestial fragrance of my mother's divine love. Suddenly, I feel myself soaring into higher and higher frequencies of love than I have ever known. I pierce into the core of purity within the flame of comprehensive, transfiguring divine love, and the splendor of this sacred fire permeates my entire being. I'm experiencing a love and reverence for life beyond anything I ever dreamed possible. Divine wisdom is awakening within my heart, and in a flash of enlightenment, I know and fully understand how I am to convey this reverence for all life into the mass consciousness of humanity. This realization is seared into my conscious mind, and will now be tangibly available to me whenever I need to recall this sacred knowledge in my service to humanity and all life. In deep humility and gratitude, I accept the opportunities that are being presented to me within the heart of God Goddess, and I volunteer to always be an instrument of God Goddess for this transfiguring and comprehensive divine love. Through my divine I am presence, I consecrate my life to be the open door through which the full spectrum of the flame of comprehensive transfiguring divine love will now flow to bless all life on earth. For a sublime moment, I assimilate this experience as I breathe in and breathe out slowly and rhythmically. With each in-breath, I ascend higher and higher into the multifaceted celestial frequencies of my mother God's comprehensive transfiguring divine love. And with every outbreath, I breathe this sacred fire forth to consecrate all life evolving on earth. As each human being evolving on earth is consecrated with the full potential of the flame of comprehensive transfiguring divine love, 
their I am presence activates specific genetic coatings within the RNA DNA structures. These coatings contain the immaculate concept of each person's divine plan. And in divine order, we call this forth now. This activity of light empowers every beloved son and daughter of God, goddess, to fulfill his or her divine purpose and reason for being. Through this activation, the mind and emotions of every person are purified and realigned with the harmony of their true being. This purification paves the way for the conscious mind and superconscious mind within each individual to merge and become one. In this state of at one each person's I am presence comes to the forefront and takes dominion of his or her life. As this occurs, the life, body, mind, and soul of each person are quickened and lifted into a state of enlightenment that clears the way for the fulfillment of the divine plan and the manifestation of the new earth. We give thanks for this taking place at this time, even as we call, so be it and so it is. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. As we expand our hearts, let us send this comprehensive, transfiguring divine love to all the places that need it on the planet most at this time, especially to Syria and Turkey, to the Ukraine, to each and every area, and all the conditions surrounding, surrounding war, discord, disharmony, hatred, and violence. See this love energy surrounding the planet and filling each person as they become enlightened as we have simply just decreed. We're going to seal it with a prayer once again for divine love. As we say this for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child and see everyone transforming with us. In the name of my beloved, I am present. I call the power of divine love to be magnified, magnified, magnified. One thousandfold within my heart and world daily. I am love, joyous love, radiating love, unconditional love, transfiguring love, comprehensive divine love. God consumes my shadows, transmuting them into love. This day I am a focus of divine love flowing through every cell of my being. I'm a living stream of pure divine love that can never again be requalified by fear, anger, hatred, dislikes, and greed. All negative thoughts and feelings are now dissolved and consumed by the power of divine love, which I am. 
please say with me, I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I live in the consciousness of love. I am love in its fullest expression, blessing all humankind with divine love. Blessing everyone I meet with divine love. I radiate love. I am love in action. I radiate love. I am love in action. I radiate love. I am love in action. Blessing, uplifting, and healing all on earth. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. May this Valentine's Day be the time when all hearts open to their fullest breath and everyone realizes they are divine love in action. And so it is. We ask for this to be sealed, maintained, and sustained, ever expanding to perfection. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. So be the love that you are. That is our first mission in life, is to be the love that we are created of. So I wish everyone a very, very blessed Valentine's Day, overflowing with love in every aspect of life. And I thank you here for your divine service today. I want to invite you to further divine service for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call each and every Sunday and Monday evening. Can we start at year 14? And um, hope that we continue growing and expanding. So if you haven't joined us, please take note of it. We meet every Sunday and Monday. Greetings start at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tara and Rama give us a brief update. And then we begin our meditation and our service work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. We have a main number. I'm going to give you that number. But if you need any additional numbers um, or if you have problems with that particular line, let me know. Um, I have numbers throughout the country, the U.S. I have international numbers, and you can get on through your computer as well. So let me know. Um, Let me give you the email address in case you need that information. Then I'll give you the phone number, the main phone number that we use. So contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. And the main phone number is area code 425-436-6260. 425-436-6260. 
The access code is 946-7441-POUND. We would love to have you join us and be a regular part of our team bringing heaven to earth. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here today. We want to especially thank Tarn Rama for all their, their years of service as well. And Rainbird for her service as well. But again, keep your hearts open this week and have a beautiful, beautiful Valentine's Day. Much love to you all. So I pass this love-filled talking stick with every shade of pink and rose and red and ruby. Just amazing. It's blazing, blazing, blazing with that divine love. And it has fairies of love and mermaids of love and uh, uh, gemstones of love and every single imagine, uh, imaginable uh, frequency of love that um, is available to us. Again, surrounding us and filling us with divine love. So, Rainbow, I pass the talking stick. Infinite blessings to everyone. Have a wonderful week. Well, thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. It's so beautiful. Lots of love. And lots of gratitude for your divine service as well. And blessings on your evening. And I know you have plans. And uh, so I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener-supported. Radio program is just us chickens that make it happen. So um, here's here's what we need to do. Each week we need um, $260, at least for the month of February. <laughs> and uh, that works out, $260 in the two weeks behind. So we need $520 for our fees at BBS Radio. And there's a way you can help, and that's by going to bbsradio.com and clicking on Radio Station 2, and you'll see the menu there for Radio Station 2. You need to find our listing, and it is at Saturday at the 1.30 hours. All these listings are on Pacific Time. And you'll find the True History Hershey and the Sarah Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama and a little icon there. Click on that icon. And it takes you directly to our account with BBS Radio where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. Thank you for your generosity. Our other two shows are on BBS Radio 1. You'll find them listed there on the menu on BBS Radio Station 1. And they are at 6 o'clock hour on Thursday, a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon. That takes you to our account. And then to the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at 6 o'clock hour on Friday. So that's where you find those icons. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We certainly enjoy meeting this way each week. And this is the, our part. This is how we participate. So lots of gratitude for all of us and lots of happy birthday, Valentine <laughs> blessings as well. May we get caught up in that love cycle. And <laughs> so we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week they have three bills that are due and they need $305 to cover that. And then they also need a couple hundred dollars for their living expenses. 
so here's how we can make a donation to Tara and Rama. Uh, you can do that through the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, click on the menu grid, and you'll see a link at near the bottom that says donate. You can click on that. That'll link you to Rama's or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And the other way is to go to paypal.com and, and, and gift um, Rama directly, and that's how you access the friends option. And the, his email there at PayPal is Koran. K-O-R-A-N 9999949 at hotmail.com. And so either way is perfect. We're so grateful for all of your all of your donations and all of the ways that you show up in your lives and do your work and <laughs> come here and do your work at the same time. So much gratitude. Um, as we're sending something, let's let Rama know by sending him an email and telling him what you sent and when you sent it. That email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. And, um, yeah, and as you need it, the physical address is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M. D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. And I'll say it all again, Rom D. Berkowitz, Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need. And that means that we can move along <laughs> to and send this talking stick to Tara Rama. But I want to say 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart. Long life, no evil. And this talking stick, well, it's just got Valentine hearts all over it. It was sparkles of lime green. And, of course, all the birds and feathers and fairies and, and the little people. All celebrating love. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. We don't hear you. Where are you? Sorry. Hang on. <laughs> We're here. Greetings. Happy Valentine's Day. Early. Happy Valentine's Day. It's how how does this happen if you're at the middle of February already? Thank oh you, Cheryl. God. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful to be here and be alive. Yes. And there's there's a really good movement towards peace going on. It's really happening. It is. And, and I, I know that's a very difficult situation that we're all watching. Uh, over 25,000 people have gone over the rainbow, yet I think the energy has coalesced a feeling in the hearts of the people of compassion and love. 
And so we just got to keep it going. Can we do that? Capiche. <laughs> okay, I get to sit with you. Everything's going really fast. But, Rama, why don't you share what you learned today with everybody? I talked with this guy named Max Cole, who supposedly died, but he's not dead. He's in Southeast Asia living a different life, and it's got to do with what he knows about Los Alamos and bigger stories. Who are you talking about again? Of that dead guy I talked to, Max Cole. Oh. He's an ex-New Mexico state senator. And, you know, as you would go Google him, he's not here yet. Uh, you mean they say he's dead? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I don't know where to go with that, but I can just say. Well, what that he reminds me of Michael Jackson. He's supposed to be dead, too. Yeah, and I don't think he's dead at all. And I mean. Or Elvis. And this yeah, is, uh, oh, my God. This is a story that is so huge that, um, you know, Max Cole talked about how the United States military and allies are creating a ring around the South China Sea Islands in China and things are escalating. And just this afternoon, uh, Mr. Trudeau Castro shot down another object over Canada. We don't know what it is. They haven't said. Reverend Al Sharpton hasn't quite told everyone yet. Well, I don't think anybody's figured it out yet. No, and they're... Um, let's say, like Dr. Greer has talked about in earlier videos through the last little while, I could say last by 10 years, they would get to a point where they're going to play with their toys from Area 51, Area 52. I don't know how many areas there are, but they are, I, I believe all of this is connected with our empire, which is not a pretty statement, and um, things are escalating also with the light pouring in and the frequencies as we approach this Pisces full moon, new moon. I keep getting them confused. It's the energies. Um... Max Cole just made the point that the 13 families, whatever you want to call them, the global elite, they, it times up, as Michael Moore put it, simply in two words. What's the point of the of today's energy? What's the message? The point is they're desperate, they're out of time, 
they're going to try to do anything they can. And coming up tomorrow, you know, gladiator combat games. It's not like Rollerball or Thunderdome. Yet the Super Bowl, they use those energies for darkness and thus blaze as much violet flame light into that Super Bowl stadium and wrap all the people in the rose and the green and the violet. And these are the colors I predominantly have been told about in the last few days that can raise the energies up. Um, I heard on BBC News a reporter and his voice was breaking up and he was just saying, you know, this... Um, <laughs> Penny on line two. Are you there, Penny? Hello? There you go. This is Penny. Yes. Hi, Penny. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say, when you want to call me, give me a shout, and uh, I'll talk, because I, I got some printing out done so I can speak to a few things. Oh, well, you can go ahead and... Uh, I, I passed the talking, pass the talking stick. stick, Penny. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, depending on, on which um, thing you want to hear... Um, okay. I sent a bunch of stuff out today, and so um, I, I'm, I'm going to use the emails and the listing of things because uh, it gives me a chance to speak about some things uh, uh, regarding um, Ukraine, for example. And uh, that's one of the things I've discovered, and I think I told Tara about this, but I've discovered a series of little of short articles about corruption in Ukraine, and the lady who wrote them is Ukrainian, and she goes through the history of all the Ukrainian presidents from the time that the uh, Russian Federation broke up. So there's six of those, uh, six presidents, and uh, ending and Zelensky. And, the, and what caught my eye in the first place was the question that was asked about how corrupt is the Ukrainian president of Vladimir Zelensky. And so then that same person wrote all these other articles. And she, and in this list also is an article about, uh, what they called a bond villain oligarch who kept sharks in his office to intimidate his enemies. <laughs> ah, that's pretty scary stuff. And his home was raided, uh, in a one, uh, one billion pound embezzlement probe. So things are, uh, in some areas at least, are happening that are good things. The thing that comes up with this whole series of uh, articles on the presidents, the previous presidents, is, is the idea that there's so much corruption and what's happening in Ukraine is just a carry on from what was happening in, in the USSR Republic, I would suspect. And um, how you deal with it, and it's endemic in our own countries, as you've just, I just heard you say something about Trudeau, um, Rama, and we know it's going on in the States. And it's... Um, yes. 
the whole idea, you know, the, the thought that came on my mind when I first read these is the soil is, even the soil is corrupt, you know, like how do you cleanse that? Um, this is above my pay grade, but it does cause a little bit of heartache just thinking about it because it's so bad. So there's that piece. And then um, somewhere um, I've heard, been reading more and more about comments people are making about the United States being at the bottom, behind all of the kind of stuff that's going on. So I sent out uh, another bunch, and uh, Victoria Newland used the F word to talk about the Nord Stream gas line as just a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. I mean, she's so aggressive. There's no wonder um, people regard the United States as aggressive. The other thing that came along was that the, a German prosecutor found no Russian involvement in the gas pipeline sabotage. And my comment to that is that the story is not anywhere being discussed on the MSM. So um, the fact that Russia had nothing to do with a lot of things is not, it, it's being proven, but it's not being discussed. So there's that. And then it came up, I kept wondering, I've been asking myself and asking myself, what else is going on about why the United States is so interested in Ukraine? comes out they have very extensive titanium reserves. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing that they're after, too, is is the uh, control of that reserve, that resource, those resources. So that's that's pretty gross, (laughs) I would say. And then there's another one more about talking about stuff that people um, aren't aware of. Um, there's a, a one called the Twitter Files, Part 16, Hamilton 68 and the Russian Conspiracy Fraud. And that conspiracy fraud was proven not to be um, to be a fraud, and Russia had nothing to do with all of the. Um, uh, Twitters that went out. Russia had nothing to do with it. There was a bot <laughs> that did it all, programmed, of course. So Russia had nothing to do with that. But that story is not getting out. So anyway, that's that's really. And then and then the, the the article that I sent with it is on the top of the list was. George Soros can influence global media with ties to at least 253 organizations, and that's the results of a big study that was done. And it's um, it shows all uh, it shows him with his long fingers, elongated fingers, you know, holding puppets in both hands. And there's still a lot of people that um, think the, the media is telling the truth. Well, there you go. It's not because George Soros is completely influencing everything, and that includes uh, Pro uh, ProPublica and Amy and all the rest of them. But you've you've commented on that more than once, uh, Tara, about that. Oh my! So anyway, that that's gruesome enough. You know, I mean, it's still history. It's history. Um, but anyway, and the other one that is a really, really, really good one is called Setting the Record Straight, Stuff You Should Know About Ukraine. And it was written by um, an American called Mike Whitney, who's a geopolitical and social analyst. 
uh, based in Washington State, and it's uh, it's I've got it down to eleven pages, and he just pulls he pulls everything together in this one stuff you should know about Ukraine, political and social, and all the rest of it. So I've sent all this stuff out, but uh, so I'm just bringing all that up. So Daddy, when do you Daddy. want me to stop talking? Because I got another couple to go. Danny. <laughs> Danny. Yes. Danny. Yes. Oh, good. I've been calling, but I didn't think you could hear me. But um, I didn't get who you were talking about on the very first thing you brought up. You mean Victoria Newland? No, before that. Way before that. Um, I think that was where... No, oh, the, the series about... Um, well, you're getting them all in the mail, any, in the email. The series about the um, uh, corruption in Ukraine, is that the one you mean? And no, going through all the presidents? That, it was about an individual that went over the rainbow or something? No, I haven't got one of those yet. No, I haven't done that. <laughs> no. I started out with all of the, I think I started out with the listing of the Ukraines. Oh, I maybe, maybe it was because I talked about an oligarch who kept sharks in his office to yeah. intimidate his enemies. Yeah. Okay. That was pretty cool. I mean, they, they referred to him, quote, unquote, a bond villain oligarch. <laughs> and he's, his home was raided. Uh, uh, for he's involved in a one billion pound embezzlement probe, so it's it just goes into what my file called um, <sighs> oligarchs. <laughs> anyway, that's the whole listing of all the people that are in. And then there's another article where he had to uh, where Zelensky accepted uh, resignations of top Ukrainian officials. This was at the end of January. And uh, he accepted the resignation of his deputy chief of staff, and he removed several other top officials, taking a tough line towards a series of corruption scandals at a time the country is appealing for more Western military support. So anyway, uh, he got his he got his military support regardless of the um, uh, corruption and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That's. I think that's enough. We're going to just put all of that in the circle of support. And it certainly needs it. <laughs> I, I so I hope I people just... don't get too depressed about it. And I keep talking about it as it's history. And, and, and some of it is really good news because uh, from the point of view of people preparing uh, summaries of things and pulling all kinds of information together, too. Yes, so. in other words, people are starting to realize how big and how dark this has been. Yes. And, yes, I hope they are. But I'm not sure that everybody in the world reads, reads um, the global research people, too. Like, I've got more um, more about the World Economic Forum, too. There's a, the, One of the articles is about they declare pedophiles will save humanity. And then there's another one that talks about the social engineering of the masses. And it involves the World Economic Forum and how it's gotten together with some other people, too. And and the, in the social engineering of the masses, one, they, he talks about Tavistock and all their related comp- companies. He talks about black cars, torn jeans, torn jeans and LGBTQ. 
right? So he's talking the the idea that people black and white are the only colors that are being really pushed right now in a lot of arenas in our lives, and that is to get in. He's and he sees it as. Uh, people controlling our minds and getting us ready for a black and a white, black and white scenario. And no, no colors of gray unless it's uh, that horrible beige and stuff like that. And then the other subjects he discusses are social engineering and mind manipulation. And it's, it's just as plain as the nose on your face. We've been talking about that for years on this program and that article pulls it all together. And then James Corbett, who's a Canadian Analysts living in Japan, this one uh, he has out the sinister growth of digital currencies around the world. So he, that's all part and parcel of the World Economic Forum, right? Uh, you get people with digital currencies and then you can control all of their, um, their money transactions. And if there is no cash and only digital currencies, uh, you, and then you combine that with a, a health card, and uh, you're pretty much screwed as, as indi- individuals. Anyway, and two other pieces of good news. Um, the GMO-using fake meat company called Impossible Foods has had its European patent revoked. So, And the company's U.S. patents are also being challenged. So that's a good news, right? So is Impossible Foods a Canadian company? No, this is a European, well, it's a, they're American and they've got, um, I don't know whether it started in Europe or it started in America, but there's a company called Impossible Foods that's in both places. And it's a fake meat company. And the patent has been uh, revoked in Europe and the company's American patents are also being challenged. And, the, and one of the headings is the fake meat in, industry is a flop. So there you go. I at least uh, something's going on here. So that's one of the good pieces of news. And the other one is about Mexico. Uh, Mexico becomes the first nation to admit the harms of geoengineering, and it halts future experiments. So that's a, that's a really good article too. So anyway, there are, in spite of what seems like a lot of gloom and doom, there's all this stuff circulating under the surface, and uh, I think the dam's about ready to bust, you know, so that's uh, that's what's going on, that's what I've been finding for the last three or four days. Anything else? Hello? Hi, Penny. We just were keeping it muted so that you had a clear line while you were talking. Yes, yes. Well, anyway, that's that's about it, Tara. That's what I've been um, doing for the last few days is getting this material ready and sending it out. So, okay, we Rama just said something right before we unmuted. He said that the main piece we were going to play, uh, what's it called, Rama? Called session two: the physics of resilience with Bruce Lipton. You have to upgrade on Gaia in order to play it. Yeah, so maybe, uh, Micah, do you have it? Maybe you could no. play it from your computer if you can hear. Or, Penny, do you have it on your computer? No, I, I haven't got it on my computer at all. I don't, I don't, uh, I only, no, I don't have Gaia. Oh, brother. 
Yes. Sorry about that, Chief. Yes, <laughs> Commander. <laughs> um, well, while Mama, I can read this article by Meg Benedict, and then you can go run and do it. I think it's worth it because that's... Well, I have to go look and see. Yeah, go do that while I'll, I'll take over and I'll read this article. It's really good. Okay. Thank you okay, so much. Okay, I'm going to sign off so I can hear the details about the article, Tara. Okay. Uh, namaste. All right. You go answer this one. Probably Micah. And, um... Yeah. In the meantime, everybody, um... I'm going to share Meg Benedict with everybody. I put this whole situation in the circle of support and make the light grow. Okay, so 2023, uh, 2023 is already turning out to be a year of unexpected shifts and surprises. 2023 unfolds a seven-year symbolizing the mystic, the Merlin, the wise sage. Seven is the path of ancient mysticism. Initiating the exploration of the inner mystic within you. During a seven-year, you will feel inspired to connect and uncover more of your divine nature. 2023 is a great year to illuminate the deeper esoteric aspects of self. In numerology, one represents masculine energy, and two represents feminine energy. We have just completed the thousands millennium dominated by the masculine patriarchal hierarchy. As we move further into the 2000s millennium, there is a crescendo building, influencing stronger feminine qualities throughout the global field. This affects all walks of life. It is an infusion of feminine energy into how we think, feel, believe, act, and behave. There is a growing malaise and collective fatigue regarding toxic masculinity and control dynamics. One second. Rama? Okay. <laughs> okay. I just wanted you to tone down because everybody can hear you so loud. Okay. Okay. I have something I can play. That's okay, but I want you to do that. I want you to. Oh, I can't. Oh. We're not doing. Oh dear. Oh dear. Okay. It's about money. Okay. Well, let's finish this. Um, okay, so. There is a growing malaise and collective fatigue regarding toxic masculinity and control dynamics. The global consciousness is softening into a more gentle, compassionate interchange mm -hmm. with all of existence. There is a groundswell of empathy for others. Cruelty and hate are no longer tolerated. 
The feminine energy is permeating the very fabric of our lives. A triple two sequence, two, 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 amplifies the growing immersion in the feminine energies of Divine Mother, the High Priestess, the Goddess Essence. The 2000s infusion of two energies awaken and strengthen sacred feminine qualities in all of us. During 222 gateways, we can intensify exponentially the swell of feminine energy in the field. This creates a threshold shift in the collective consciousness from the fading toxic patriarchy into a more balanced yin-yang circular connectedness. The Divine Goddess is transforming the global operating system from the dissolving hierarchical patriarchy into a more equitable circle of collaboration, community, and expansion. Um, turn this down. It's just extra noise there. Something's going on. All right. Um, the, uh, the green comet ZTF. Mm-hmm. Z as in zebra, T as in Tom, F as in Frank, has been circling Earth for some weeks now in a blaze of shimmering emerald light. The galactic visitor has caught our attention. Photons transport information, intelligence, consciousness from point A to point B. Photons act as a cosmic shuttle bus, transferring light consciousness into our neighborhood. Comets are potent celestial messengers that come to us during certain upgrades, such as DNA upgrades or great shifts in collective consciousness. A comet takes long loops around the galaxy, collecting cosmic energy, coding inputs, and divine wisdom in its extended travels. Let us celebrate the feminine blessings as we shift the field. The High Priestess is guiding us to walk with integrity on our soul paths. Join other light beings and visiting star seeds for the 222 gateway activations. Travel to your soul's original home star and activate your light body. And I'll just give this out. This is from, uh, as we said, uh, Meg Benedict. Meg Benedict, yes. Benedicta. Yeah. Is the right way to say that. And it's, um, you can register at HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash new earth central dot com forward slash and then there's a question mark a small p like in paul an equal sign and then these numbers two five 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 eight nine i'll read that again 
uh, https colon forward slash forward slash new earth central dot com forward slash question mark small p as in Paul equal sign two five 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 eight nine. There you go. So Ramana, did you say you got something else to play? Yeah, this is called Giants, Megaliths, and Mysteries of the UK, Awakening Conference with Hugh Newman. And how long is this? An hour and three minutes. All right, well, let's do it. You ready? Ready. Here we Uh, go, everybody. Hello. Hello, everybody. Okay. Well, thank you for having me here. What an amazing event this is turning out to be. So. I'm really honored to be here with such a series of luminaries sharing the stage with me up here. So, so today we're going to get into something a little bit weird, a little bit strange, and we're going to be looking at something I've been researching for many years with my co-author Jim Vieira, who's in America at the moment, and looking at the giants of ancient Britain. Now, there's lots of myths, there's lots of stories, lots of legends about these giants related to megalithic sites. There's also a lot of connections with the Bible lands. And more recently, I found connections between many of the sites here, which are often related to giants, and sites such as Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe and southeast Turkey. So some of this is brand new research I'm really presenting here uh, for the first time. But really, the most inspirational site area on the planet at the moment, and my good friend Andrew Collins will back me up on this, is Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe in southeast Turkey, which is a place we've visited many times. We do tours there every September and May next year as well. And we are, there's just something about this place because of the sheer antiquity, but also the sheer quality of the stonework. And now, There's connections with ancient Britain, which have completely blown my mind. But previously, Jim and I published this book, The Giants uh, Giants on Record, back in 2015. And we had 250 accounts in the book of 7 foot to 18 foot tall skeletons in the historical record, often recorded in the Smithsonian's own annual reports. And... Even there, we found connections with the Bible lands in some of the discoveries. This is our famous top 10 giants of North America. And you can see there's me actually down on the bottom left. Uh, well, my skeleton, perhaps. And it just shows you the range we're dealing with here. Now, many of these, I mean, the 18-foot one is a hard one to prove. We haven't got the bones to prove that one. But some of them, like the Smithsonian, have been recording seven to eight-foot Skeletons. Other academics have recorded up to 10 foot skeletons in North America. But previously, authors like L.A. Mazzulli, Steve Quayle, Timothy Alberino and others have found a connection, they think, to the Nephilim 
in ancient North America. One example is this. This is Chief Joseph, who's a Nez Perce leader from 1877. And he, he, when he was kind of arrested by the incomers at the time, the Western, uh, coming over from Europe, they found this strange tablet, which was said to have been from ancient, you know, the ancient Middle East, basically. And it was recorded in 1877, this. And basically, it, he said it had been passed down in his family for many generations. And they inherited it from their ancient white ancestors who had come amongst those people very long ago. It was later discovered um, from uh, Dr. Robert Biggs, who's a professor of Assyriology at the Oriental Institute in Chicago, that it actually dated to 2042 B.C., so we have some connection, some kind of proof of this ancient connection with the Bible lands in North America. We also have this very interesting uh, site in West Virginia called Grave Creek Mound. And it was here that potentially a seven foot four inch female skeleton and an eight foot male skeleton were found in the 1800s. And that mean that the bones were extremely large, even a local resident was described as fitting the jaw of the male skeleton over his face. It was so big, something we find a lot in our giant research. But they found what's called the Grave Creek Tablet that you can see here. And it was um, decoded, really, as potentially Phoenician or Punic, according uh, to various researchers, which is basically, again, from the Bible lands. And it connects, I think, to the Canaanites, which we'll get onto later. So there's more accounts like this. There's, there's more than this in North America. But I wanted just to present that to you initially because in our book, The Giants of Stonehenge and Ancient Britain, we go further with this. We find more connections uh, to the Bible lands and other areas around the world. And what I find really interesting about this, it seems that Britain... The giants here, now often they're described as cannibals or bumbling oafs and things like this, but actually we believe they were masters of surveying, astronomy and landscape knowledge to an extremely high degree with similar ideas and technologies coming from the Middle East. Many were remembered as high kings and rulers of the country, often inhabiting mountaintops, hill forts and so on. And they were held in high esteem by the people here and possibly by people from the rest of the world. And so we're dealing with here a real kind of elite status class of giants. And this is very similar to the kind of thing we find in North America as well. And we do know that all over the country, when you can see the map here and the artwork here created by our good friend Dan Lish, that all over the country we're finding this, in England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, in equal measures. And we even have skeletons going up to 21 feet tall. But in the newspaper accounts and the academic journals and town and county histories, ancient texts, that's some of them that we had to translate from Welsh and so forth, we found at least 250 accounts of seven foot to 21 foot tall skeletons, bones, skulls, teeth, everything in the historical record, often recorded by doctors, academics, um, and so on. And these were 
from you know there's even like royal um royal engineering survey data and people when they're digging up foundations of homes they're finding these giant skeletons and yet it's not talked about it's completely covered up there's nothing about it now we know there's a conspiracy of cover-up in north america with the smithsonian institution but here it seems to be very similar so it's very hard to find this data although we have we think we've pulled most of it together and put it in the book and then we even have a top 10 giants of Britain as well, just for good measure here. And and you'll see that there are some very famous sites here where these giant skeletons and bones have been unearthed, like Stonehenge, for instance, Mays Howe in Orkney, even St. Michael's Mount down in Cornwall. This one's you know, particularly interesting because this was recorded and it's been published in um, National Trust handbooks of an eight or nine foot skeleton being found there. And so, you know, we go into detail in the book about this, obviously. But even when you look at the myths and the foundation stories of Britain, we have the earliest inhabitants um, are recorded as being of the tall persuasion. Some say they were descendants of Noah's son, Ham, and they came from Africa or the Middle East thousands of years ago. Others say it was Noah's son, Japheth, who arrived even earlier. And Noah's lineage is linked with giants. And it's worth noting that he was the great, 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 great grandson of Enoch, who we'll talk about later in the lecture. But Albion was banished from his homeland in ancient Greece. He was said to be a giant himself. And he was begotten by the sea god whom the Greeks called Poseidon or the Romans Neptune. This was recorded, you know, back in the 17 and 1800s. And it said that he established like a colony here and the giants who were with him ruled the country for many thousands of years. We have another parallel story of a princess called Albina or Albina, who also came from Greece. And she was banished here and there were 33 of her and her sisters who basically, when they're in Greece, they become, they, they were forced to marry 33 princes and decided against that and slit their throats and then fled. Um, and they landed in the country of Britain. And when they got here, they basically became very bored. There was no one around and they started noticing these strange demonic entities that were called the incubi. And eventually they started breeding with them. And they gave birth to what became known as the giants of Britain. Mm. And these giants bred between themselves. The Albina and her sisters bred with their sons. It all became a bit incestuous, shall we say. But it became so much giants occurring and spreading through ancient Britain that they kind of took over the land. They became cannibals and they started like fighting even between themselves. Even Merlin himself was said to have been... Um, fathered by one of these incubi who whom he inherited his supernatural powers from but he also had prophetic abilities and shape-shifting talents so he was like a shaman in his own right and this is who these incubi were thought to be connected with and he also had his mother was said to have been a sorceress so you can see how merlin got all his traits and we'll come on to merlin later because he's connected also with the giants of stonehenge these giants who were born of Albina or um, the earlier giants of Albion, later kind of eventually some of them survived when Brutus the Trojan turned up with his army after they had fled from Greece after the, you know, the Trojan War. 
and it said that Corinius and um, Brutus himself met giants on the south coast and actually battled with a giant, Gog Magog, who him and his clan were said to be the remaining giants of from Albina's offspring or in some other traditions from Albion's offspring. And eventually he, the, the army defeated the giants and they captured Gog Magog. And some stories, they say they threw him off the cliffs of uh, the south coast and he died there. And others say he was captured and taken to London, where now they kind of founded London called Trivenantium or Londinium and so forth. And eventually they have them placed at the Guild Hall to protect London. And so it became, later became Gog and Magog rather than Gog Magog. And we know that Gog Magog or Gog and Magog were actually kind of referred to in the Bible in the whole book of Revelation. So we have yet more connections there. And they've been guarding that up until the present day. And even today, they are paraded around London at the Lord Mayor show every November. And the fact that they're in the Guild Hall is interesting because a giant bone, a giant femur bone, a thigh bone was on display there for many years. But if we go back to the traditions of Merlin um, and earlier, we have this story of Stonehenge. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little bit strange. A lot of people don't realize that the earliest name of Stonehenge was the Giant's Dance or Coria Gigantum. I, I mentioned this briefly in the, uh, the panel the other day. And this is an image. This is actually the earliest image on the left here of Stonehenge. And it has a giant and King Ambrosius, and Merlin, who Tony's just pointed out, is kneeling there on the left, and he actually looks like he could be a giant himself if he was standing upright. And it's said that um, thousands of years ago, giants of Africa brought the stones of Stonehenge over from there to a place called Kilarus in Ireland, where they stood for thousands of years, and eventually King Ambrosius summoned his army after a great defeat in one of their battles in the Wiltshire area, to bring the stones over and build a monument to the, the slain. And basically, the 15,000-strong army went over there with uh, Uther Pendragon as the leader. And they couldn't budge one stone from Killaroos. So they had to send for Merlin. And it's said that he used magic and sleight to move the stones. Other traditions have him using gears and engines. So either he was using levitation magic or he was using some kind of high technology. And apparently, he moved all the stones on his own and reconstructed them in the landscape of the uh, Salisbury Plain, where they were known then as the Giant Stars. And this was recorded in the history of the kings of Britain in the 1100s. Now, the fact that these stones came from North Africa always compelled me. I always wondered, is there any kind of proof of this? Well, when you actually go look in some of the sites in Libya, for instance, near Tripoli, we have these remarkably Stonehenge-like trilithons found all over the landscape there. Now these, and they even have mortise and tenon joints, like we find in Stonehenge, where the tops of the stones have like a little nub on them, so they connect to the stones, uh, the lintels above them. We even have some from just over the border in Tunisia. We have these trilithons there. Uh, Orthodox archaeologists claim they're grape presses. But actually, there's actually stories that they go back many thousands of years. And there's even evidence of giants here at a site called Duga in Tunisia, where supposedly giant slaves were kept by the Romans at this time. So we actually have giants and we have trilithons in North Africa. And this is where the stones of Stonehenge came from. So this is uh, obviously Stonehenge, and uh, you can see there are trilithons here, just like we find here. Now Stonehenge is the premier megalithic site 
in ancient Britain. It's by far not the largest. It's actually quite small compared to like Avebury or Stanton Drew and other sites. But it's unique. It's the only place here that really has these trilithons, has this style connected. They've carved beautiful stones. And as we'll see, there are connections in Stonehenge with the measurements and with the, the way they've shaped the stones to Egypt, Peru and other ancient cultures around the world. One of these stories about Stonehenge goes back to 1666. It was recorded by a Reverend Robert Gay, who wrote a fool's, bot, a fool's bolt soon shot at Stonehenge. And this was a really interesting and obscure book that wasn't really published till 1725. And it talked about a race of giants called the Kangi or the Kanji, also known as the Kanjik Giants. And this gentleman lived in Somerset. He was an interesting fellow himself. Um, he was, although he was a reverend, he was also a bit of an anarchist. And he actually set fire to government buildings um, during the Civil War in 1643 and went to prison for him for it. So got a little bit of respect for this guy as well. Um, so when he wrote this book, it kind of came out and it was this was a time when lots of books were coming out about Stonehenge, you know, in the, in the sort of late 16, early 1700s. He actually influenced John Albury and William Stukeley, for instance. And he wrote about Stonehenge and he wrote about these giants who were said to have built Stonehenge as like a monument to a battle that they won against an invading army. And the stones themselves, their configuration was said to represent like a circle of dancing giants, you know, dancing around in this circle, hence the name The Giant's Dance. And so this really intrigued me. He also found this connection with the, the, the can name. Uh, he believed it was connected not only with, you know, it was recorded in local sites, local areas, and you can see some of the examples here, like Bishop's Canning, All Canning, Carl, Canford Magna, Little Canford, and so forth, Cannington, etc. But he also believed it was connected with the Canaanites, and he even back then, he thinks in tradition, there was this sort of vague association that he recorded in his book, linking it again with the Bible lands. He believed the Canaan was like the C-A-N came from Kanji or Kangi or the other way around. And he believed both had traditions of sacrificing their victims, descriptions of skeletal remains, the size of the kind of skeletons that were being discovered were very similar. And they both traditions had 10 principal commanders in their army. So he put the, he put it all together and believed there was this connection. And I believe he might be right, as we'll see as we go through this talk. One of the things you might notice at Stonehenge, which is weirdly recorded by Reverend Robert Gay back in 1666. In Stonehenge, if you look, go inside the stones, you see lots of these almost like striations, these scoop marks in the stone. It's almost like the stone has been softened. They've used like an ice cream scoop to shape it. And you can see that here. You can see it on various stones here. Uh, you've got this one here as well. And... This is kind of intriguing because in his book, he wrote that the giants, the Kangik giants, actually softened the stone, turned it to powder and reformed it into any shape they wanted to create Stonehenge. So what he's basically talking about is geopolymer, something that Joseph Davidovitz only came up with as an idea, a hypothesis for like the pyramids and other megalithic sites like 20 or 30 years ago. And so he was talking about this in 1666. So did they really soften the stones? And you can see like this strange shaping in the stones here. Um, and we find very similar, we even find like a shepherd's crook carved in one of the stones here at Stonehenge. And even like a nub like you find in Peru and Egypt. 
you can see some of the comparisons here. And so he kind of, you know, really talked about this in great detail, that it was one of their special qualities that these giants had. And we must remember that even the Cyclops of ancient Greece had the same kind of technology, where they could soften, manipulate, and reform stone any way they wanted. And so there's a new science has emerged, potentially claiming that this is how these stone structures were put together. And yet there's traditions that go back hundreds and possibly thousands of years. So this is a technology we don't really understand just yet. And here on the top, you can see these are the different kind of shapings you find at Stonehenge. On the bottom left, you have Machu Picchu. On the bottom right, you have Aswan Quarry from Egypt. And they all look very similar. Is it the same people doing it, perhaps? Or is it just a, a tradition, a technique of these ancient master builders sharing this information? Even at Stanton Drew Stone Circle in Somerset, we have Triple Stone Circle. It's an incredible site. Uh, it goes back, you know, to 2700 to 3000 BC. And it's thought that the Kangi in tradition built this site as well, because the stones here are like conglomerate. They're like kind of millstone grit, but they're also, well, there's various different types of stone there. But actually, it's like they've been reformed. You've got pebbles in them. And so, so the tradition, which is recorded back in the 1600s, state that they also built this site. It was one of their primary sites in the area. Now, this has interesting geometry linking along the edges of the circles, advanced astronomy, and geodesy linking it with other sites across the landscape, as well as intricate measurement systems, very similar to what we find at Stonehenge, and even at places like Gebekli Tepe. So this just shows you the domain, really, of these Kangi giants. Uh, this is like the West Country. These skulls represent giant accounts we've discovered in this area. There's a famous nine-foot skeleton from Glastonbury. We have some from Portland down south. Um, we have others up from even Western Supermare. We have an over nine foot giant discovered there, as well as a seven foot skeleton found chained up in the dungeon in Dunster Castle. If we go slightly uh, to the east, we have the whole Stonehenge, Wiltshire kind of Salisbury area, where obviously we have Stonehenge, we have Avebury, we have we have the Salisbury giant, which we'll talk about short, shortly. But even here, we find many accounts of actual skeletons, even right in the vicinity of Stonehenge. The first one we came across in our research was from 1719. And it recorded a nine foot four inch skeleton found in a mound called the Giant's Grave in Salisbury, which is basically the closest city to Stonehenge. And this is really part of the greater Stonehenge landscape. And this was recorded, we found two or three accounts of this, and it became like a bit of a sensation at the time. And so a nine-foot-four-inch skeleton found in a mound called the Giant's Grave is compelling information. We also found this account. This goes back to 1508, and I mentioned this briefly in the panel as well. Um, this was recorded and documented again in 1802, but we think it was 1508 we worked it out as to when, when it was found. And this, this was discovered by the father and... Thomas Eliot himself in 1508. It was also recorded and witnessed by William Camden and John Leland. These were well-known authors and scholars at the time. Thomas Eliot, he was an MP for Cambridge. He was a sir. He was knighted. He wrote the first Latin dictionary. He was a very smart, very interesting guy. And when he came out that he'd witnessed and been involved in the discovery of a 14-foot, 10-inch skeleton, you can imagine it caused a sensation. And you also have to question, was someone of this caliber lie? 
is highly unlikely. This is uh, what the discovery, we think, looked like. It was found at a place called Ivy Church Priory, just south of Salisbury. It's all been built over now. We've checked it out. But the story states that they found this strange book at the foot of this 14-foot tenant skeleton. They also found this lid, uh, sorry, this like metal disc. It, like, it was described as a lid or a tabletop. It was like this big, and it was it was made of lead and tin, and it had these same strange inscriptions on it that none of them could decipher. None of these scholars could decipher at the time. I suggest they were, it was Canaanite script or Phoenician script because it kind of fits in with all the stories that are coming out from this area. And so this this kind of intrigued me, you know, that we found two really interesting, very big skeletons found in the Stonehenge area. And we started looking into other traditions. And I visited the Salisbury Museum and found something quite interesting there. There was an actual giant on display. However, this giant was made of paper mache. Um and it had been paraded, well, variations of it has been rebuilt over the years. This 24-foot giant kind of effigy this had been part of this pageant since the 1400s in Salisbury, paraded around the city every St. John the Baptist Day, which is like two or three days after the summer solstice. And there was all these, this secret guild of tailors, this kind of secret society was involved in creating this. All the different kings and queens would come and witness this giant. He had a giant sword, a mace head, this strange hobby horse as well. Um, and he would be paraded around and revered and kind of honored every year. He would come out for special occasions as well. Eventually, he became known as St. Christopher. And this kind of intrigued us because... If any of you know St. Christopher, he was also known as Reprobus. He was also a Canaanite from the Bible lands. And so this really, it's really got us. He was said to be five cubits or seven and a half feet tall in some accounts. Other accounts have him up to 12 cubits tall, which would be 18 feet. He was said, he was famous for carrying Jesus on his shoulder across a river and he wanted to leave this Canaanite army. He was one of their kind of primary warriors. And follow Christ, basically. So he carried Christ across this river, became famous for it, became sainted. He's now the patron saint of traveling and exploration, so he's one of my heroes. Um, but why is there a Canaanite giant associated with this area near Stonehenge? It all just starts fitting together. The other thing about Stonehenge as well, which is one of my favorite areas of research is this geodetic connection with other sites and what this means. It links up with something called that Robin Heath discovered called the Lunation Triangle between Lundy Island, which is actually shaped like an elbow, the Pacelli Bluestone site where the bluestones from Stonehenge came from and Stonehenge itself. It forms a 5-12-13 Pythagorean Triangle. And we, I kind of found this interesting because these giants are often associated with surveying. They're often associated with geodesy, which means the placement of sites across the landscape. Often they're astronomical sight lines. Often it's a measuring system across huge areas, even the whole planet. And we find, keep finding giant connections at each of these points. At Priscelli, for instance, I'm not going to read all this out, but we found two or three giant skeletons and bones and skulls and teeth being discovered in this direct area where these blue stones came from. We also found an eight foot and an eight and a half, eight foot seven inch skeleton being found on Lundy Island, the other point on this giant triangle. And this is, this is interesting because it, the bottom line of the actual, um, 
alignment here passes through Glastonbury and through Dunster Castle, both where giants have been discovered. Lundy Island itself is a very interesting place. And strangely, just for geodetic purposes, from Stonehenge to this point on Lundy Island, it's 123.4 miles. So one, two, three, four miles, basically. So you've got little things they're playing with here uh, to do with measurements, which will come on to as being a very important soon. Um, Lundy Island was seen by the Celtic uh, Celts as the island of the dead. Great kings were then were ferried to the west to to the sacred island to be buried. Um, it said that um, it was always shrouded in mist. It was rarely seen from the mainland and hidden from the profane. And it was only known about by an ancient priestly elite. Even the Romans spoke of the island as having a specially holy race of men who refused trade and visions of the future resided there. And so the Romans spoke about this like druidic elite that were there. And I believe these were the eight foot and 8.7 foot skeletons, which were found at this part of the island. This is myself when I had longish hair and Robin Heath. We were over there in 2007. We actually, we actually discovered and found an egg-shaped stone circle when we were on the island on a lay hunter's trip over there. That's on the bottom right there. There's the, the, there's the view of it. These are the actual burials of the, um, skeletons that were found and reported in 1876. Uh, funnily enough, they were from a place called Paradise on the island and they were discovered by a Mr. Heaven, which I thought was, was, was quite interesting. Uh, anomaly. Uh, so, but it was reported over and over again and witnessed by many people. It, it ended up being about 25 different news accounts that we uncovered. So there's probably many more. So Lundy Island is a fascinating place. It's really a fascinating place. And, and there's more, there's more to this. Uh, we have like, you know, these connections, these geodetic connections we keep finding. This is again, Robin Heath, who's like an absolute master, one of my mentors. Um, and so what is going on here? You know, why are these giants connected with this kind of surveying? We'll come on to that a bit later, but there's more, much more to this than meets the eye. So the Kangik giants, they were, they were flourishing in Somerset. We know that the nine foot skeleton was found in Glastonbury Abbey in the late 1100s. We have other accounts from Sturton Corndall. We have Wedmore where giant teeth and skull fragments were found. And many more. So where these so-called Kangik giants were said to reside, and this was mainly up on the Mendip Hills where there's huge amounts of earthworks, like the pretty earth circles. There's mounds up there. There's a whole tin mining um, uh, complex up there as well. And so, and they were said actually, strangely, to have originated from a place called Mould in North Wales, which is we're gonna, where we're going to head to next. Because... We find more traditions of giants that seem to have these odd connections with the biblical giants. And these are some of, these just some of the skulls, uh, shows you some of the accounts that we found in, uh, Wales. But also, there's a story of the children of Dome. Now, these are really important people who are said to have come from this lost land, described as immortal, superhuman, human, strong, vital, and wielded magic as normally as later warriors wielded swords. And they were said to have come from a home kind of lost in the sea somewhere. They settled in the mountains of Wales, what we know as Gwyneth, which is my good friend Hugh Evans uh, has done amazing research on. And they established these citadels, um, and they were surveying the land from these particular areas. So these were like the gods of Wales, and no one really knows about this. I mean, I didn't know about this before I started researching this. This is very similar to the Tuatha Dé Danann or the Fomorians of ancient Ireland, 
We also have the story of Hugh Gadan as well, who was a very early culture hero of ancient Wales, also called Hugh the Mighty. And he was often associated with the serpent power or the alchemical form of earth magic and weather magic even, which is something we find a lot of these giant graves. If you disturb them, great storms occur, so they're protected by this weather magic. And he was actually said, strangely, to come from the Bosphorus area of Turkey many thousands of years ago. He was associated with the plough. He was associated with uh, fertility and working with the landscape and teaching and bringing iron, sorry, bringing metals and stone from within the earth and constructing sites and so forth. So even this culture hero of ancient Wales, who was kind of, kind of linked with the children of Dome, but it was actually a different giant kind of ruler. And so it just gets stranger. We keep finding more and more of these connections. And it's just, uh, you know, lots of text, which I'm not going to read out, but um, I kind of explained this. But it just the more you look into this, the more you find these odd connections. This is just one of the areas um, that was supposed to be inhabited by the children of Dome. But perhaps the most interesting area that I'm absolutely fascinated by, and I know Andrew Collins is, Hugh Evans, we've been up there a few times, is a site called Kedi Idris. This is the sacred mountain of North Wales in the location of Snowdonia. It translates as Idris's chair or Idris's seat. And there's this this Idris character is very, very interesting. He's certainly connected with the Bible lands. There are traditions um, from these kind of modern day Druids back in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, who talk about Idris being one of the holy astronomers of Britain, one of three. And he was so great was their knowledge of the stars and, the, and of their natures and influences that they could foretell whatever anyone might wish to know till the day of judgment. So these were master astronomers observing from their mountaintop fortresses. And Idris was always known as a giant, a giant ruler. He would toss stones from his mountaintop they would land in triangular configurations across the landscape. And you can actually visit some of these sites now. There's a site called Lekidris. There's other ones. And stones would fall out of his shoe, which were like you know, 20 feet tall. And he was basically able to see all the coasts of the land. He would be able to see into the future and the past. And Idris himself was this master astronomer and surveyor. And, now, and so we've actually created this image here. This image actually uh, Andrew gave me. This is from a farm just at the south of Caddy Idris, where they actually found some giant skeletons with hazel rods in the burial. So we're talking about this legendary giant ruler, astronomer, but at the base of the mountain, they actually find the skeletons that match the legend. This is Lynn Cow. This is like the sacred lake. This is a view from the top. You can see the coast from here. And on the left there, where there's a dip in the mountain, sort of cliff head, cliff face, is Idris's seat. You know, this is where the giant would sit and survey and observe his land from. This is the actual account of the skeletons being discovered in the 1600s. Um, and this hazel rod thing is interesting because hazel rods are always associated with dowsing. These are the traditional dowsing tools of the ancient people of Britain and in other parts of the world. Now, Idris is, a, you know, in earlier traditions, he was also known as Enoch. This is something that some of us have been researching for a little while now, Andrew and Hugh and myself. And we've been to an, an area down called Haran, which Andrew's traveled to and researched a lot over the years. And there's, a, there's a mound of Idris or Tel Idris down there. 
And Idris himself was said to have been the founder of geomancy. He was also said to be connected with Hermes. He was connected, he was possibly the builder of the pyramids and so on and so forth. And he was said to have come over to possibly Britain in, written about in the book of Enoch, because Enoch is Idris. And it's just an image of him here. This is a William Blake's lithograph from 1807. He was a seventh in line from Adam and was said to have been the scribe of the watchers um, of, you know, the Book of Enoch or the Anunnaki or Sumerian tradition. Um, and he became, and they, he became kind of entrusted as their kind of scribe, their kind of, you know, almost like kind of following them around and observing what they were doing. And he became a kind of master himself from being taught by these angelic beings in the in a biblical tradition. But actually, I believe these were these were human beings and they may have been involved in a very early phase at sites like Gebekli Tepe. But there's a few little passages which have always fascinated me, like this from the Book of Enoch. And it's, this is one of the lost books of the Bible, if you're not aware, but I think people have been talking about this over the weekend anyway. And... It claims that, and I saw in those days how long cords were given to the angels or the watchers, and they took themselves wings and flew and went towards the north. And I asked an angel, saying unto him, Why have they taken cords and gone off? And he replied, They have gone to measure. And these measures shall reveal that all the secrets of the depths of the earth. Now, as you go through this part of the book of Enoch, you find kind of references going to these northern latitudes and, and like flying there. This is kind of ancient aliens territory we're getting into now. But I'll stick with what we know, what I, the, the aspects that I'm fascinated by here. You know, we've got things like the north winds. It was cold, hail, frost, snow, uh, dew and rain. Very much like Blackpool, ancient Britain, etc. And I really believe, and my good friend Robin Heath wrote about this in 1999. It was also published in Uriel's Machine the year later. That They were trying to work out or calculate because it was quite detailed, kind of lengths of the day, making observations from within what appeared to be stone circles from going through these portals or windows, which could be in between the stones at Stonehenge. And they worked out, he basically worked out that the latitude could be that of very close to Stonehenge or somewhere between Cornwall and North Wales, really, you know, so anywhere in that region. Now, the fact that this was written about in this lost book of the Bible is very, very intriguing. This is actually the analysis that Robin did from his book, Sun, Moon and Stonehenge. Um, and it took a long while trying to calculate this. And he, he came up really, you know, with this. And also one of the old books of um, uh, some of the old stories from Wales talk about in the tales of Taliesin, actually state, they actually talk about Enoch, and, uh, and it's, it reads, I was instructor to Eli or Enoch, um, and this was written in the Mabinogion, you know, going way back, you know, several hundred years, and recorded from earlier oral traditions of the Druids and the Welsh Bards. And so, why is Enoch even mentioned in these early accounts from Wales, if there's not some connection here? Even um, in Carn Enoch, in the Priscelli Bluestone area, we actually find these uh, calendar grooves carved in stone. You know, so what's that doing here? Were they marking this particular spot? Were they marking calendrical information at the spot they were going to then build Stonehenge from? You know, location-wise. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. I mean, obviously, we go into more detail in the book about this. I'm just trying to summarize some of the information here. But even up at Kalanish in the Outer Hebrides, um, there's a tradition that talks about 
that sunrise on Midsummer's Day, the shining one, a person, walked along the avenue. He's coming heralded by the call of the cuckoo, the bird of Turn and Og, which is a lost land out somewhere out in the Atlantic, or the Celtic land of youth. Another tradition is that a priest king came to the island, bringing with him stones and men to raise them. He was attended to by other priests, and the whole company wore robes of bird skins and feathers. And not only is there kind of like druid kind of traditions kind of mentioned here, but also this bird skin and feathers, which is something that we find with the watchers of the Bible lands. They're described not, not really as having wings as such, but more like they're wearing feathered robes. So this, this absolutely fascinates me. And there's also the story up in this, potentially is talking about Kalanese, is that the god Apollo from Greek tradition was said to have flown to this region every 19 years to rejuvenate. Now this is really an analogy of the 18.6 year cycle of the moon, where at these northerly latitudes you have uh, the sleeping beauty that every, eight, it's actually next year I think, or the year after, where you can observe the, the sun rolling across the landscapes. It doesn't quite set, because it's, it's at its most extreme position during these 18.6 or 19 year cycles. And so we have Apollo associated with this land as well. We have other suggestions that this was even Hyperborea of the ancient Greek traditions. We even have stories of potentially in the Book of Enoch of the Shining Ones visiting Newgrange as well in Ireland, which is, again, very, very interesting. It talks about these ancient texts, uh, these ancient Irish annals talk about a group of sages who sometime in the third millennium B.C., um, they were described as uh, the men of science who were gods and the laymen no gods. So whatever that means, we don't know. But they talk about, strangely, so in the description, they talk about really bad weather. They talk about going into this dark chamber and fire or, or kind of flames of light occurring and um, and it lighting up the interior of this chamber. They also talk about like a crystal floor, like a tessellated crystal floor and walls. All these describe Newgrange. So this, again, really fascinated me. So were these surveyors, were these master builders, these watchers coming over from the Bible lands as part of their surveying of the world, possibly after the Great Flood, as part of a kind of early tradition of doing this? Um, and it, I, I believe this might be the case. I think there's more to this than meets the eye. And for those that have visited Newgrange, you'll know that the light shines through the kind of portal stone, the kind of light box above the main uh, chamber. And we'll see that that is actually a similar thing has been found at Karahan Tepe on the exact same time of the year, but potentially six or seven thousand years earlier. So let's jump over to this part of the world because we've seen, you know, potential ideas that these people from the Bible lands, from the Garden of Eden area, from the Beckley Tepe even, you know, the influence may have emerged or reached ancient Britain. The Beckley Tepe, we probably know all about it. It's like at least 9,600 BC. Andrew's written multiple books and papers on this. I've been visiting there since 2013. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with the place, as I am with the other sites that are now occurring there. These are so old and so sophisticated. It's like another world when you see this. I mean, when you visit there, immediately I just thought, this is aliens. I, I can't, I can't, I couldn't cope with it. It was too much because it's so sophisticated. It's so advanced for such an early date. And now they found all these sites. 
So it's not just one site. It's like a civilization, what I call a super civilization that links with all these ancient stories we've been talking about. Um, only some of these have been excavated, but they know they're there. They've done scans of all these sites. Um, this is like an overview of the main enclosures at Gebekli Tepe. Enclosures C and D are the prominent ones here. And they're between 60, 75 feet wide. They're big, they're big enclosures. These are big. They're not like, you know, small stone circles. These are bigger than Stonehenge. These are huge. And that's only a small part of it. And the rest of it hasn't even been excavated yet. So we're talking about what's being discovered is amazing. What's yet to be discovered is going to be world shattering. And so you can see here some of the enclosures that are yet to be uncovered are even bigger and look more sophisticated than the ones um, that have been excavated. And so this is an artist's impression of that they believe they may have had roofs on. I don't buy that at all. I know Andrew doesn't really buy that too much either. Maybe they were added later. This is just what they put up in the museum at the site now. But this shows you kind of what was going on there. It's a kind of half-decent explanation. We have these giant T-pillars up to 18 feet tall. Then a circle of pillars, usually 11 or 12 or different numbers around the perimeter. They look almost circular, but they're kind of oval or elliptical. But there's actually interesting geometries we'll look at moment in a moment proving they may be more sophisticated than people realize enclosure d is being reconstructed at the museum this is very impressive this is one of the central pillars and they're, they're resting in this kind of shallow base somehow they were being held up that's why people suggest they had roofs on but we're not so sure they could have been held up by ropes they could have been held up by something else but just to give you and you have pillar 43 the most famous one on the bottom right there which has got stunning amount of carvings on it as well and this just gives you, this is my partner, JJ. Just, this is the, the actual, it's not actually enclosure JJ, it's actually enclosure D. But this shows you the scale we're talking about, because you can't get inside the enclosure at the site. But they, they've created this interesting kind of reconstruction at the museum, which is really cool. The only thing is the back stone there, the, the one with the hole in it, is actually slightly in the wrong place. Um, but this is a huge site. This is, to me, this is a very sacred site. A lot of people claim it's like a mundane site used for food storage and boring things like that. But it's not. This is something special about this site. Andrew and Rodney Hale, Andrew Collins, when I found that they had, had elliptical geometry, um, so it pro probably had acoustic properties. This absolutely fascinated me because... This is acoustic experiments were carried out there and they found some remarkable things when they were there. They found that some researchers from the U University of Trieste uh, found that enclosure D, the center between the central pillars, uh, resonated around 68 to 69 hertz with the harmonics of 91 to 138 hertz. This is the basic musical fifth. And also, they found that the shallow pit they're resting in was to almost like to create a kind of vibration or hum. So they would move slightly, uh, almost like tuning forks in the wind. When pillar 18, one of the main central pillars, was tapped, it sung and sounded hollow. So they've even suggested that part of the lower part of the interior of one of the T-pillars might be hollowed out. No one's ever tested or checked this because they can't really... And so there is this proven acoustics there. This, this is what Andrew and Rodney were saying all along. So this is advanced 12, almost 12,000 years ago. They also found a spiral magnetic field when they were doing their research there. And they recorded this from all different angles and it came up on all their data. So we're not just talking about acoustics. We're recording about a, a magnetic anomaly being recorded within, in between the two main pillars at enclosure D. 
So this is mind-blowing. So this opens up a whole new thing. This is like the work of John Burke and the Earth Energies research him and his team have done um, over the years. And the fact that it's now occurring much, much earlier than people realize may emphasize why the agricultural revolution took place here because they were able to enhance their seeds by placing them in these spots. The same kind of magnetic energy compared with the, the acoustics is going to affect your brain chemistry. It's going to affect your consciousness as well. So these, this was like a sacred site. They were doing things here that people don't realize. This is kind of like the image that they came up with about this. They found similar results, same magnetic anomalies, the same acoustics in new grains. They found it in places, parts of Stonehenge have it, even Avery Avenues have it. They found it in Malta at the hypergeum chambers there as well. And, you know, with all these serpents carved all over the stones, you know, were these recordings of these natural kind of energy lines, these telluric currents that cause these magnetic, potentially cause these magnetic anomalies? Because we find the serpent symbolism everywhere. This is, you know, the sign of the symbol of Enki on the left, which I believe there's now I'm believing that all the stories of Enki and Enlil and the Sumerian traditions of the Anunnaki do go back to the time of Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. It makes sense now. In the left, in the middle left there, we have Gebekli Tepe. In the middle right, we have uh, Gozo, uh, Gigantia and Malta. On the far right, we have Saqqara. So they're all representing this serpent going up the stone, which I believe is a representation of these earth energies. We also have geometries that are being discovered uh, like equilateral triangles linking the centers of these sites, which perfectly align with the two green entrances you can see on the bottom right there. You know, they're perfectly symmetrical. What's interesting about this is not only it suggests these were all laid out at the same time, because archaeologists have say they might be at slightly different times. They could have been at least designed and put in place at the same time. But the orientations of it are all really interesting as well. And this links back to Andrew's research on Cygnus and, you know, in the sky back at this kind of era. Um, and that what this was then analyzed and worked on by myself and my good friend, um, Adam Tetler, who's a, who's a master ancient metrologist in the, from the school of John Michelle and John Neal. And he found out that if you kind of decode the measurements that were found from that, equilateral triangle <laughs> this this blew my mind and this is the first evidence of them using earth measurements at any site on the planet he found evidence of the persian foot the sumerian foot the sumerian palm and the royal egyptian foot all found within the enclosures at gebekli tepe now we've just started work on this and this is going to be published later this year or, 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 or ne early next year in a, a small wooden book i'm writing on this because if that's the case and these are based on Earth measurements. And so they must have known the circumference and shape and size of the Earth back at the time of Gebekli Tepe to get these measurements from. These aren't chance measurements. So we're going to be looking more into this as time goes by. But other things, so I just want to just highlight some of the geometries that Alexander Tom found in Britain because I decided to look at carefully at the geometries of Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe to see if anything that Alexander Tom had decoded from the British stone circles. And he surveyed like 600 of these. Um, I found pretty much eight different geometries as well as the perfect circle, including the ellipses, uh, including uh, type A, type B flattened circles, egg-shaped, egg-shaped circles with elliptical ends and so on and so forth. 
And so this is new, newish research. We're just starting to put this together. We're going to keep working on this until we get it absolutely bang on. But we found that enclosure D is an egg-shaped circle type 1, for instance. If, that, if this is correct, then this is basically the first evidence of them using these very specific geometries. And does it then suggest they influenced the stone circle builders of ancient Britain? There are several egg-shaped circles type 1 in the British Isles. Now, these are constructed from a 3-4-5 triangle, which is a Pythagorean triangle. So they were certainly working with geometry. The ones we find in England, we have some examples here. The Lundy one we found, for instance, on Lundy Island is this shape. Um, we have Allen Water, which is certainly the Scottish borders. And we have the 12 Apostles Circle um, and various other ones up in Cumbria, up in Scotland, some not too far from here. These only date back to like 3000 BC at the most, probably. But we have one which is slightly older, slightly closer to Gobekli Tepe. And this is Nabtapaya, found in Egypt. And this dates back potentially to 7,500 to 5,000 BC. There's a big debate about the exact uh, dates of this. But this is the same kind of geometry, if we're correct, with enclosure D being this shape. And so what was going on here? So we're looking at... The design, the construction using three, four, five triangles and astronomical sight lines to create these particular shapes. We have an enclosure, enclosure C, appears to be a flattened circle modified type B. It's a bit of a mouthful. But this one is the most compelling to me because it fits really, really well. It all precisely lines with the inner circle. There's, a, there's an outer circle there as well, which we need to get more accurate a plan of. Um, and you can see it close up here just to get a sense of that. There are numerous stone circles across the British Isles that have this type of geometry. And even the construction lines go through the centers of the T-pillars and it orientates perfectly with the entrance to it as well. So that gives it good evidence this is an actual uh, deliberate design. Possibly an enclosure A. This one's a bit more speculative. This is a hypothesis, remember. We're not claiming this is all fact just yet. We're still working on this. We have a flattened circle type D. And this aligns, again, perfectly with the central T-pillars. Um, and this is one of the eight variations that Alexander Tom came up with. And we have examples not too far from here. Greycroft in Cumbria. Even Newgrange has a very similar geometry as well. So are we looking at these builders going over as the tradition state to construct these sites in Britain with Enoch, the Watchers, the Shining Ones, and so on and so forth. And this is what they kind of all look like together. And so to me, this is very compelling information. I'm a, I'm a kind of obsessive number and geometry person who kind of always finds these kind of strange patterns, which absolutely fascinates me. But just to put it in perspective, we're talking about such a small amount of this has, has been uncovered. What else are we going to find? I'm kind of predicting we're going to find more of these geometries, possibly some of the other ones that Alexander Tong came up with. And you can see the scale of it here in comparison to what is yet to be discovered. And then uh, yeah, even up at the Kalanish, all the different Kalanish circles, there's much, but there's more than one. Uh, many of these show all these different geometries we've looked at at Gebekli Tepe. And that absolutely fascinates me that we have that there. But Karahan Tepe, this is a site that um, I've been visiting since 2014 with Andrew and with JJ since 2018. Andrew's uh, been traveling there since 2004, you know, so he's um, 
been at it for a lot longer than me in that area. But this is an absolutely fascinating site. I'm, I'm kind of very interested in this site because we've been visiting there before it was excavated. It was just like a hill, you know, with these tea pillars sticking out the ground. We were having lunch and tea with the, with the, the kind of family for many years. Uh, it's in the Tech Tech Mountains. It's like 25 miles southeast of, um, Gebekli Tepe. It's a little bit younger than, um, Gebekli Tepe. Just a few hundred years, really. There's 250 at least of these tea pillars. But since then, they've actually uncovered some of it. This is a, a reconstruction someone has created of it. Uh, with a roof again, which we don't know if it was there or not. But we have this massive enclosure and this a pit called the AB pit, which we'll look at in a moment, which, which is also Andrew calls the pillar shrine. But interestingly, I, I started carefully, I thought, well, I'll apply Alexander Tom's geometries to this one as well. And it appears to be um, an egg-shaped circle with semi-elliptical end type 2, I think. Or was it type 3? Uh, type 3. And so... What's going on here? Why are they creating these specific geometries? And so here's some of the artifacts that have been found at the site. Uh, I made videos about this all up on my YouTube channel. And so if this is correct, we're going to have this analyzed properly. This is, again, evidence of this very sophisticated level of geometry going on at a very early date, just after the end of the last ice age. So this absolutely blew my mind. But on the top right there, you can just see this pit with all these little pillars in it. This is called the uh, AB pit or the AB um, enclosure. And it's got 10 upright pillars carved out of bedrock with this protruding head and this freestanding pillar that looks almost like half a portal stone. This really intrigued us. Myself and JJ had a chance to visit there and we synchronistically and serendipitously ended up going there on the winter solstice morning. We didn't, we didn't really want to get up that early, but we did. We were forced to go there because we, we had a rumor they were going to close down the site, so we had to get there before the officials got there and we were going to get in trouble. And we witnessed something quite remarkable. On the left of this, you can actually see like a portal stone where light is coming in and hitting the side of the face. This was taken about 50 minutes after sunrise. And so we thought, why is this blade of light illuminating this side of this protruding stone head? This kind of intrigued us. So we set the camera up and recorded it as this light went through this portal and lit up the head over probably a 45-minute period. And we realized we discovered a winter solstice sunrise alignment, uh, illumination of this stone head at the site itself. Now, it completely blew our minds, you know, because this is kind of what it looks like here. It would come through the portal, um, and it would illuminate head only at a certain height in the sky, only at a certain angle. Andrew and Rodney Hale, they analyzed this using Stellarium and found that it fits even better when the site was built in 9000 BC. So this, again, could be the oldest winter solstice alignment recorded on the planet. So we were privileged to have been there at just the right time to observe this. And as the sun rose, rose over the portal stone, it illuminated the top of the head like a halo. So that really intrigued us as well, because was this like the shining one? Was this like, you know, illuminating the head of this great ancient god or goddess? Because these pillars look very phallic. You know, there's a big suggestion that. So that we believe, JJ and I believe this is like a fertility site with the kind of solar male light beaming through the female into the female womb-like chamber, like you get at Newgrange, and illuminating it and kind of giving birth 
to this new part of the year, which is the winter solstice is traditionally the new year in many ancient cultures, potentially here in southeast Turkey as well. Now, I'm kind of jumping into speculation mode just for a moment here. Well, probably quite a lot of this is already. But I found it looks strangely similar, this head. And there's some other artifacts as well. It look like these chalk drums that are found in Britain. Now, what is why I'm going to go into this, I'm just going to finish the lecture off with this just for a few more minutes, um, is that these chalk drums, which are found up in Yorkshire and also some down south, when you run a string around them, it comes up with a specific measurement. And they call, in British, it's called the long foot. But in earlier traditions, it's called the Persian foot, which is 12.7 inches. This is the same foot that was found at Gebekli Tepe, we're finding in ancient Britain. And this is this proves it. And so what else we found was, as we started looking around, um, and this is someone sh- shared this with me. I, I didn't catch who it was, but we, there's basically five or the golden section, the golden ratio being recorded in the proportions of the tea pillars at Gebekli Tepe. And, you know, we have to question why was all this information being recorded and why was the site then completely covered over? And we think maybe there was cataclysms going on at this time. They were perhaps recording comet impact, the younger Dryas. We have stories, obviously, of the Great Flood going back then as well. And, you know, to me, this just suggests that there was some kind of urgency about recording and placing all this knowledge in these sites as much as they possibly could. So we have these beautiful portal stones as well. We find at Gebekli Tepe uh, and at Karahan Tepe. We saw that already. But we also have them in Britain as well. And these are always, the one on the left is from Gebekli Tepe, but this is Menantol. These are always related to fertility and regeneration and healing. Same with the cut marks we find at Gebekli and Karahan as well. These are found in Britain as well. And so these are often related to the same thing. We even find them on the top of the pillars. We find these nubs and cut marks, much like we find at Gebekli Tepe, at our favourite site here, Stonehenge. And what's interesting about Stonehenge as well is that there's these giant wooden post holes that contain these 30-foot-tall pine posts, like totem poles, potentially found at Stonehenge. Now, the thing is, these date back to 10,000 years. So this could be the time when Enoch and his watchers came over and actually mark that spot as part of their geodetic survey because Stonehenge encodes all the same kind of information we've just looked at at Karahan Tepe and Gebekli Tepe. And there's even evidence of like DNA research coming over, you know, this is potentially a few thousand, couple of thousand years later, but it proves there was these migrations coming over from this part of the world. And even their stories of Enlil, Enki, and, and so on, Inanna, and myself and JJ are working on this very large article and eventually a book about all this because you will find that Enlil and Enki are linked with these fertility cults as well that we find in all these different parts of the world. And obviously William Blake as well, who I believe was, you know, with his stories about Enoch, realized there was something going on with ancient Britain as well as other parts of the world. Some new research we're working on with Howard Crowhurst is we're finding all these geodetic connections between Gebekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe and other major sites around the world. One example here is Baalbek. That's, this will be coming soon, this, this, uh, this research. Obvious connections with Easter Island with this type of iconography. They're also both naval sites, like talking about you know, pointing their fingers towards the navel or the belly button. Also, I noted this, if you draw a line between Gebekli Tepe 
and the Coracancha in Cusco, Peru, it measures 7928 miles, which is the exact equatorial diameter of the Earth. So were there, and this is also a naval site as well. And you have exactly the same kind of carvings. On the right, right-hand side of that image is Gebekli Tepe. On the left-hand side, you've got Kutimbo and Silustani. And so we're finding more and more connections. And I hope this has given you some idea of where we're going with our research, but there's more to come. This is kind of like the introduction to where we're going with this. And um, we are, if you'd like to join us, we do go to Turkey twice a year, May and September. You can see that here. And thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That was a great find, Drama. Yeah. Well, let's do this next one. We are going to take a little listen to uh, Greg Braden and Dr. Teresa Bullard. Okay, get there. Yes, I'll just tell everybody what's okay. coming. Practical Tools for Mass Awakening is the title. How does living with our fullest human potential help us access our divinity? Watch episode 13. I just, I, I learned a lot from the gentleman we just finished listening to. So thank you for finding that, Rama. Yeah, this is, um, not to go off on a tangent, but Stonehenge, each one of those stones, I could say, is a different portal to various places around our local galaxy. I know that the Faction 3 White Knights, they go there a lot. Yeah. And last, in the last couple of months, they've been there a lot. And I, it is in conjunction with the solar flares and there was an X-glass flare in the last 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. How does living with our fullest human potential help us access our divinity? Watch episode 13 of Quantum Minds TV with Dr. Teresa Bullard White and distinguished guest Greg Braden to learn more about how being human helps us to access our divinity. Whether we look at spirituality, indigenous traditions, or the simulation, all of them invite us to discover the best version of ourselves. The best version of ourselves is the fullest extent of our humanness and our extraordinary potential. We must tap into our fullest human capacity to support mass awakening. It In this episode, we share about accessing optimal coherence, the quantum field, critical mass, and the future of humanity. I guess that's enough. Let's listen. (laughs) 40 minutes, everybody. Here we go.
space for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken. Thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, and empowering. This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Teresa Willard-White, and this is Quantum Minds TV. Welcome to Quantum Minds TV, where we take a deep dive into various perspectives on what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. Now, today, I'm very honored to have Greg Braden joining me. Greg is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, and a pioneer in the emerging paradigm-bridging science, social policy, and human potential. A simulation of the idea that is very much a modern-day concept, but it could also, as you're saying, it gives us a new language or maybe a new metaphor to use to compare, uh, whereas in past traditions, you know, they use the metaphor of the dream or, you know, the, the metaphor of, of something else. And, and in the movie The Matrix, I think they picked up on this idea of the simulation. And, you know, you have your your kind of programmed reality that that is the illusion, um, and yet it's really happening and then you have this you know getting out of that simulation or out of that matrix and you've got the 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 real world you know and, and where you have real autonomy and real ability to to choose for yourself and so it's disconnecting from that programmed sort of consensual reality story and shifting into a, a more sovereign story, a story where you know that you have the ability to create your life, that you have the ability to shift your own software and to change the expression of your DNA and, and so forth. So maybe we can kind of come back a little bit to how how do we do that within um, you know, within epigenetics, for example, but also, you know, you've mentioned the power of words and uh, mantras and, and vibrational energy to influence the DNA. There's so many keys that we have where the power's in our hands to, you know, adjust what's going on inside of us that then allows us to create a, a better way of life, a better reality for ourselves. Yeah. Well, I, I think and I just I threw in the simulation because what it has done, it has included an entire genre of engineers and scientists that felt excluded for so many years in these conversations that weren't necessarily on board with the spiritual language or the metaphysical language. And I've had conversations, I've had them in my audience, and they say, wow, you know, I never thought of it. And now, now they're on board with it. But this make any difference, whether you're talking about spirituality or indigenous traditions or you're talking about the, the simulation, all of them invite us to discover the best version of ourselves. Yeah. And the best version of ourselves is is the, the full extent of our humanness, uh, the extraordinary potential that that lives within us as our humanness. We all learn differently. And and that's the beauty. We all learn differently. And so different language will open the door for different people at different times. But we're all working toward this best version of ourselves. And what you're doing is, and I, I so appreciate the platform here to, to be able to share this, because it it is very different from what we've been conditioned and led to believe when we begin to see the potentials within us. So for me, I mean, there are, we could do a whole program on this. I think one of the most fundamental potentials is the understanding uh, that we have a neural network in our heart as that is separate and independent 
from the neural network in our brain, but we are unique in the fact that we can harmonize those two networks at will, on demand, when we choose. This is a mind blower. Two separate organs with two separate neural networks that we can harmonize into a single potent system. Try this strange 10-second technique tonight to reverse high blood sugar while you sleep. Most people continue to take blood sugar medications because they've been brainwashed by the medical establishment to believe diabetes. And that system, when we do that, it opens the door to deep levels of our potential, to an enhanced immune response on demand, to awakening longevity enzymes on demand. And it's not just about longevity. If you are living a long time, it means you're healing along the way. So deep states of healing. It opens the door to deep levels of resilience to change in a healthy way. And our, our world is changing so fast. So who doesn't want that resilience? To, to deep states of cognition, super learning, super memory, super recall, and, and so much more simply by utilizing this extraordinary, this soft technology uh, in a way that we typically don't think about using it. So for some people, it's a very different way of thinking. For some people, I say, right on, man. You know, I've, I've always had a feeling that we could do this. And this state of awareness that's called coherence is very familiar to us when we're young. And as, as babies, as young children, until we're conditioned out of it through our environment, through our culture and family, well, well-intentioned. But as, as we become enculturated, to function in the world, we uh, typically will leave this natural state of coherence. And that's why it feels so familiar when we return to it. Mm. Well, if I, if I may, so, you know, let's get into some practical things here because, you know, the brain, if we're trying to find a place of coherence within our brain, there's multiple tools that we can use. There's meditation as one. Music is another one. Singing and chanting is another one. All of these things will, will really create that harmonic state of our brain, even like playing chess or doing strategy games, you know, that, that harmonize left and right hemispheres. Tai Chi, Qigong, you know, these kinds of movements, all of these will help, you know, create that harmonic brain state. And then, you know, you mentioned bringing it into the heart and the heart state as, as heart math. And you've been talking about it's very much that place of compassion, gratitude, empathy, um, joy, you know, the, 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 the exuberance and imagination of, of a child, you know, just really coming at it from that open hearted state. Um, and then there's, there is a third, uh, you know, nervous system in our, in our body, which is in the gut. And we have so much. Uh, so many neurons within the gut and the gut is responsible for producing like large majority of the serotonin that then is sent uh, to the brain to affect our mood uh, and to affect our sense of, of balance. You know, our biochemistry gets balanced there. And here it is. You mentioned breath before, you know, and, and breathing in that deep belly breathing helps to bring that harmonic state into the gut. And what I find fascinating is that these three centers, the, the, the third eye, the heart, the gut, the, the, the second chakra, these were in like the ancient um, 
uh, martial arts systems were considered the the three chi centers or the three they call them dantians or pandans, uh, where there's wisdom, there's life energy, and so harnessing these technologies within our bodies. Uh, through all of these practices uh, that are part of the ancient traditions, and yet now we're seeing the modern science coming in to to collaborate with uh, and corroborate that yeah these are these are important tools that we can use to awaken. I, absolutely, and, and I love every, everything you're saying. And I, I think it's important. I've found this with our live audiences to let people know we are always in some state of coherence. Mm. The the key is, and we're always in some state of healing. The key is to optimize that coherence, to optimize the healing. So we now, there is a science to this, and we know that the optimum signal from the heart to the brain to establish optimum coherence is a very low frequency. It's, it's 0.1 hertz. And, and it's no accident that it is this frequency because when you look at the field, magnetic field resonance law is, this is where I get to be a geologist. I love this. <laughs> when, when you look at the, the magnetic field resonance of the planet under our feet. So this, this is not the Schumann resonance in, in the cavity between the surface and the ionosphere. That's, that's something separate. This is a, a fundamental, it's called the, the field line resonance of, of the planet. When you look at that map, uh, the first spike that you see is it's not it's not zero and it's not point two. It is exactly that point one hertz. So when we harmonize our heart and our brain to point one hertz, we're actually harmonizing our biological body with the fundamental magnetic of, of the planet we live on. If we go to another planet, we might have to, to do another another frequency. Point one hertz. This is where our healing begins. Now the beauty is that coherence is not limited to the heart and the brain. Once it's established between the heart and the brain, because it is coherence and it's optimum, uh, it is influencing every system in our body, including the, the neural network in the gut. So the gut uh, is very much a part of this, and it, it is harmonized as well. So this is interesting. 1991 is when the scientists, the scientific community found the neurons in the human heart. Uh, it was published in 94 in the journal Neurocardiology, 1994. Uh, I think it's Harvard University. Once the scientists found those neurons in the heart, they said, huh, where else might they be? And what they found is that there are sensory neurites pretty much in every organ of the body. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is they are not developed. The neural network in the other organs is not developed to the degree that it is in the heart. So the heart and the brain, when we harmonize those and bring them into coherence uh, through three steps, focus, breath, and feeling, when we harmonize those, that coherence radiates, it extends and brings the entire system into this state of coherence. And we are also bringing our bodies into coherence with this fundamental frequency, the, the planet. By, by the way, uh, whales communicate with 0.1 hertz it's so universal and military submarines which is why it's the problem for the whales but it's because it is such a universal frequency Mm. so so how do we do that three steps we focus our awareness we move from our brain into our heart and you can touch your heart gently a little bit to do that slow the breathing uh a little bit slower than usual 
breathe longer on the exhale than on the inhale, which is is what stimulates the parasympathetic nerve, the relaxation of the parasympathetic nervous system. But number three is where we really establish this coherence, and it's with uh, an emotion. And we are not who we think we are. We are so much more than we think we are. We're more than we can think that we are. Here's an image just to show you just a little moment. Here's an energy field, many layers of this energy field, this one little band. And when we can feel on demand the emotion of gratitude or appreciation, care or compassion, and those are the four words that work most successfully for most people in the English language. Those are their Others, you can experiment and see what works for you, but almost every time, gratitude will do it, appreciation, care, and compassion. When we do those three steps and we harmonize these neurons in the heart and the brain, that is the answer, I think, to the question. You're talking about practicality uh, because we open the door to an enhanced immune response to the longevity enzymes, super learning, super cognition, resilience, all those things. And that's passive. Just by doing those three steps, those are passive benefits. Now we have active benefits where we can take advantage of that coherence and go into altered states, deep states of awareness, access the subconscious for uh, affirmations and things like that. So it's it's a gate, gateway, and, and it begins in the heart. As it, uh, so many indigenous traditions, I know I'm talking quickly because I feel like we're going to run out of time, but so many of the indigenous traditions from the shamans in, in the Yucatan uh, and the Andes of Peru and when I was in Tibet and certainly the aboriginals and uh, when I'm with uh, the Bedouin in Egypt, they all begin these processes in, in the heart uh, and with breath. So it's uh, that I think is is one of the keys to practically applying this inner technology and and the alchemy is part of this because we are changed in the presence of our coherence. We are changed biologically and we change the, the way we feel emotionally. Well, it's so interesting, too, because in the fetus, the very first organ that starts to operate is the heart. And and so and then it it starts to uh, create a harmonic with the mother's heart. And so and then the ear and the brain start to be programmed by that early heartbeat within the fetus. And, you know, so you have the heartbeat of the mother, the breath of the mother, the heartbeat of, of the baby. And, and then these are programming and sending the signals up to the brain for it to be developed. And, you know, so these are the early rhythms. And then for it to also have this 0.1 hertz resonance with the fundamental frequency of the Earth's magnetic energy. Um, and that is, you know, like tuning into that heartbeat of Mother Gaia as well. And isn't it that this 0.1 hertz also is a resonant energy that runs through the vagus nerve? Is the, the vagus nerve kind of is that main nerve that connects the, the brain and the heart and the gut and all the organs? It's, and it's, like the, it's like the super highway. It begins right at the base of the skull and goes down uh, into the, the, the base of the spine. And it has so many access points. When you look at the uh, at the vagus nerve, it has access points out to the eyes, and so there are eye movements that can stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, it has access points to the to the mouth, and that's why when you smile, 
you're actually triggering that uh, that relaxation response into the lungs. That's why the breath is important into the genital area. And that's why many of the ancient uh, tantric practices also tie tie into this. So it's it's like the super highway of, of the information. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's been so, so important. And. You know, so many traditions. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I love is that these ancient traditions, without knowing the science about it, they, through experience, learned the tools and the methods that, again, the power was in their own hands to harness these, uh, you know, things within us. And they didn't know the, the, the ins and outs of what was going on in the body, but they did know from an experiential level the impact that it was having upon us. And they saw not only was it having on them as an individual at a subjective level, but they saw that as they taught those same methods, meditations, chants, and, you know, working with different musical instruments and so forth, the breath work, all of these things, they passed them on through the generations and saw that, yeah, these tools work for everybody when they use them. And, uh, and so that's, again, speaking to that inner technology that is the best technology that we can learn to harness. Well, it is. It is, Teresa. So now I'm going to come back the other direction. We live because this isn't happening in a vacuum. We live in a society where we're being conditioned that we are flawed as a species and that we need something outside of us to be healthy in our bodies and to be successful in life. It's a great way to drive consumerism. <laughs> well, it, it is. Yeah. Uh, and technology is being touted as the savior mm-hmm. and uh, the replacement of biology with technology. So I'll make a distinction. I'm, there are different levels of this. You know, if if we use contact lenses, that's an external technology that, that helps us in the world. And, and I think that's fine. We begin replacing skin and organs and tissues and uh, and neurons with artificial intelligence on computer chips embedded into the tissue. That's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what the science is uh, just I'm. Just research the articles on this. I didn't know we were going to talk about it. I don't have them here. But the science is very, very clear that we have the the biological adages, use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. So if we don't use our systems and if we don't use the neurons and the cells, our body assumes that they're not needed and they stop producing them. So we now know, for example, that we produce new neurons in the brain up until the last breath of life. We used to think it was a fixed number, and, and we know it's not. But we also know that when a, a new neuron is produced, it must be engaged in a meaningful way within two weeks of production or it will atrophy and die mm-hmm. because it's not being used. So so now think about it. we got three, three-year-old kids. They wake up in the morning. They eat their Captain Crunch, you know, Krispies or whatever it is for breakfast. They go sit in the living room and they put on a VR visor, you know, a virtual reality visor. And for hours, they are watching uh, colors, intense colors that they would never see in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And they are seeing sounds and sights. But here's the key. It's all being done for them. So they are observers rather than using their imagination and their creativity we did when we were kids to make forts in, you know, in the backyard and to, and to make alternative realities of experience. 
And now the studies are showing, first, the visual cortex is thickening in the young people, which impacts their cognitive abilities, not necessarily in a good way, uh, but their developmental abilities, their socialization with other kids, naturally, uh, is waning because they're, they're not doing it. But they, uh, their cognitive abilities, their cognitive development is, is being impacted because they are not being stimulated to do these things on their own. This yeah. is the first, gener- first generation where this has happened. And so I, I think it, we have to be aware of this so that we can allow technology to serve us rather than become enslaved by the technology in a way that many people, like Ray Kurzweil, says by the year 2050, we will have synthetic bodies. And if we are operating in synthetic bodies, then we've lost the DNA antenna that tunes us to our divinity. Mm. And I, I don't think Ray Kurzweil is thinking in, in, in that way, or maybe he is. And, and he has a whole <laughs> Ray conversation. Ray Kurzweil yeah. just wants to live forever in a machine, you know, by transferring his brain into the machine. So, well, this is the trans. He doesn't believe in the eternity of, of the, the no. consciousness beyond the body. Um, you know, even when people, you mentioned the user lose it, even when people, I, I think everyone can, you know, who have, has had glasses can relate that, you know, at the very beginning, you might need the glasses because your eyes are starting to fail. But then as you get used to the glasses, it's like it actually, you know, the, the eyes, it becomes harder and harder to focus on its own. Uh, and it relies more and more on the glasses. And then we have to get, you know, greater and greater prescriptions. And, you know, with the, with the brain, the, those, those neurons that are wired, if we stop using those neural pathways, they will be pruned, right? And they will be cleaned up because they're not being used anymore. And and with the kids, you know, even even before the virtual reality stuff, just the personal devices and and those saturated colors make the the brain think it's candy. Uh, and and the people who you know are behind so much of the software and and the developments of these technologies. The parents know, like they know they don't want their children growing up being addicted to these technologies. And so they're putting their kids in schools where the technologies are not being used and they're putting limits upon how much they allow their kids to get on them. Not that, not that we can't use technology, but I think in the developmental stages of, of a child and the wiring of the brain, which is all the way from you know, the fetus all the way up until at least 25 years old. And then we're still, we, with that plasticity, we're still constantly able to rewire our brain. And yet, you know, there's a certain point where we can have a fully developed human engaging with these and having enough self-control and, and will and discipline to disengage with the technology and, and live a real human life as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a frightening point that we're at, uh, but there's also equally, I feel, the possibilities within technology to harness it and create a much better world as long as well, it's, it comes in. I, I, I agree, Teresa. What it's doing is it's pushing us mm-hmm. to, for the first time to understand who we are. And uh, it, it is it can be a frightening time. It's also a very exciting time mm-hmm. because now we're understanding the human body and human consciousness in ways that uh, that we we never have before. You know, cloning. The cloning is a perfect example. Now, I think many of your uh, your viewers and in our community are familiar a little bit with cloning. The first clones uh, was the sheep. Dolly was the one that was, you know, made national news. What a lot of people don't know, 
is the clones look like they are successful at first. So, so the clone of Dolly looked and acted like Dolly for a while, or now they do it with, with bovine, bovine uh, cows as well. Uh, and there's a mystery that has surrounded the cloning process. And this is forcing scientists to understand better who we are. And the mystery is this. The clones appear to work and function perfectly at first. Something happens and they begin to break down. And they typically live about 50% of the lifespan of the original sheep or the original cow. And scientists, are, they don't understand. They say, well, look, the DNA is exactly the same. How can it be? This is what the piece they're missing. In the DNA, in, in the cell, there's DNA in the nucleus, and there's DNA outside of the nucleus, the mitochondrial DNA. And they are tuned together, and they are also tuned into the field. All right? When the clone is created, they take one of those cells, and they pull out the DNA in the nucleus. They take that out, the original DNA, and they put in the DNA from another another being in there, it's no longer tuned to the mitochondrial DNA. It's no longer communicating with the field that is holding it in place, it, that, and it loses that communication, that, that breakdown. That's forcing the scientists to, to grasp a non-physical process that is influencing the DNA that they had never wanted to access it in the past. And this, and the same thing would be true for us. If we're replacing our DNA with synthetic bodies, synthetic organs, synthetic skin, and it's just a brain in a synthetic body, we're no longer tuned to that part in the field. This is where our divinity comes from, our ability to transcend the limits, uh, the, the perceived limits of, of what it means to be human. <laughs> and we're at, at the critical crossroads. I mean, it's this generation that's happening within this generation. These decisions are being made. Mm. So uh, I think it's it, we owe it to ourselves to uh, to know what it means to be human, perhaps for the first time, and to embrace the deep truth of our humanness. And then from that empowered perspective, make the choice, what role does technology play in our lives? How much of ourselves do we give away to the technology? Mm. So, so good. Uh, you know, so I love what you said there about the DNA and the mitochondria being tuned into the quantum field and, and in a way entangled with the, each other and they inform. And it just, again, comes back to that, uh, the evidence that's showing how the DNA is very much connected to the quantum field. It's like this bridge between us and the quantum realm. And, um, you know, I love what you said about us, you know, really getting to know who we are as human. Um, and, and a big, you've dedicated so much of your life and your career to helping move forward this awakening of human consciousness and this shift, you know, in, in the collective, uh, by bridging the science and the indigenous wisdom and, and yet very practical things. Um, and, and, you know, not only do we want to awaken at a, individual level but we want to also awaken at a collective level so what do you feel really needs to happen for us to access that that critical mass point of people waking up and choosing to steer the course you know with this this tipping point that we're at to steer the course towards the the reality of what we can create as humans 
versus the dystopia. I think, well, we're bringing it full circle coming, coming back to where we began. I think the, the old idea of critical mass, I think it takes on a different significance with the new ideas of us living in a quantum reality mm-hmm. to where it is less about the sheer numbers of people that embrace the ideas and more about the quality of the ideas that a relatively few number of people can, can embrace on the quantum level. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a, it's a very different way of, of thinking for some people. Uh, but I think this is, this is where we are right now. Everyone learns differently and we are so diverse in our experience, and we are so blessed, Teresa, to, to have the time to devote to just having this conversation day when many of our brothers and sisters are just trying to live through the end of this day. Uh, by us living in our lives what we are claiming in this conversation, we are uplifting our brothers and sisters everywhere. We're, we have to anchor these possibilities into the field to make them accessible, more accessible to others who may not be thinking the way that we are right now. I mean, a- anybody can can do this. But by us bringing these ideas, crystallizing them and focusing upon them and embracing them and living them in our bodies, and we finish in just a few minutes, we're going to finish and we're going to go walk out into our world. How do we live in the world, what we're talking about here? And every time we do that, we're making it more accessible to our brothers and sisters in our global family who may not have the same perspective. Uh, they don't have the luxury of spending a couple of hours having this conversation. Uh, and living by example, I think, I think is a lot, a lot of that. And a lot of it comes down to something that people don't like to hear as personal responsibility. But as we take responsibility for our own lives rather than asking a higher authority, a government to take care of us, for example, we as we embrace the sovereignty of what it means to be human and live that in in our lives, uh, personally, I think others benefit from us doing that collectively. And I think this is the way the way that this new world emerges. I mean, realistically, uh, I'm an engineer and I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm also a realist realistically we're in it we're in a change and the only way out of it is to go through it mm-hmm. and realistically i think what will happen is we are witnessing two parallel societies emerge one is all in on all the technology and everything they're just hook line and sinker they're in and another part of society and these are my rural neighbors and my rural community at my little co-op where i do my grocery shopping They're not plugged into that tech. They don't know everything that's going on. But what they do know, something is happening in the world that doesn't feel right. Mm. And the way they respond is they say, we need to slow down and go back to basics. We're going to teach our kids, take them out of public school and teach them the values that we want them to have. We're growing some of our own food. Mm. So when the supply chains break down, you know, we're not as impacted. This is how they're responding. So two parallel societies, and we're going to do what humans always do. We're going to check each other out, and we're going to say who's happier, who has stronger relationships. And the answer to that question is what will bring our communities together, and I think this is where the unity comes from. The answer to that question is what people are going to say. They're going to say, I want what they're having, 
I want that happiness. I want that sense of well-being. I want that health and healing. And, and they'll begin to mimic the, the lifestyle that is informed by the consciousness that we're talking about right now. And I think realistically, this is what I see happening. Does that make sense if I say it that way? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting that it also almost gives a new context to what happened during a couple of years of the COVID-19 pandemic where the world shut down, couldn't go to work, the the usual distractions of being out and about in the busyness, especially in in the urban type of living. Um, You know, we we had the Unplug life slowed down for a bit, and it gave you know there was of course the, the 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 tragedy of the deaths and everything that was happening, but amidst it, it also forced people to slow down and to, to regroup themselves and uh, to to reevaluate what is important. And you know, and then when we are forced to only be able to connect through Zoom, for example, and and digital, you know, and, and there's all this isolation, it, it reminded people of the value of actual human connection, uh, real relationships, going out and spending time with the kids outdoors, you know, doing something fun rather than just putting them on the video games. I mean, there was real human value uh and that was re-emerging and a reevaluation of purpose a sense of like what do i really want to do because now people don't want to even go back to work or get back into the grind well one of the things i i know we're seeing that one of the things that revealed was in the hierarchy of human needs Mm. uh, water is still number one we need water and air obviously food has now fallen down that hierarchy you can go for a couple of weeks without uh without food but what they found is that community mm-hmm. moved up in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Community was more important than food. Like and that. people that didn't have that connection, uh, sadly, many of them took their own lives because mm-hmm. they felt so isolated and so alone and so powerless. Uh, and, and so what we find is that community, we've always known it was important, but now we know why it's important and that it's become more important than ever. Mm-hmm. And, and localization, as we go through a time of extremes where formally we are being uh, urged into centralized living. So rural living is being discouraged. People are being urged to go into large population centers uh, and to live in very densely packed large population centers. That's what's happening in, in media on the one hand, but on the other hand, what people are finding is that localized living, localized living is the way to, to move through these times of extremes. So, so what does that mean? It means, uh, localized agriculture, localized food, farm to table, which a lot of people do, localized economies, localized finances, localized sources of energy. Uh, and, and all of those, I think, contribute to the community that we're talking about. And that community is based on uh, ultimately our humanness and what it takes to to be fully human and to be happy and to be healthy and fulfilled. 
Wonderful. So, uh, Greg, I want to thank you so much for, you know, joining me on Quantum Mind C. There's so much more we could have talked about, and I would love to at some point hopefully have you back on. Uh, there's, you know, some deep conversation that we can continue to get into in, in multiple directions. Uh, but I just want to see if there's any final words that you would like to leave people with in terms of, you know, what's most important right now for them to, to be able to make that shift. Yeah, well, thank you for that opportunity. You know, I um, I am a huge fan of Buckminster Fuller. Uh, he was a man way ahead of his time, a visionary. I, I wish he were still with us today. He, I think he passed in the mid-1980s. But he said something, uh, and I have worked with people who knew him and worked with him directly. And he, he said something that touched me so deeply. I, I say it to myself pretty much every day. And what he said was, you'll never change the world by fighting against the things you don't like. So if you want a new world, find a new model that makes the old model obsolete, and people will follow the new model, and the old model falls away. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I totally get that there are sometimes the warrior in me has to fight, sometimes. And we all we all know that. But ultimately... There is a, a new world that's trying to emerge. And I think if if we can become the best versions of ourselves and live that in our families and our communities and our everyday lives, we've won the battle without ever having to fight because we have claimed the deep truth of our humanness and the deep truth of our power. And I think ultimately that's all we can ask of ourselves at this time. Mm. So that, that's what I'd like to say in closing. I love that. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, that brings us to the end of this conscious conversation with Greg Braden. And Greg, thank you so much for sharing your vast experience and insights with us. And I look forward to at some point having you again on Quantum Minds TV. Greg and Teresa, uh, show number two. And I look forward to that as well. Thank you for sharing me with your community and for trusting me and, and having this conversation. It's an important conversation, and you are such a master at what you do and at leading this conversation. I'm honored to be with you, Teresa, and I, I do it again in a heartbeat. And now, stay tuned for a bonus video with Dr. Teresa Bullard as we take a deeper dive into critical mass and coherence. Turning setbacks into bounce backs. One of the things when it comes to reaching critical mass that, that, you know, we've often heard about is, okay, it's the hundred monkey effects. Maybe it's like 10% of the population or 3% of the world population that we need to up level to awaken to a higher level of consciousness in order for us to create that tipping point or that critical mass point within the collective that has awakened, and then that can snowball uh, or ripple out into the rest of the collective to also awaken. But what you just said there about really it might not be a hard percentage of the population, for example, or an exact number of people, but really it's more about our connection in and our ability, the quality of our ability to access the quantum field as individuals um, and the maybe we can say it's more going to be a critical mass of the measure of how much coherent energy can we put into the collective field as individuals and then as groups. Uh, so if I, you know, as an individual can can reach an, a coherent state, 
And then if I can, you know, really sustain that coherent state for longer periods of time and even live in a coherent state, now I'm contributing more energy and coherence into the field than if I'm only achieving coherence in little blips, for example. Um, and then if, if I know how to not only reach a coherent state, sustain that coherent state, live from that coherent state, if I know how to amplify that coherent state, which is something that we really learned how to do within the mystery tradition, uh, and, and this is something I've learned within the mystery school and, and through the process of initiations and so forth, these are ancient spiritual technologies for how to amplify, how to accelerate our, our growth and our ability to have an impact on the collective. And then we learn the tools for how to create that coherent state. Now we can reduce the number of people who are needed. And yet we can really work on the quality of, of the people who are really putting in the effort to achieve those coherent states and then put that into the collective field. And if we can then create a resonant effect amongst those individuals who are doing it from a, a quality level, like there's a whole new realm of possibility of, um, you know, what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness because if we don't have to reach 10% or 3%, maybe we can become, as individuals, we can become that shift. We can become that critical mass uh, for our own impact into the collective field. And yet, having said that, we're not lone rangers here. We're not here to, you know, no man is an island. Uh, we're not here to do it on our own as an individual. We're here to do it as a collective. So we are here to co-create this experience, which is why it's so important that we come together in communities of coherent people who are ready to work together to create a resonant and an amplified effect uh, that then can impact into the quantum field. So that's giving me a lot more hope uh, that we can indeed achieve this shift in collective consciousness when we learn how to really access a quantum conscious state. This conscious conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa Bullard White in collaboration with Claire and edited by Verse. I think we played this last week, but that's okay. We needed to do it again. They put it out a second time. That's those two like quite a team everybody so we're going to jump in here this one's called et contact breaking yeah. through the fog i'm getting there yes for decades stories of et abduction and ufo sightings have been suppressed how can we bring more accounts of human experience with ets to light as the stories of disclosure continue to be told, and I'm just going to say Regina mm. Meredith knows all about Nasara's law, and it's an actment, so it's, it's kind of timely that we're doing this here. Um. As the stories of disclosure continue to be told um, in our modern era, more perspectives are appearing. Roderick Martin, an African-American investigator with MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, describes the UFO sighting that first inspired him to ask questions 
about the presence of ET's decades ago. Martin discusses the African-American community and his opinion about what he believes the traditional song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, represents. Roderick Martin is the host of the YouTube podcast, Why the Big Secret? He previously appeared on Gaia's original series, Beyond Belief, and the interview titled Uniting UFO Narratives. I'm having trouble finding that one. It's stated here that this came out the 9th. The 9th? Of February, 2023. Okay. Does that help, honey? Let me see here. Open Minds with Regina. Oh. Regina Marys. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, right here. Oh, right. <laughs> um, all right. All right, we're breaking through the fog, everybody. <laughs> Onward through the fog, as Willie Nelson says. <laughs> oh, we haven't heard him sing at all for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Might want to play some, huh? Um, it's a thought. I think he's in his 80s now, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Just getting started. Okay, you ready? Ready. Okay, everybody, this is 40, 46, 46 minutes. minutes. Here we go. looked up and I saw this little disc thing moving like and it was followed by two military jets but it was a secret because in my community that's not something that you go and talk about extraterrestrials wouldn't abducted us why not it's like okay we done been on ships in the past we're not getting on another ship without a destination period the younger people are now being what I consider emotionally and religiously bankrupt and you start thinking wait a minute Free energy, no billions. Free energy, no billions. Mm. Lock the door. <laughs> Tell everyone, your eyes are useless when your mind is blind. we got to get past the point where we see things, but our mind won't let us interpret it. People ask all the time, Roderick, what do the ETs look like? And then I say, I don't know if you want my answer. And I'm glad you just asked me. One community that we hear very little from regarding the fascination with UFOs is African Americans. Yet some of the better known tribes of Africa, such as the Dogons, believe they're from the stars, that ETs are their star brothers and sisters. So why the lack of interest here? Roderick Martin is here to fill us in on the background of African Americans in your history yes, with good. UFOs in America. Yes, that's good. We're <laughs> going to talk to, about it. It's good to have you here, Roger. I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> so let's first of all start up with you mm-hmm. because 
it's not part of culture. No. But as a little kid, you had interest. So let's talk about you personally, where your interest in UFOs came from to set the stage for this. Well, Regina, I think for me, it started when I was 12 years old. Now, I lived in Dallas, near the Dallas Zoo. So outside of hearing all those animals and gorillas and lions in the middle of the night, one night, you know, I was coming in and my mom had this thing about flashing the porch light when it's time to come in the house. Right. And so at that point, you know, uh, she's flashing. So I'm taking the stroll of, well, at that point, Shane, because I'm the only kid coming in early and everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was right when the night stars began to come out. So it was right at darkness. And just so happened, I looked up and I saw this little white little disc thing moving like and it was followed by two military jets. And then it came back and actually it was following them. Uh, and at the moment, I did not realize the significance of that moment. But mm-hmm. I did know I was looking at something uh, that wasn't normal. Uh, and in fact, of course, I watched TV. So I figure I like, hmm. And it just had my curiosity. It's my Scooby-Doo thing. I'm like, what was that? You know, mm-hmm. um, but as the years and months passed by and then I started watching a TV show, she talked to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm-hmm. you know, just all of these shows. That's when you knew this was what it was. Mm-hmm. But it was a secret because in my community, that's not something that you go and talk about. Even the neighborhood bully wasn't going to be sitting on the corner like you know, I saw a UFO last night, you know, and street credit gone. It's yeah, gone. yeah. Yeah. He's not taking my lunch buddy no more. You know? So I wasn't a neighborhood bully either. But the whole point was, it's just something that was unspoken. Uh, and of course, it carries with me until an adult, until I start realizing there is a place to talk about that. But did you talk to your mom or anybody about, did you tell? No. No. So you just kept it to yourself. Yeah, you kept it to yourself. And, and, and then I became a high school athlete. You, you became well known. And so, it's still, how did I know at a young age that this could hurt my reputation, mm-hmm. especially street credit, you know, mm-hmm. period. That was a lot those days. Yeah. So growing up in high school, you know, so I'm like, no, mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about it. And I made a whisper at it every now and then if someone else said something. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, no. And um, it turns out since then, I mean, I think we've all learned Texas is kind of a hotbed for a lot of UFO and military activity, right? I tell people I live in the jumbo state where, you do. The, where those ufos come out to play yeah they do and it's, <laughs> it's funny. a texas state yeah I mean, you yeah. know it's it's uh new mexico gets all the attention but the fact is there's a lot of activity yes. that is both ufo and military and combined the presence of both Absolutely. a lot in the state of texas have you ever figured out why that is well i don't i think because we we have this big area on land in texas that just probably I can't say totally explored. Just not of people don't live there. Right. So it's, it's a very great, open. yeah. So it's a great place, uh, even with hiring talents to know if they want to travel somewhere and not mm-hmm. be seen. They probably do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure that's probably a lot of hidden military installations that they are observing. Right. It's probably in those places. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's got a lot of undercurrent things happening. Yeah, it does. A lot of cases come out of there. So when did you become aware that there were people talking about it, but they're all white? Oh. There actually was a whole field dedicated to that, talking about a whole about world, it. A whole world <laughs> yes. dedicated to it. But being African-American, you weren't aware of that world. I wasn't. Let's say I I, I saw it. I, I knew what I wasn't seeing. And I didn't have an answer at that time to why. 
And, and it didn't dawn on me now until I've done more research and, and understand cultural lenses and when it comes down to these things. But back then, yeah, it's all you saw was white people. And so you did think that that was it. They just extraterrestrials weren't abducting us. Why? Why not? <laughs> and then I had my own running joke. You know, it's like, okay, we done been on ships in the past. We're not getting on another ship without a destination, period. So you're not getting me on one. So maybe they knew that. <laughs> so I don't know. I just thought... It was just kind of weird. It stood there. And, you know, you just left it to the side. Then it became a reality. Then yeah. that's when I knew. Yeah. Well, it turns out maybe they were. Well, I, I think yes. And and I will believe that. And I believe that's those untold stories that's out there. Okay. So let's talk about at this time, the community, you had credibility that mm-hmm. you were working with. You have the entire white world working against you and trying mm-hmm. to make you less credible. Right. right. As as a group. And so you're doing everything you can to just build credibility to function in the United States, get educations, do your jobs and so forth. You don't need this kind of embarrassment to come around in your community and yeah. in your background and talk about it. Right. So if you refer back to someone reporting a UFO. Mm-hmm. OK, so let's go back into think even white people then mm-hmm. was being ridiculed for that. Yes, they were. Yeah, so uh, both sides would be ridiculed. But then when it comes down to an African-American community where they're seen a little less, a little less credible, then therefore uh, it's just not going to fan out with all of that. So mm-hmm. now when you think about that as far as a black person and saying, okay, I'm going to not only go and report this UFO sighting. And mm-hmm. and we're and you already seem less credible on any other situations. And and so why just, bother? Why bother? Uh but then there's uh that other factor, you know, so think about back then, if we're going back into the fifties and sixties, you know, there was a lot of insult to injury. There was a lot of other stuff to worry about that was oh, yeah. bigger in that trench walk to report something like that. So right. you could have been hung. You could have been lynched. There's a, just a lot of other variables. Nevertheless, as an insane person. As an insane person. So you'll probably have a guaranteed don't pass, go, don't get out of jail, free car. I mean, you're going to go, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to be seen crazy, period. So, mm-hmm. and that would just been like an added bonus. So it was like what the whites at that time were doing, but on steroids in terms of it's a potential effect. Yeah. Interestingly, now just let's set the stage a bit. Mm-hmm. So in the 1950s and early 60s, you had a lot of these visitations uh, in bell-shaped craft, beautiful people mm-hmm. from Venus. You have George Adamski, you have Howard Menger, um, Frank Strangis writing about Stranger at the Pentagon and the beautiful Val Thor and his, the people he came with. These are just all, be- all white, all beautiful, mm-hmm. um, well, well suited out. And they came to deliver messages, Val Thor. Mm-hmm. Read it, said, it said that he lived in, in a chamber in a room at the Pentagon for a couple of years. Yes. And he had regular conversations with President Eisenhower. Uh, Admiral Byrd's nephew worked there high clearance mm-hmm. and said, this is true. He was there and this did happen. And so they came with these messages like you need to stop warring with each other, mm-hmm. stop polluting the place and eat better and you're going to live a long time. Which, Simple which messages. Probably the message I didn't get. Well, maybe you didn't get that one. The eat better message <laughs> did not get filtered down. And I'm the result of new disclosure from Balfour. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to push that narrative. <laughs> <laughs> so these were kind of 
uh, cautionary tales mm-hmm. done in a polite way. Now, this is where a black man did come in. You have Betty and Barney Hill. Yes. And that's one of the most famous abductions in history. And it's probably because it was the first one that was talked about as such, right? Right. So here you have them abducted. Mm-hmm. Now the story changes. You're not talking about gentlemanly and womanly, gentlewomanly Venusians coming here to right. deliver an important message. Now you're talking about hostile activity. Yes. Seemingly hostile activity. So let's talk about that and how that did or didn't change anything for blacks. I don't think it changed anything. It didn't move the needle at all. Um, because anytime you still have... Uh, let's just say the interracial couple thing. Right. That still doesn't validate right. that whole situation just because it was just a little That's bit. That's true. So many people were prejudiced just yeah. at the relationship. And, and there you go. So we're not going to really uh, take that into consideration of being something positive for sure. Uh, so when you think about Betty's background, I think she had enough clout in the community uh, to at least to validate Barney being with her in that particular mm-hmm. abduction. So until they were uh, interviewed where people start saying, wait a minute, the evidence is lining up that this actually could have happened. Mm-hmm. But still in the African-American community, it's not something that was p- plastered over black newspapers, you know, in those black communities where we would have read that or studied that or black scientists or people would have been involved in that same uh, scientific stuff. So it was just kind of hushed. You just did you, you the yeah. people didn't even know about it really. No, I mean if you think about it, for me personally, I mm-hmm. read the story later on in my career, mm-hmm. uh, and it still just stuck out. But it did, you know, hang out there a little bit. But like, okay, this is an African American guy. But then when I started digging deeper, that's when I noticed there was a whole lot of things that could have been left out, uh, which started my personal plight to uncover these things. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go into the community itself. So you have the heavily religious aspect of mm-hmm. the African American community. Now, we can even line this up with the heavily religious part of the Caucasian community. Yes. So let's talk about what happens when there's religion, deep religious beliefs involved, especially for African Americans, because I think it's quite different than for whites. Yeah, I think so. You have to start with how we got here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you if you think of the story of us being brought here, stripped from the history of whatever our beliefs were, now you have this belief that we're being taught uh, at this point, Christianity for me. Um, and then you start hearing, here's the book, here's how this works. Okay, so now that's already kind of disconnected anyway. So you still have this, Mm, you know, curiosity of mm-hmm. what we're currently dealing with. And all of a sudden, now you have this new element, mm-hmm. this new outer space element, mm-hmm. this new potential, the world is big thing, or there's people from other places and who are their gods or what do they believe in? Uh, are they transplanted here? Are they brought here? Or just all of this thing begin to stir the pot. But when you start thinking about community side now, so let's say, okay, we have a report of a UFO. And and, and I take it into my own personal account, my own story I'll share with you. But when you start hearing about an African-American community, it's taboo. No, it can't be. There's nothing else besides our our new God. Yes, uh, there's nothing else. I mean, this is absolute. The word is the word. Because that's how it's taught. That's how it's taught. And even from being 
a young kid. Now, for me, I had already had the different experience that there's something else there Mm -hmm. from my experience. And not everyone have had that experience, so they say. And, And so, therefore, I was already kind of curious. And especially my mom was always, hey, you you stick into this word. The word is the absolute. Mm-hmm. And then one day I came across the scripture, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Um, Let's make man in our image, in the likeness of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been to school. I understand ours plural. Ourselves <laughs> mean more than one. And I'm like, unless we got a delusional God now. You know, oh, yeah, Genesis 1 and 2 are quite interesting to rub together. And so I'm going, so I go to my mom, and I'm like, hey, what is this? And, of course, it's the Trinity. It's all of this mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So you just shelve it. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. But then when I got a full-grown adult, I can talk for myself. I'm not going to get in trouble. No punishments behind mm-hmm. me voicing my thoughts now, <laughs> you know. And I pay my own bills. And mm-hmm. so for this point, I go, mom, that is not that. Right. You know? And so... And that's threatening to her. Yeah, I mean, I have a, this past Thanksgiving, I was at my mom's, um, or last year, and I had a UFO book. Mm -hmm. And literally, I had it sitting in front of the microwave. She walks into the kitchen. She says, move that. Now, we're probably closer than you are. (laughs) I'm not touching it. (laughs) And I'm like, just give it to me. I'll put it up. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking what she's truly saying. Yeah. Move it. And I said, well, just hand it to me. She wouldn't touch it. It was a big book that said UFOs, and and that's when uh, it was probably about your yeah the last one, and that's when I said, wait a minute, it's time for you to go deeper into the cultural lens of this. Mm-hmm. And I had already just got out of a marriage, a divorce, and in my marriage, although our issues had issues, mm-hmm. um, one in particular was I could not talk about this. UFO things in the house, right? And if, and then when I told her I wanted to pursue it as a career. Of interest, mm-hmm. uh, she just was not in agreement. Mm-hmm. But as of today, now that I've studied, I've done 400 interviews, mm-hmm. you know, and seen this thing from a cultural lens, it wasn't her fault, not even close. Yeah. She just could not uh, bear with that from the cultural lens. Let me ask you about that because as you're talking, I'm thinking, wait a minute. So, a people being taken from their home, brought over here, treated mm-hmm. very, very poorly, to say the least. Yes. Um, to this day, Still not being able to just walk down the street and be viewed equally with another person mm-hmm. beside them, which is just unfair and heinous on every level. And you think you introduce religion and especially the New Testament and the fact that Jesus is going to save you. Jesus is here to save mm-hmm. you. The amount of faith and hope that would have to go into that belief for African Americans compared to whites. Mm-hmm is a whole other order of magnitude, I would think. I mean, believing it with all your heart that it's going to be better one day and it's going to be better on the other side because this side's not looking too easy or too good a lot of times. I'm just feeling that to rock that on any level could be very challenging because the need for the belief that it's all going to be okay in the end is so powerful. Well, Regina, I think you're, you're making a valid point when it comes down to that. Uh, But what is changing in all of this? Let's divide the community and religious things into young people Mm -hmm. and older people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, changing. So now we have the younger people who are probably, and I'm not speaking for everybody, okay, just what most that I know, are now being what I consider emotionally 
and religiously bankrupt. So it does leave the door open for the possibility and curiosity of this other thing, this new phenomenon, right. consciousness and, you know, fourth density, all these other, there's just something else bigger here. But the other section, people are my age and, and above, no, it's, this is not, this is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. This is it because you're still needing and wanting the faith and all that to work. Right. So now you embed this new, uh, there's possible aliens, extraterrestrials. Oh, that's possibility that some data one brought us here. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, people ask all the time, Robert, what do the ETs look like? And then I say, I don't know if you want my answer. And I'm glad you just asked me. And I say, well, what if we look like them? And I usually just shock them, period. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I, I'm real careful with that. Uh, but my job is to provide information that people can read, that they can see, mm-hmm. that they could um, think about to awaken their curiosity uh, just to the possibility that we're not alone in this universe. Because although I believe we are, are not alone, uh, but the, you just don't you don't press that up on anyone, especially if they're still trying to figure out right. a religious right, life. Right. Am I doing this right? Is this thing even working? Am I for going me? to heaven when it's all done? Yeah. <clears throat> and, and okay, so now you take the next thing of mm-hmm. once people are considering themselves being woke, mm-hmm. now the thought of reincarnation comes in mm-hmm. and all of that. Oh, How's that, that playing the black community? Reincarnation. Well, that's I mean, another taboo. Yeah. Uh, because we are mostly told, and mostly everyone in religion are yeah. told that, hey, you're going to go and get that mansion. Mm-hmm. In heaven. So, you what know. is the split yeah, in the so. community now between religious and sectarian? We know youth is a factor. Mm-hmm. So, what is that split, and is it starting to seep in through the youth and through youth that are maybe looking at other ways of viewing um, other religions of the world, Eastern philosophies, and so forth? No, I don't. I don't think it's. I think religion itself is being pushed in the younger generation to a side. Period. Okay. Yeah. Not so being replaced with. Other no. philosophies and people are now trying to rely off of meditation, consciousness, or mm-hmm. spirit being, or mm-hmm. being communicated by some mm-hmm. higher force within themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think, and that's something easier to 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 deal with mm-hmm. because of the fact that it's something they could feel. Okay, and it leaves you open to question a lot of things that you can't mm-hmm. question from the other perspective. Yeah, and and that leads us into the paranormal. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. So that leads us into ghost mm-hmm. paranormal versus ETs, aliens. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been doing some research trying to figure out, OK, or could they be one of the same? How do we know the difference between a ghost can walk through the walls and now we knowing ETs can walk through walls, mm-hmm. all this other density things? Um, of course, I grew up in a community at one point of time, a ghost is deemed you know, bad. A demon. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you start thinking about that uh, and then you go, where does this come from? Why are we thinking this way? However, our ancestors, we're we're taught, you know, meditating, feel the spirits. And um, when someone dies in our family, oh, I can feel them. They was here yesterday, you know, all of these things. So that gives us at least not a lot of fear in the paranormal except for where this ghost thing comes. So, for example, let's say I got a ghost in my house. Okay. I don't, but let's say I do. And I'm not saying I don't want one. 
but they come over to Ghostbusters, come to the house. And I said, Roderick, you got this ghost upstairs. And I'm like, get rid of this ghost because this is, I can't handle it. It's bad. But what if they come back and say, that's your grandmother? Mm-hmm. The spirit upstairs is yeah. your grandmother. And this is something that was brought from Africa was the understanding of ancestors mm-hmm. and that they continue after death yeah. and they're there to guide you, which the Christian white communities don't have. There you go. And so now I had to make a, a decision of, okay, wait a minute. So this thing upstairs that was bothering me, making these noises, and I'm afraid of, I yeah. brought you in, and now you sense my grandmother who gave me milk and cookies, uh-huh. and I'm supposed to say, oh, just let her stay up there. <laughs> and I'm like, no, granny got to go, because I don't want no ghost in my house. <laughs> you know, so it's it's so now we take in the ET side. Okay, so how do we believe in that? And I think it comes just now to the simplicity of people have not seen an ET. They not everyone have seen a UFO and those who have experienced abductions or contacting with a night sleep paralysis, all those things are not talking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's where it takes us from that experience to why is the African-American community in most cases are not educated on the phenomena in that way, because that's. You only get educated through experience. Right. And the community does have, like you say, the natural mm-hmm. phenomena of understanding mm-hmm. Granny's still around just because her body died doesn't mean she's not right. here. You have practices in the South that were brought from Africa, witchcraft and voodoo and things yes. that are practiced. And these are phenomena. Mm-hmm. And they actually work. I mean, they're phenomena that mm-hmm. are actually effective. And so, you know, and you look at why, you know, well, you can't, I mean, there are thousands of reasons why that was brought over with everybody. It was just part of the culture. But to accept these things fairly naturally and to have a healthy bunny ears up, healthy suspicions about what's going on around you and instincts about that for sure survival. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have your bunny ears up probably more than I do. My bunny ears stay up with an extra set of ears, some antennas, radar scopes, you name it, all of those things. Because... Even me as an investigator and in my community, I still have a challenge. I mean, I still can approach uh, and and I do investigate both sides. So I'll get people that are white and say, hey, or all races. uh, Can you look at this? Mm -hmm. You know, but then you still have to say, okay, still it's got a credible uh, credibility thing because I'm black telling them about, yeah, Mm -hmm. what you saw is this or maybe it's not that, Mm -hmm. especially if. I'm the one that gives them the bad news of mm-hmm. what they thought they saw right. was not, not that. that. Oh my God. It is like, I can't tell you how many no, times. And suddenly race comes in. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you just get it. It's like, well, who are you? I, you know, and it, it has nothing to do with the training and different things I received, uh, working with MUFON and a lot of those different organizations. It's, it's now back to who's telling me this and how do you know? Because you're not challenging their experience. You're challenging more than that because Mm -hmm. people tend to want to believe, especially when it gets down to these experiences. Mm -hmm. And I've learned now to truly establish this new way when I'm talking and communicating Mm -hmm. people with these experiences. Because Mm -hmm. one thing most people want is, Regina, is for you to believe them. Yeah. Uh, In most cases, no one else would. Okay, so I've now developed this thing called I Believe You Believe. I'm actually writing a book about it, Mm -hmm. but it's more or less saying, okay, Regina, you come to me and say, Roderick, there is a leprechaun over there behind the dumpster. 
Now I'm looking at the dumpster and you're saying, do you see the rainbows? There's gold in a leprechaun. I have two choices. I can turn around and, and we have a relationship or not. I can say, well, I don't see it. And then you look at me and you want the honest truth. Do you believe me? That's a whole different thing. <laughs> but my new technique, mm-hmm. which is still from the heart, yeah. it says, Regina, I believe you believe that there's something there. And for that reason, I'm going to go on a journey with you. I think that's very important yes. to validate people. And if mm-hmm. you talk to Tana Sellowell, she lives with leprechauns and she'll tell you all okay. about them. There you go. They mess with her. <laughs> so, there you go. I just, you just have to say, hey, I believe yeah. you believe it. And I think if any of the family members, people who have people that say they're being abducted mm-hmm. or, or, or they come across that, is to begin to indicate them through an honesty. I don't see this. But I trust you as an individual, not what you say you saw or the things. And plus, I can't validate your experience anyway. Right, exactly. But because the love and the trust that I have for you, mm-hmm. I believe you believe it happened to you. And so, therefore, I'm going to go on this journey. We're going to investigate We're this. going to investigate it. Yeah. I, I brought that up because the whole notion of the bunny ears is if you you have to be alert. You have to have eyes in the back of your head just to go through life safely, mm-hmm. right? That also pumps up a person's intuition. I mean, that is part of the intuitive faculty. Mm -hmm. So I would think that on one level, reaching in and communicating with a group of people that has this sensitivity elevated, Mm -hmm. it must be happening and just people aren't talking about it. Well, are you meaning for in our community about Mm -hmm. what's happening? Yeah. I think that, um, for example, there was one person I was talking with and I was trying to do this survey on the street. That's what I called it. And a lady came back and she says, my grandmother, who was a kid, saw a UFO, you know, out in the cotton fields that flew to them. And I was like, really? And I said, well, did you believe your grandmother? She says, well, my mother didn't believe her, but I did. And so at that point, I'm tr- I was trying to figure out what was the disconnect between the mother wouldn't believe her mother but the granddaughter believed mm-hmm. the grandmother. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the age gap between, so the time that this younger person is now is involved with this, and religion is a little bankrupt, it's not working out the way most people think it would for them, and not saying that it doesn't. This opened up the curiosity of something else that the grandmother Probably. So it allowed her mind to be a little loosened. And this is why if you ever, anyone watches some of my podcasts or things, mm-hmm. so you'd always end it and I'll say, your eyes are useless when your mind is blind. It's yeah. time to think why. Because if, if you don't begin to get curious mm-hmm. and ask them the why questions, then the narrative stays the same. So mm-hmm. what narrative has been passed down anyway? So let's say even with the white community itself, this thing is a joke. You know, you're going to get laughed at. You're going to, and so now let's say you stand an African American person right next to a white person and a white person. They both say okay, we both saw a UFO. Let's go in this room. We're going to tell everybody about it, but I'm going to go first. The white person said, I'm going to go first. They go through that door and all you hear is, ah, boo, laugh. And 
come back out, the white person looks at the black, your turn. No, hell no, I'm not going in there. <laughs> I'm not going in there. You know, and regardless, look at what they did to, to you. you. <laughs> and, I watch. Yeah, I watch. I'm, I'm, matter of fact, I ain't telling nobody. This yeah. is my secret, you know. So yeah. those are the same things yeah. that are happening. But then there's something flip side to that now. Now the stories are becoming okay to talk about. Mm-hmm. The stories are being told, books, documentaries, but our history in this is left out. Yeah, and let's talk about, first of all, I want to mm-hmm. add one thing, and then I want to go yeah. into the more, the deeper history of it. Mm-hmm. Billy Carson. Yes. He, he, his aunt and mother were abducted. Okay. And a lot of, Billy feels that a lot of what he was born with and a lot of his abilities at a very young mm-hmm. age were as a result of whatever happened to the his mom and his aunt. So, I mean... They're black. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that at least we know of a couple of people who were abducted that we there can There you name. go. That's two. Yeah. <laughs> there's two. And there's plenty more out there. And there's but plenty yeah. more. So yeah. let's go into the deeper history. Okay. So let's think about, um, first of all, I think most people don't even know. You've heard a song, Sweet Low. Oh, yeah. Swing My low, dad sweet used to. Charity, I don't know why he used to sing me those spirituals. Yeah. But he did. It is known as a spiritual song. Yeah. Now, I'm not validating this totally, completely, but I've got enough research to validate what I'm about to say. Coming for to carry me home. That was an old slave song mm-hmm. when they was in shackles mm-hmm. back in the day. But just think of the context of the word. Swing low. Low, sweet chariot. Okay, so swing low would be identified as something up above. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to swing down here and pick me up. Right. Then the second phase goes in, as I was watching over the Jordan, mm-hmm. these angels that comes across the water. Mm-hmm. So we know today. Coming to carry me home. Coming to carry me home. So obviously there could possibly been some abductions. But that song uh, is probably originated from slaves seeing extraterrestrial mm-hmm. ships or something back into the day. Mm-hmm. I'm still checking deeper into it. But mm-hmm. most of most of all of our songs are from history like that is based from some experience in reality of something. Mm-hmm. But for the use of context, chariot, and we know even back in some of the Emerald Tablets, all of those things, the word chariot was yes. used for oh, spacecraft. And you have Eric Von Daniken. There you go. There you go. So swing low, sweet chariot. You know, so please. Come in to get me. <laughs> come come get, get me. Come please. and get me out of this Get me stuff. out of here. Yeah. yeah. And so those are songs in history, but we don't really talk about that much. Right. Uh, we can go back into the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, yes. Yes, okay. do. Um, World War II. Yeah. The Red Tails uh, were these fighters that were well-known protecting uh, or the bombers. Um, and they became one of those organizations that was actually requested due to the fact of their record. But in that was a story within the story. One of the red tails who went on and had a 28 year career is named Robert Friend. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he became a, a captain in a, a U.S. Air Force and, and went on, but he actually became the head of Blue Book. Project Blue Book. From 1958 to 1963. Yes. Now I have watched many documentaries. And he was black. And he was black. Yep. And I've watched many of these stories. Okay. So I never see him in it. You probably hear about it one, maybe time, but not in the full blown story of Project Blue Book. Well, you know, they had the series that ran. You didn't, you, they didn't I never saw him. One time. Not one time. Now, here, here's the other caveat to this, Regina. When you start thinking about, okay, 
It was a laughing matter in 1958. It was a joke. No one wanted to tag their career connected to a UFO project. Who or what? And if they still needed it investigated, this is just my. Oh, I, I see where you're going. Okay. If we're going to ruin somebody's career. Ruin someone. Yeah. Let's, let, let's ruin his career. Let's ruin his career. Yeah. And we can probably get him to go along with whatever we're trying to oh. get. We can threaten his career. We can. There's a whole lot of possibilities. And then Heinick comes along. And Heinick comes home. Well, mm-hmm. after him was another minority, Quintanilla. Didn't hear about him either. Didn't hear about him either. So. Now Heineck comes along, mm-hmm. and now today, because now it, the history of it is becoming a great thing, mm-hmm. that story is totally left out. It's totally left now, out. Now, my belief is that there was probably African Americans on the same ships, mm-hmm. the same bases, when all these orbs and military was going, the abduction stories, all of these things were probably, again, left out due to the season of the atmosphere that we were in. Mm-hmm. And so now my job today is trying to uncover that. And some people could say, well, Roderick, what difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference because it's going to validate even more experiences, even our counterparts and other people are having. Because now, as Bob Salas would say, and he's the U.S. captain, yes. that was one of the minute men. You know, mm-hmm. I interviewed him right. and talked to him on the phone. And he says, right. Roderick, he says, it's time to trust the witnesses. It is. I, cu- I couldn't agree more. It's says time to trust the witnesses. And if we can do that, including him, including him, now we can get a better. So I think that all of these things that's happening, all of this disclosure, these amendment acts and is now going to validate whole stories. And let's go back and get those stories. OK, uh, especially in the community. Uh, and then I think by having other these stories to surface. And then as myself being a pioneer in this thing, trying to go through the ridicule that I go through in mm-hmm. most cases, mm-hmm. um, but get to be trusted where more African-Americans are coming forward. Now the stories of history is coming. It may even some military secrets come out. You know, we could have the Bob Lazars in our community because we had scientists. We have a lot of people that it was closed minded and we may can get more information. And I do believe it's there. I have been getting phone calls now. I'm getting emails. I would like to get out there bigger with it uh, so that we can bring that in. And I think it's there. No, I think it's a very valid um, endeavor, a mm-hmm. worthy endeavor. And not only that, um, again, this whole, you know, lack of inclusivity, even down to something like um, UFO sightings and abductions mm-hmm. is now getting to the point where it's just stupid. In this day and age, with a production like that, Paul Heineck, who mm-hmm. we've had here, him here for really? too. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, for people that aren't aware of what we're talking about, then go to my interviews with Paula Harris, yeah. Paula Harris and talking about, um, uh, Project Blue Book and Alan Heineck and the whole backstory to it. So during that series that the History Channel aired, I think it was the most watched show they ever aired. And, wow. And then they canceled it. Yeah. yeah, they canceled it. And I thought, what just happened here? Because it actually was getting a little truth out amidst mm. all of the hyperbole and the drama and such. But you're right. Absolutely nothing about Robert Friend or anyone else involved mm-hmm. in that. It was all white military. And, and now only because it's popular. And because it's popular. And it's history. Yeah. It's, it's important. Right. Uh, and we don't want to tarnish something that's important. And, and that's what I deal with today because – 
I try to bring a little more humor in yeah. this, right? So I laugh all the time. People yeah. say, well, you know how they had this report. Oh, maybe women are saying that they're being pregnant by, you know, extraterrestrials. So I sit there and go, well, okay. Well, who's going to pay child support for these babies? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Who, I mean, they'll take me to court. In well, a they heartbeat. usually apparently take the babies from them, so I guess they are. But the ones that are left here. So imagine some woman going and filling out some assistance <laughs> and saying, hey, you know, daddy is an alien. Well, right. it used to be probably. They make a phone call. We got another one of these idiots. Now we got another one. We got another one. What's happening out here? You know what I'm saying? So we need to check into this. And so. Right. You, it's, so my, my thing is, it's going to be the norm. It's a lot of this is going to be the norm. And you spoke earlier about Valent Thor and how he came to mm-hmm. rescue right. society. Mm-hmm. And sometime on my podcast, I'll do this audience thing and I'll ask him, I say, okay, all of you now brand new on Exxon, you're all of going to, you, you have made your billions yet, but you had just now got on the board. You're about to make your billion dollars. Another ET walks into the board of Exxon and says, Hey, I know you guys are controlling oil production and it's polluting the planet, but I'm going to give you this free recipe for free energy. Oh, yeah, we're clapping, congratulating. And to the whisper, <laughs> that didn't happen. And to the whisper says, you know, we're not going to make our money. And you start thinking, wait a minute, free energy, no billions, free energy, no billions. Mm. Lock the door, <laughs> you know, free energy, no billions. And He's not going to get out of the room alive. And that's exactly, that's what happened is in the end, Eisenhower said it would bankrupt our economy. And what other ET in another planet would be told, hey, you're going to go over there and free Earth. He's going, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) You know, what happened to the last person that we sit there? He didn't even come back, you know. Okay, but it's happening. Okay, so this is what I find interesting. And this, I think, will go across the board. It doesn't matter who you are in the world, what race you are. We didn't listen to any of those messages. Right, right. Okay. And yet there's a lot of, there are a lot of different civilizations out there actually pulling for us yeah. to get through this and to make the right decision to, to evolve because we're an incre- at the core, an incredibly creative species. Absolutely. Humans are really beautiful and unique if we can get out of our own way on some of this dumb stuff. So What's happening now, and I'm interviewing also a woman named, I have interviewed, named Linda Backman. Okay. Dr. Linda Backman, psychologist, um, who backed into this. It happened kind of accidentally. Like she started hearing us, right? the stories. Yeah. Exactly. And she said, you know, half the people, almost 60% of the clients coming now, she said, when I take them into a regression, Michael Newton, you know, Destiny of Souls, that was her mm. mentor. Actually, they taught together. Wow. 60% of these people are saying, yeah, I'm somewhere else. It looks like I wasn't, I didn't start here and they're going and remembering their lives on other planets. Now, my hypothesis is because we didn't listen, more and more of these entities, anybody can incarnate in a human vehicle, body. Yes. They're starting to incarnate as humans and they're very different. They're going to be, the next generations are going to be totally different mentally, emotionally. They're going to learn differently. Some will appear very autistic and socially inept. And I think we've got tons of them incarnating all across the globe into all of our communities. Or either that or either, you know how they say that we need to wake up and and have a little more open and conscious. Maybe they turn in on the tap a little more so we remember. I think that too. As more as well too. And, 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 And that's the only way that they can get us to say, okay, this is what we do know. 
And this is what now you can remember. Yeah, the past. I, yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, if if you have more of them incarnate, because we're all from somewhere else. Yeah. So, you know, so what? If you have more of them coming right now and a little saturation, we've got to give them over this little bump. We're in a little critical phase yeah. of chaos. Let's get them over the bump and then we'll go back to where we came from and yeah, others will incarnate. But just enough to seed really important concepts. And, but I think religion will double down on that too, though. Oh, I think they, I think they, they will. will. Double down. But it's already to, losing yeah. ground. Yeah. It is losing ground because it's pedantic and not allowing for any other story. And that you know, for the better and the worse, the world's moving on to other stories, too. But I have a question for you, though. Have you thought about, like, I meet a lot of people that are star seeds. Mm-hmm. Or That's they, what I'm talking or they, about. Yeah, and they discover that yep. they're star seeds. But in, in the beginning, they was confused. They were mm-hmm. feeling, like you said before, out of place. They didn't belong here and all of this. A lot of, a lot of times they'll have and weird birth defects and disorders physically. So my, my question is, why would the extraterrestrial allow that to happen to the star seeds if they are that medium between where we're going? Why would they give them so much confusion? Why would they allow this to the chosen of the I hear you. I mean, I think if you're going to incarnate as human, you're coming in with the same lack of memory as everyone else. You all get the same thing. You don't remember a thing. And you got to figure it out once you get here. And the ones who are um, perhaps a little closer to the surface of higher mind can remember more quickly. Others are just confused till something. They get in a car wreck at 30, and then they see their people and remember why they're here. I mean, what a mess. It's not an efficient way to do things, I don't it's think. It's not. And, and it's but, like just the confusion of Well, it. if yeah. you're a soul, though, who doesn't know war and who doesn't know division, if you're a soul who only understands collaboration and love and helping one another and you're incarnating into a physical body, you're not going to bring any of those imprints. You're not going to resonate with any of that. You're going to start a society that's more collaborative and peaceful. And I think more of those beings are being born also with with high technology um, that is going to be needed here. Free energy, we already know it's here. Yeah. And we know that they could have had it ages ago if it wasn't to disrupt our economic structures. Yeah, it will probably, you're talking, free energy will break the world down as yes. we know it. You're talking global, I mean, yes. jobs and security, everything that just... Yes, yeah. and there was just a big event a couple months ago in Silicon Valley where... They showed a cold fusion operational little device and lo and behold, a few days later, um, I think JPL or something came out with their own. We've got ours, oh. you know, going into competition already. The point is it's already here. So anyway, and, and we can yeah. use a term that says it's not going to ever see the light. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's hope it does. And I yes. think, I think some of the new people and a lot of those new people being born are us. We're just recycling yeah. ourselves too. And people like yourself. I mean, exactly. allowing other people to come sharing your, mm-hmm. your platform, allowing the message to be reached. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the, the stir of not a revolt, but just change. Absolute and, transformation. Yeah. I think that's well needed. Of humans. So you're doing an awesome job. Well, thank you. And so are you, my friends. So you. thank you so much. Any final thought before we sign off here? Well, other than that, just tell everyone your yeah. eyes are useless when your mind is blind. You have to think why. We got to get past the point where we see things, but our mind won't let us interpret it. And yes. so if we can work there, yeah. then we can understand, we can see better through these narratives yep. 
as well as the future that we need to go. And it doesn't mean we have to give up our faith no, in the beautiful no. and amazing forces that are here to help us. Yes. You know, in the creator. We don't have to give up faith in any of that. Yes. In order to be more inclusive of the vastness of what is. And openly, it won't be a black and white thing. No. It will be an extraterrestrial new life, new horizon. Yeah. And both sides can say, you know what? This is for all of us. And, exactly. and these ETs will probably say, you're all of one people. That's right. Because that's the message in the end. That'll be the message in the end. <laughs> Roderick, thank you so much for taking time. Thank to you be for here. having me. You're so welcome. All right. For more of Roderick's work, you can go to his YouTube channel, Why the Big Secret. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Wow. I was just reading up here on the news, MSNBC, just a few minutes ago, and I stopped it there. And the Canadian defense minister was on the air with Amen. Uh, he's, uh, his last name, Moyeldon, I think. Moyeldon. Anyway. Yeah. Amen. He's, he's, Irregular, but uh, the Canadian defense minister said it's the first time Nora has shot down an object which is unidentified and flying at 40,000 feet. Called, I mean, if you put those words together, it's an unidentified flying object, uh, whatever it is, and um. This is just a synchronous time we're getting we're getting to realize something beyond us that does live and share and walk with us. And so we'll take a break now and we'll see you in just about 10 or 15 and uh we'll have a look at the stars and we'll play some music and we'll have our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha Namaste for now, everybody. Namaste. Got the talking stick to you, Richard. Testing, one, two. Working well, Commander. All right. We'll take a look. Uh, take a look at the solar system, a.k.a. the Lord's house. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. All right. So, where we usually start. All right. We got Pluto conjunct Mars. Mars is at 2 and Pluto's at 30 Capricorn. All right. That's conjunction 1. Conjunction 2 is Sun at 24 with... Saturn at 28 Aquarius, that's four degrees apart. Conjunction three is Venus conjunct Neptune in Pisces, Mm -hmm. they're four degrees apart. Conjunction four is Jupiter with Chiron, and they're five degrees apart. Conjunction six or five 
is Uranus in the North Node, and they're eight degrees apart, and Venus is all by itself in Gemini at 14 degrees. But the Sun is trine Mars, and Venus is square Mars, and Jupiter is sextile Mars, and that's difficult, for lack of a better term. <laughs> yes. What was the third one? Venus conjunct Neptune. Okay. At 20, 20 degrees for for Venus and 24 for Neptune. And they're, they're opposite. <laughs> this is weird. They're opposite my Virgo, Venus, and Mars. Whoops. <laughs> Over there in Virgo. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a challenge. That, well, eventually you become skilled enough where certain energies don't push you around. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem is, see, the problem is, is evil, see, evil is obvious, right? Yep. <laughs> but stupidity is much more difficult to, to deal with. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we... We we can we can we can all see the the evil running around, and uh, but well, see, stupid is just so much more difficult to deal with. Yeah, the evil ones are operating against their own best interest, and they're stupid enough to not know the better thing about that. Well, yes, and that's 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 because they're 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 self centered. And they're, they're not in charity. They're not in goodness towards the neighbor. No. They're not nice. Uh-uh. And that's why they find themselves often in hellish conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know who I got a lot of a lot of sympathy for this week. Mm. <laughs> I have a lot. I've, you know, I've been I've been working on this uh, Swedenborg material. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 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 folks the folks in the fifth kingdom or the spiritual kingdom or the kingdom of the Lord, whatever you want to call it, they've got a whole lot of new arrivals that they've got to they've got to sort sort and, and deal with. I mean, you're oh. talking about 25,000 new arrivals above and beyond the average arrival rate. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know what the average death rate is planet-wide. Let's say it's 25,000. Now they've got another... Uh, double the number of, of folks that they've got to deal with, right? 
Yeah, because and most, yeah. And most of them are, are very confused because they either don't believe in an afterlife or if they do, I mean, it takes, according to, according to Swedenborg, it takes a little bit of time for the new arrivals to get oriented to their new condition. Mm. So, you know, we'll send, send a prayer to heaven. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Let's go listen to our Kaipacha. Okay. Kaipachi here with the weekly Pele report. Made it down to Chapman Point, South Africa, outside Cape Town. Sneaking away. Look at this. Look at this. I'm coming down here to Hout Bay. I think is the name of it. Looking up at those stars at night. With that full moon, she's been arising. It's just absolutely beautiful. That moon is now in Virgo. We had the full moon in Leo, square Uranus. I think some of you will not forget. <laughs> and she's uh, she stays in Virgo until Thursday. Yeah, where she goes into Libra. And uh, where she then stays, transits through Libra right on through until Saturday, goes into Scorpio, and we have then the third quarter square moon, yeah, on next Monday. And, yeah, that's an interesting Sabian symbol. I don't know if I'm going to read that or not. There's so much going on today. I mean, really, the big thing that I really want to be talking about is Mercury conjunct Pluto. Okay, is coming up. I want to just like uh, come down over here a little bit, show you the rest of this bay because it's so gorgeous, right? Uh, yeah. So Mercury conjunct Pluto, and that's an interesting Sabian symbol. Okay, that happens exactly on Friday at the 29th degree of Capricorn. And then uh, Venus is up there in Aquarius. I, I mean, uh, Venus is over there in uh, Pisces coming up to Neptune. You can see all this on the chart, but I'm going to read it out anyway. Uh, that is an exact conjunction at the 25th degree of Pisces on the 15th, next Wednesday. And then it is the sun coming up to conjunct Saturn. That is in Aquarius. And that is at the 28th degree, a week from Thursday. So you can see these, it's, you know, it's three little conjunctions there. Mercury, Pluto, and Capricorn, Sun, Saturn, and Aquarius, and Venus, Neptune, 
in Pisces. That's what I really want to be talking about. And then, of course, you know, the moon is, you know, coming through, uh, aspecting all of those uh, through this week. But the big thing uh, other than that is after Mercury conjuncts with Pluto, uh, he does move into Aquarius on Saturday. So we've got, uh, that is the energy. Uh, we're at this uh, disseminating phase of the moon is what we call it. Okay, that is uh, after full goes to disseminating until she, uh, she comes around for that third quarter square. Yeah. And, um, yeah, let's just uh, let me find a little place out of the wind uh, where I can uh, talk to you and tell you all about it. Venus, Neptune in Pisces. What's going on over there? I hope the sound is all right. Wind's not too much. Water's not too much. It's so beautiful here. I hope you can see what I can see. Anyway, the astrology for these days and this mantra that I have for today, there's a lot to be talking about here. We look at these three conjunctions and it's very phenomenal to have these three happening all at the same time. We know there's no accidents. We know there's no coincidence. It's all a great spiritual setup. What are we being set up for today? We're being set up for decisions. Decisions that build character. Ultimately, we are the deciders with our free will and our free choices just who and what we are going to be. Our character is determined by our choices. Mercury in Capricorn has to do with some choices. And actually, it's really Saturn. The sun coming up, approaching a conjunction with Saturn. Saturn says, decide. Set your goals. Set your priorities. Make a commitment or break a commitment, decide who you are, what you're going to be, what you're going to decide is going to shape your future, and it's going to tell the world who you are. This is a disaster out here. <laughs> I'm having to decide how to do this freaking cameraman. Okay, let's try that. So, it's really something now. These are balsamic conjunctions, right? The Sun, Mercury, and Venus, they go around once a year. And so, like, now to have, okay, Venus, after a year, comes back to Neptune. The Sun, after a year, comes back to Saturn. Mercury, after a year comes back to Pluto, but the, all three of them at the same time. This says that it's an important time. It's a big choice time, and there's going to be big choices and big decisions made, 
If you go back a couple Pele reports with this new moon, I said there's going to be sudden, unexpected experiences, events happening this month with this lunar cycle. And whether it is an earthquake in Turkey or, you know, the Palestinian-Israel situation, they're all different kinds of things. And there's still time left in this lunar cycle. I mean, we have not even hit the third quarter moon yet. Yeah. So it's very powerful. On the world stage, we can say that there are big decisions and choices being made by external authorities. This is Sun, Saturn, and Aquarius, which is the sign of the elite. Mercury, Pluto is the sign of governments, institutions, and external authorities like corporations. So in one way, in the outside world, we have big choices impacting us. But on our personal, individual level, our evolution, we evolve whether we're in war or peace or famine or drought or good times of plenty or our evolutionary journey continues on. And it's like we chose, you know, to incarnate through this time period for our own personal evolutionary journey. So let's just consider number one. Yeah, this Mercury coming around to Pluto. It's saying the balsamic conjunction, you know, it's ending an old way of looking at the world. And I'm going to say judgment Capricorn and Saturn have to do with judgment and what we base our judgments on and who we are as a result of those judgments whether we feel good about ourselves strong about ourselves that we are in in integrity moral ethical elders fulfilling our duties out in the world very important to step up to the plate. Like I've been saying before, last week's mantras, time to stand up and speak out. Are we doing that or are we not? This is a time for us to really look at that. Then we have the sun coming around to Saturn in the sign of Aquarius. And this is really something, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. Conjunction, conjunction, conjunction. The last three signs of the zodiac. These last three signs of the zodiac have to do with us breaking free, breaking out of society, breaking out of the establishment, breaking out of the conventional, radically stepping into a new self-expression, our new genius, our new eccentric self. So it's almost like the sun coming up to Saturn is asking us to commit, yes, to the radical way forward of liberation, of enlightenment that comes from non-attachment. The only attachment Aquarius has is to ultimate truth. That's what science is about. Right. This is, you know, all about 
and the future is about. Our future is the, the truth unfolding because only the truth is going to last. All that is false is going to fall away like that last wave. I'm waiting for one of these to hit me in the back, man. God, they're so beautiful. And last, Venus conjunct Neptune in Pisces. This is love. Neptune, spiritual love, oneness with all creation, one with all that is. Venus, personal, romantic, human, earthly, physical love. The two of these coming together is so gorgeous, so dynamic, so beautiful that I really want to just, you know, bring forward this idea of making all of our decisions, all of our choices around love and out of love and for love and because of love. It's just like, you know, we want this to be permeating, right? The whole process, this Venus conjunct Neptune. I mean, the opportunities here is to realize spirit in a whole new way. Not from outside us as something happening with the stars or Source or Allah or Jesus or Buddha, something out there, but realizing that we are the expression of Source here, right here now in this world. Ow! So now I have some explaining to do around this mantra. Let me speak at once. Yes, I have important decisions to make that affect both myself and others. Yeah. And as I can't see all and wish to stand tall, I will ask for help from the Father. The Father. I want to talk about the mother and the father a little bit. The sun and the moon are the luminaries, yes? And in astrology, the sun and Saturn have always been associated with the father and the moon and cancer and the fourth house, the mother. And I know that, and if you know my work and you know me and you've been listening for a while, I mean, you know I'm all about the end of the patriarchy the re-emerging feminine, the necessity of tapping into Gaia, the feminine energy, the moon and Venus, so beautiful, so important right now, has been suppressed for so long, and the masculine has been conquering, fighting, using violence, suppressing, repressing, condemning for so long. 
that we really have a distorted perception of the masculine. We don't have good examples of the masculine. We don't have healthy models of the elder, of the wise man. And so there is this, and, I, and I've seen it so, many, so much in so many circles. I mean, I sit in new moon circles and full moon circles and <laughs> medicine circles and these circles and astrology circles and yoga circles. I'm in circles all the freaking time. Ow! And I've seen a strong emphasis, yes, you know, with strong feminine goddesses calling on the mother, tapping into the water and the earth and the rain and the feminine and da-da-da. But there's almost an exclusion of the masculine. There's almost an exclusion of the father. And I, and I really want to bring this back in this week. Because Saturn and the Sun are coming together in the sign of Aquarius, ruled by Uranus, the ancient sky god. We have Father-Son, yes, and Father-Sky, and Earthly Mother, and Earthly Feminine Gaia, and these two work together. It's not a competition. It's not an either or. They are not against each other. They're not fighting for supremacy or calling for more attention or more adoration. We look at the yin and the yang. Yes, we look at the night and the day, the positive and the negative, the sun and the moon. They're even the same size. There's no accident. The phenomena that the sun being 93 million miles away, so much larger than the moon, shows up as the exact same size as the moon. Yes, they are so set up beautifully, perfectly to be honored together and respected together. So I want to bring forward some positive sky god, father, because what's called for with becoming the elder, with Saturn, and particularly with Aquarius, this is stepping outside, becoming more objective. The last six signs of the zodiac, Libra through Pisces, daytime, objective, Aries through Virgo, nighttime, subjective. So we even have the underworld, lunar moon, nighttime, below the horizon, and daytime, celestial world, light, daytime. And as we move to Capricorn and Aquarius and Pisces, we step out of our subjective self and we look at things objectively. We look at the future. We look at the next seven generations. So I really want to call forward when we call in the four directions, 
Yes, at least with the Lakota. Yes, the medicine wheel that I call in most often. Yes, is that the north is air. And I always think of the cold north wind with the old man with the long white beard. Yes, and the air is the sound that sweeps out the old and brings in the new. It has to do with change. I think of Gandalf. Yes, you know, as the wise elder happening there in the Lord of the Rings. I think of King Arthur. I think of some positive, fatherly, elderly, objective, masculine energy that can really help us. And I want to encourage us when it comes to decisions and choices and contracts and commitments that we kind of step out of this feeling, emotional, subjective, inner world. And we really look at what is affecting not only me, not only my my beloved, but my children and my family, my brothers and my sisters, the four-leggeds, the two-wingeds, the finned, yes, you know, the rocks and the plants. So, you know, like we really step outside of self-interest for these choices and these decisions. And it is that masculine father God, the sun, Saturn, Uranus, that can really bring a lot of strength, a lot of clarity, and join together. So this is like, you know, Mercury-Pluto in Capricorn, which is, you know, again, ruled by Saturn, and Sun-Saturn in Aquarius, again, calling on the Father, but then we've got this Venus, Neptune, and Pisces, the infinite mother and infinite love. It's so beautiful to have these dancing together in the eternal dance, yes? And we just want to honor both. We want to tap into both. We want to feel into both and then come in the center of that dance to our core, where we are solid, where we are true, and we are clear. And from that place, we want to decide, do I stay, do I go, do I develop, do I surrender, do I allow, do I stop, do I say no, do I say yes? Yeah, there are so many very important changes happening now in so many people's lives, particularly with love, relationship, and partnership. As the moon travels through Libra into Scorpio for that third quarter square, which again, even the Sabian symbols, you know, really repeat what I have, what I have really looked at, yeah? That third quarter square is an X-ray photograph. The capacity to acquire a knowledge of the structural factors of all existence. This is very Saturn. This is very sky god. 
This is very masculine. Yes, the structure of all these elements. If we look at the degree of Mercury conjuncting Pluto, this is another one that it has. A woman reading tea leaves. The ability to see the signature of hidden meaning in every occurrence drawing one's attention. The hidden meaning, the patterns in the tea leaves, the patterns in the x-ray photograph, the patterns of astrology and sacred geometry, the patterns of the stars and the constellations. This is science. This is Aquarius. This is that whole energy that the Father God can bring us. So yes, one more time. I have important decisions to make that affect both myself and others. As I can't see all and wish to stand tall, I will ask for help from the Father. Asking for help is also a Venus-Neptune-Piscean humbling experience, whether it's prayer, meditation, contemplation, asking for help. We call upon, we get out of our ego, and we step into being channels of universal light and love. So this week, when it comes around, boom, call on the sun, call on the father, call on the sky, along with the mother, and trust that you are going to come in, come through, make the best decision for what love wants here. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Yeah. <laughs>
so then right after that between between next Friday and next Saturday the moon is going to conjunct Mercury and next Saturday night Mercury will be at 11 and the moon will be at 13 alright and uh, the sun will have conjuncted Saturn and be at one degree Pisces so the sun goes into Pisces next Saturday all right, and Venus will do its exact conjunction with Neptune this week, and next Saturday, Venus will be at 29 Pisces, while Neptune remains at 25, and Jupiter will get a little closer to Chiron, and Major major square next Saturday, next Friday, Saturday is Moon Moon Mercury square Uranus. Uh, this this Aquarius Taurus square going on, and along with along with that, see, because Mars is at sixteen and Uranus is at sixteen, so starting next Friday is. You know, Mercury and the Moon together are gonna—they're gonna try Mars and square Uranus. So you're gonna have an energy an energy triangle of of Uranus, Mars, and, and Mercury and the Moon. So uh, the end of the week is gonna be energetically challenging for the planet. So that's, you know, that's what's, uh, what's going on there. And, uh, I guess that's about it. But, uh, yeah, this, this whole, this whole thing about Kaipacha was saying in, uh, in the material by the Master DK, he tells us that this universe, this solar system, and our Lord here in this solar system is is all about love and wisdom. All right. Now, truth leads to wisdom. And love leads to charity. So what we're looking at is we we're looking for a season where we we actually need we need more love, which is you know love love leads to one's will because what you will fundamentally is what you love what you do is what you love so we got that going on so now truth which understanding leads to 
and with the understanding of truth leads to wisdom. So those are the two paths. You got uh, truth working with understanding leading to wisdom. You've got love leading to good, leading to charity. It's the active the active point of that triangle is is is, is charity. And the active and the result of the other triangle is wisdom and that's that's where you get uh, get those uh six ideas. So uh, let's go listen to Tanya and see what she might have to say. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrometrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology, deciphering the star codes so we can navigate the event with the utmost grace as possible. And in this case, it's the very graceful and beautiful Pisces New Moon. And what I love about it this year is that it takes place on February 20th in the second month. Now, two is the number of peace and balance. And Pisces also represents peace and a sense of spiritual balance. So we have a tremendous numbers code that takes us into that kindness and caring, compassion, love, and bringing balance within so that we can use our incredible intuition. Pisces is such an intuitive sign to surrender and receive what we need at any given moment. Now, this new moon is highly fortunate. It is incredibly beautifully aspected for one neptune the ruler of pisces and the ruler of this new moon is conjunct venus now venus is exalted in pisces so the ruler of pisces conjunct venus is so beautiful venus of course is a benefic that means she showers us with beauty love abundance And so this is the energy we're really going to feel. A conjunction is a merging of two different frequencies. And this will result in fortunate blessings, in abundance, and in spiritual breakthroughs, which we're going to go into in a moment. Now, the new moon happens on February 20th at 7.06 a.m. Universal Time in London, and that is 2.06 a.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 11.06 p.m. on the 19th, and that is Pacific Time, L.A. Time. Now, the sun and moon will be conjunct Saturn, and it is an out-of-sign conjunction. That means Saturn is an Aquarius, not Pisces, but very late Aquarius, 28 degrees. So it's a critical degree and actually very close to 
the sun and moon, which are at one degrees in Pisces. And actually, this is the fourth consecutive new moon at one degrees, bringing a lot of new beginnings energy and a sense of fresh starts, like an energy surge. We are continuing that momentum and it's going to actually appear again in the next new moon. Now, the sun and moon conjunct Saturn really allow you to get grounded in control and take care of the responsibilities, especially regarding your spiritual well-being, how you feel. And so feeling is really a big part of this new moon. An emotional commitment with Saturn in Aquarius conjunct the sun and moon means that you are going to be very absorbed in activities that help you concentrate, get ahead, and achieve. Saturn is an achieving planet. Saturn rules the career sector, the 10th house in astrology. So it's very much about your achievements. And in this case, it is spiritual, loving, musical, artistic, beautiful achievements. So bringing order and structure into your life is important. And Saturn provides that. Saturn provides the perfect balance to Piscean energy, which is very unstructured, very open. There are no boundaries with Pisces. And with Saturn, there are. So it's really a lovely way to declutter and especially clear your mind of cobwebs. Those cobwebs from the past or worries about the future or illusions, right? Those pie-in-the-sky ideas that are never acted upon or or not explored on a deeper level where it truly has an impact on your life. So this is an amazing moment when Saturn comes around in this way. Now, Mars is trying to Mercury as well, and that initiates, it inspires Mars, after all, rules Aries, the first sign, this new moon is at one degree, so there's a lot of initiation, forward momentum energy to begin with. But Mars trying Mercury gets your mind on just new ideas and firing you up with passion. And Mercury is also square to Uranus, and a square creates tension so that you get up and act. So this square can result in impatience. It can result in nervous energy or anxiety. So the pace of life quickens around this time and you want to make sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and refrain from being impatient or going into a place where you worry or are anxious. Just be very flexible and open. Now, Venus plays a huge role, a beautiful role during this new moon. We already looked at the fact that Venus is conjunct Neptune, and Venus is also sextile Pluto. So Pluto and Neptune, those are very slow-moving planets. Pluto takes about 248 years to go around the zodiac, and Neptune around, I believe, 150s, give and take, 156 or so years. So with this Pluto immersion and Venus there's a lot of love, there's a lot of passion, there's magic. And since this new moon happens in the month of love, February, love and romance are really heightened at this time. And it also impacts existing partnerships, which feel 
very spiritual, very profound. Beauty and creativity are very much part of this, as is uncovering things that creatively you haven't looked at maybe deep enough, and now you're getting these unbelievable aha moments with Pluto coming in with Venus. So you're drawn to all this harmony and beauty, and what's wonderful is to make it all real, Saturn is conjunct the new moon, right? Saturn is the manifesting planet, the planet that takes responsibility and gets things done. So yeah, there's a lot of really awesome energy here to take that nurturing, creative imagination and do something really exciting with it. So focus on that. Now, Pisces, the shadow side of Pisces is to get in a nebulous state. And so if you feel that you're a little bit in a fog, and you can't really let go and focus on the new beginnings energy. And you can't figure out what the truth is in the situation that you're in. Have a mission to be around grounded people or grounding energy. Go ground your bare feet on earth. And you will start tuning back into your body because otherwise you will believe illusions and feel deluded and then make decisions that you may regret later. So Pisces can do that. Pisces can undo things because it is so fluid. And so when you get all your ducks in a row, make sure that your decisions are made in a place of feeling very balanced That's why it's so important when you're making big decisions to be in a place of crystal clarity, not when you're in a fog, not when you're feeling down, not when you're feeling depressed or feeling angry, upset, right? So you need to really discern what is real and what isn't. And to do that, you turn to your body. So you have this beautiful brain that is left and right brain, which is very creative and intuitive and the right side and the left is very practical, analytical, can fix things. And that balance is obviously very important. But sometimes you can't get those deeper answers for those bigger questions or those spiritual queries. That's when you can sort of go back and forth and, you know, it's like you're not getting a grasp. So that's when you check your body, especially your tummy, which is another seat of the brain. The gut is a a part of the second brain that scientifically has been verified where in your gut, you have a biome that has nerve endings. And that's why it's important to keep the bacteria in the gut in a healthy balance. Because when you, when you do that, when you eat well and focus on your health, it impacts actually your decision making because your gut resides around your solar plexus. That's the third chakra. And the third chakra is all about feeling reality. So these little sensors that you have in this belly gut area really give you a yay or nay feedback. You know, is this true or is this Should I just, you know, throw that out the window because it doesn't ring true, right? So you practice that and you start listening and you start always asking for guidance as well, right? It's a combination of turning to 
the all that is your guides and also turning to your body especially your your gut so gut feelings right so that is your second brain so the combination of the two is really being blended in a beautiful way and the gut is of course always accentuated when pisces is activated because pisces is all about feeling so trust that trust yourself that you have that guidance and you have your guides and have a good time with it make make some fun connections it's not always serious i know saturn is conjunct this new moon in pisces but there is a lot of joy as well with with venus conjunct neptune so there's beauty there's spirituality there's love there's caring and it's just a wonderful time for you to explore what is beautiful what is spiritual where spirituality where does it come from how do you connect to it and to help you with that i actually have a free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com and it's a perfect time to tune in during this pisces new moon period because what you're going to discover is the secret to spiritual mastery itself the importance between individuality and uniqueness now this is a really really important topic because it is your uniqueness that you want to focus on versus your individuality and you'll see why in this masterclass we also focus on the importance of your natal sun and natal moon's position and how that impacts a happy abundant life there are so many wonderful tools in this masterclass and it's free and you can have instant access at spiritualmasteryclass.com so enjoy that and have a wonderful pisces new moon and i will see you in next week's star codes podcast that's it
border. All right. So Saturn, Saturn, and the Sun will be ruling ruling this this whole thing from the position of two degrees of Pisces, and then also Venus will be between Neptune and Jupiter. It'll be at thirty Pisces. Which is interesting, being in being in the last degree of Pisces, with Neptune at twenty five and Jupiter at ten. So that'll be going on, and then Mercury will be trying Mars still. That trine lasts a few days. It'll be active next Saturday, but it'll be active throughout Sunday. Sunday and Monday, and even a few more days after that. And then we also have a Pluto sextile Venus at you know thirty Capricorn to thirty Pisces. That's also significant being in the being in the last degree of those two signs. Oh. And then we've got Mercury at 13, and uh, that's going to sextile Jupiter at 9. And we got that going on, and then Jupiter sextile Mars from 10 to 14. <laughs> and it's... it's uh, I think I think Hypatia's right with uh, the conditions for decision making as we go into the the last the last sign of the year because we've only we've only got uh, about thirty six. 36 days till the uh, equinox in this, the astrological springtime. Mm-hmm. So that's all I've got for tonight. Well, I feel like I'm... It's a lot of information. It is. I'm, I'm glad that you gave me something to take notes by and I can go over this and Okay, 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 okay. I get it, I get it, I get it. But it's a lot. It's a lot how they affect each other, you know. Yeah, well, we we haven't seen we haven't seen a, a setup like this in a in a very long time. So, what do you glean this particular setup is getting us to we're just easing our we're easing our way into the advancement of love and charity. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, good. There's see that there's with all of these disasters. Yeah. There's a lot of charity required. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
because so many of our fellow humans in various places all all around the world are not having a really good time at all. I mean, the chance, look, the situation in, in, in Turkey and Syria, it's the middle of the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Yes, and Richard, uh, Erdogan only had $5 in the emergency fund. $5. That means that all the rest of the world had to do the job to help out. Nothing in the coffers at the home front. Yeah, but the deeper, but the deeper problem is the embedded evil in the civilization. Absolutely, the oligarchy is absolutely desperate because they're not in a good place in the eyes of the people, and they yeah, don't just just us. look at just look at the. Look at the, the layoff record from big tech here in the States. They're, oh. they're very concerned about their, their bottom line. Right? Because mm. the pursuit of money for the sake of money yep. does not lead to a good outcome. No. That's, that's not according to divine order. Right. It's not a problem to be wealthy if your thinking is to use that wealth for good. Mm-hmm. Yep. But so many of these oligarchs, they're, they're, they're not oriented that way. And right. you can't get to heaven if you're oriented on the world and yourself. No. Because you, it's it's not to divine order. Right. And they've been so oriented to self, they do, they've literally thoroughly blocked their view from what you're talking about. Yeah. There. Uh, well, see, the thing is, the thing is that evil can understand. They understand what's going on. The evil is they're misdirected. Their 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 goals are wrong. I rarely use strong language like that, but they're just flat out wrong. That's false information appearing real. Yep. So evidence appearing real, right? Fear. It's 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 both false information and false evidence and it's see when it becomes intentional see evil 
evil can use logic and reasoning to make their actions appear okay to themselves. Selfish reasoning, yeah. Yeah. Well, the world is being called to be firm and to get together and counterindicate the uh, circumstances that lead to a not-so-good outcome by the hand of this kind of selfishness. Yeah. And it and it's, it starts, at least in, in, in the United States, yes, with electing better representatives in the in the congressional body. Yes. Because the pursuit of honors and eminence is about the self. And it doesn't give it doesn't give honor to God because they either ignore or forget, or were never instructed that their whole life and experience depends on God fundamentally first. Because, because you know, because God is is that energy of of life, actual life. And, and with, without that, and without that fundamental energy, nothing happens. Respect for life. You know that goes along with it. But yeah. they're not. They're not. Re, they're not respecting life when they're building missiles. No. When in doubt, shoot it out of the sky, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. I, went, I wonder when we're going to get a report on these two devices. Oh, well, one they said was a balloon. Well, that was just a transportation device. The, the payload is what counts here. Yes, it was surveillance technology. Yeah, it was a bunch of radio receivers. And probably with a with an uplink to their own satellite, so they could download it into their own databases. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that thing was ten feet, ten, ten stories tall. That balloon was big, ten stories tall. This uh, this other device is the size of a small car. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Again, the, but the but the 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 balloon was up there quite high, about, uh, what was it, about 10 miles? 40,000 feet. No, the, the little one, the second one was at 40,000 feet. Oh, right. Which yeah. is which is close to civilian aircraft. They they max out in the, in the mid-30,000 feet range when they're, mm-hmm. you know, when they're cruising across country. They go up to around thirty-five thousand feet, but the with the first one that was 
that was up at 60,000 feet. But what that does at 60,000 feet, it gives them a broader uh, reception range, you know, when you look at depending on the the angle of their receiving apparatus, you know. So that's that's pretty pretty high, and you know the geometry of that's pretty simple if you if you had the geometry of their receivers. But anyway, we'll we'll learn yeah we'll learn some more stuff this week. <laughs> That first one went across the whole country. The second one just barely, I think it's... Yeah, they knocked that out before it got it's over, over got Alaskan in. land. Yeah. Canada, yeah. Yeah, they dropped it down on the ice. They got, they got, the, they got the, the National Guard out there scurrying across the ice, picking up the pieces. Yeah. Well, but we have some... Uh, interesting uh, beginnings to this next week. We'll see what it brings, won't we, Richard? Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if, if we're not due for another large earthquake somewhere oh. in the world. I mean, the world is always quaking. Yeah. But the, majori- but the majority of the quakes are are under under three on the scale. And every when you go from three to four, you've got ten times the power. And when you got go uh, four to five, you got five ten times the power of four. Yeah. And so when you get to seven, that's a million times bigger than a one. Yikes. And uh, but the, oh god, they showed some pictures of of. The Turkey disaster satellite photos of the Turkey disaster on the Weather Channel. Mm. Absolutely, okay. well, I think I think probably more people are going to die from freezing to death. Exactly. They got no food. They got hypothermia. They don't have food or water. No basics. Yeah. And no place to stay warm. Well, got to blaze the violet fire and send in. Yeah. The- All right. Namaste, my friends. Namaste, Richard. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Okay, Rama. What's the numbers? Oh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, so that's seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, everyone, we'll see you there. And uh have a intimate con con connection and chat. And we'll be back here at the top of the very next hour with BBS Radio. And we have many good things to share as we come back as well. So see you on the conference and join us, everyone. And namaste from now until we come back in an hour. Namaste.
Namaste. Wow. Okay. We're going to play this one next. Thank you for that music. That was really... They live forever, those pieces, Rama. Yes, the one we're going to play now is called Inside Ancient Civilizations. And this is with George Nury and our Matthew LaCroix. What secrets are we now uncovering that could rewrite our understanding of human origins? Author and researcher Matthew LaCroix returns to provide insights into the foundations of the oldest civilizations on earth. As a consultant for the Gaia original series, Ancient Civilizations, LaCroix dives into the scholarly and scientific evidence of artifacts such as the Sumerian King's List and the modern-day Corral Castle to shape our understanding of purposely hidden histories and secret symbols throughout time. This is the 10th of February, this, this one. Okay. Matthew LaCroix is the author of The Stage of Time and the co-author of The Epic of Humanity with Billy Carson. A researcher for ancient civilizations, LaCroix has been interviewed on Gaia on the topics of symbology and ancient Sumeria. And that's the word here. This is 41 minutes. We're ready, right, Ram? Mm-hmm. Here we go, everyone. Yeah. Rama's going to send these things ahead of time next time to Penny. Hold a second, just a second. And 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 then and then um, everyone will have these ahead of time. So if you want to follow along on your own computer, then you can see what's on the computer that goes with what we're playing. That's the best we can do, but I think that's a really good idea. So let's get that one going next time. All right, let's do that one. What an exciting series on Gaia, Ancient Civilizations. Really, we have a story that at least goes back 20, perhaps over 50,000 years ago. Wow. We're actually focusing on specific civilizations. We even go into ice cores, really try to recreate what the atmosphere and the climate was like back then. How do you find it with ancient civilizations? The Sumerians, Akkadians, and Babylonians who realized that cuneiform was the only way that something could survive more than a thousand years. So it's an open-minded show, but it's largely evidence-driven as much as it possibly can be. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Matt LaCroix with us, a writer and researcher. He specializes in Mesopotamian history and megalithic civilizations. 
Matthew, welcome back to the program. Thanks, George. It's great to be talking to you again. Some great things continue to happen for you and Beyond Belief and uh, Gaia Television. You've got a program called Ancient Civilizations. You're just picked up for another season, aren't you? Yeah, we've been working on a lot of things. Some of the some of the projects at Gaia have been really exciting. The direction we're taking with Ancient Civilizations and other shows to be part of that and do something that really changes people's perspective is a really exciting thing, and I love that my work can be incorporated into that, as well as being on the show itself. It's great to be honored that way, isn't it? It really is. It feels good, and I'm really excited for all that we have coming um, coming forward with, you know, coming for season five, and then season four, and then season five coming up. They just keep going by like that, don't they? Yeah, exactly. How did you get involved in your interest in ancient civilizations? Well, it certainly wasn't something that I had planned for. I was just a very inquisitive person, and I remember just going along the inquisitive road of being curious about so many things in the world. And when I started to really look into some of these um, researchers like Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and Robert Baval and Robert Schock, you start to see some of the um, research that they're providing, which really challenges the narrative. And instead of being something that um, perhaps makes you less interested in history, it excites you more because of really this – hidden truth, you could call it, that seems to exist that is not being recognized. In ancient civilizations, what is your approach? Uh, our approach now, um, we are completely revitalizing and, and rechanging ancient civilizations into a show that is going to be the finest example of an evidence-driven show with a high production value and a lot of very important speakers that then looks at these topics with the most amount of evidence possible around the world to try to recreate this lost story, recreate our story from how far back it goes and how sophisticated it is, but bring it to this level where it's from a scholarly academic level. How far back does it go? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because really looking at the evidence from the ancient Sumerians or looking at the ancient ancient Egyptian cultures or the ancient Hindu cultures, really we have a story that at least goes back 20 Perhaps over fifty thousand years ago. Wow! And we're that not talking far about back? well, we're not talking about nomadic hunter gatherers. Though we're talking about when civilization emerged, sophisticated civilization. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is, uh, phenomenal. I mean, what kind of technology do you think they had that far back? Well, it's it may not be necessarily a question of the types of technology because it may be more about a, a deep understanding of nature and about the laws of physics and reality. Because when we look at some of these great structures like the Great Pyramid of Giza, two and a half million megalithic blocks, an average of 10 to 15 tons each. We look at that, and if you actually try to consider how if they were to lay each block with sheer manpower to try to do that over the course of the time period we're given, it seems completely impossible. And when we look at other megalithic structures around the world, it seems that there's something else going on besides technology, maybe more of an understanding of harmonics and frequency related to some of these um, some of these ancient structures. What are some of the things you get involved with in the new season in terms of topics? One of the big directional changes of ancient civilizations that we've done going from seasons one through three, going into season four now and then into season five and beyond, is now instead of looking at concepts and core ideas from around the world about civilizations, we're actually focusing on specific civilizations. So, for instance, looking at, well, when did the first original Egyptian civilizations that built the pyramids, when did they come around in history? And when right. did they get their start and how did they get their knowledge? And then looking at places like 
Easter Island with the ancient Moai heads and how far down under the ground they go and how they're part of a civilization that greatly predates the Rapa Nui, all the way to places like Japan, which really hasn't been talked about a lot with their megaliths, and Machu Picchu and Tiwanaku, and the underwater cities like Dwarkov, India. We're really taking this to a new direction where we're specifically looking at civilizations that existed before the Younger Dryas catastrophes of 12,000 years ago. That's exciting. Do you get into the how were the pyramids built? We do. We talk a lot about um, some of the knowledge and some of the ways in which those structures were put together and really go into, well, how old are they if we look at star alignments and considering the procession of the equinox? We have to try to consider that these dates that we're told in this time frame is completely wrong. We have to start over and try to listen to what the evidence says to recreate the story of our story. There was a chap by the name of Edward Lee Skullman, who was from Latvia, who came to the United States and built something that still mystifies everybody. We call it Coral Castle. Yep. This frail man, small, moved blocks almost the size of the pyramids to build Coral Castle. How in the world did he do that? And you look at him, don't you? It's an interesting story, and people that describe uh, catching him in the middle of his building state that he did it all alone and he would do it when no one was around often at night and he would somehow he would take these massive blocks and he would build them up to create coral castle and move them and but he states that he learned the secrets of the pyramid builders of giza and essentially he understood the same things that they did which i think gets back into looking at um, the type of work that Nikola Tesla did. We're looking at sound and frequency and vibration. That's, and magnetism. Right. That seems to be the core of this rather than sheer manpower. He was a staunch believer in magnetism, even wrote a small book on that. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if he somehow magnetized the blocks and repelled them and just kind of floated them into place. Well, that's one of the things that it comes into place because if our if our planet is based on this electromagnetism of, of the entire north to south pole with these energy centers, if you knew, just like Nikola Tesla talked about, if you knew how to tap into that free energy and understanding magnetism, you can essentially do things that we think are impossible today. Well, Matt, we've teased people enough. Let's show them a little glimpse of season four of Ancient Civilizations. Planet Earth. According to radiometric dating, this planet is roughly 4.5 billion years old. Modern-day scholars claim that civilization began roughly between 5,000 and 6,000 years ago. Geological records show that severely erratic weather patterns were present on the planet roughly 12,000 years ago. Countless myths and legends from around the planet depict a time of complete chaos that destroyed all civilizations on the planet. The deluge, the cataclysm, the event, the end of the world. Along with these great fables, ancient sites like Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, Easter Island in the South Pacific, South America, Giza Plateau, Japan and India contain a level of sophistication and design that baffles the minds of scholars and scientists. Most of these sacred sites have foundations composed of stones weighing in excess of 30 tons that defy our human understanding. 
If civilization only happened roughly five to six thousand years ago, then who built these foundational wonders in pre-Diluvian times that were designed to survive the end of the world? And what were those beings who inhabited the earth long before the flood trying to tell us about our connection to the cosmos? We turn to science for answers to help unravel the mystery. But when we look below the surface, the laws of physics appear to have been mastered long before humanity began to figure them out. Science is a living body of information that's not static, it's not fixed. It's designed to be constantly updated. When new discoveries come to light, we've got to incorporate those discoveries into the pre-existing scientific story. We're writing a new story right now. We have to, because the evidence no longer supports the story of the past. The evidence no longer supports the theory that civilization, for example, began between 5,000 5,500 years ago. What an exciting series on Gaia, Ancient Civilizations. Yeah, I'm Beautiful. incredibly excited. We put so much work into this to try to do something that no one's ever done before to the level of really bringing both quality and evidence to something that really captures what this story really was. Well, it looks like you bring real science and real metaphysics to the table. And that's we, exciting. We do. We even go into ice cores where you look at, look at drilling that's been done in Greenland and Antarctica, really try to recreate what the atmosphere and the climate was like back then to try to understand, well, if a disaster did occur, you know, what is the science that, that based, that's based on to try to understand, well, you know, how does all this fit into our story? What are pre-Diluvian civilizations? That's a really important thing to understand. And it's, uh, there's other terms that have been used. It's, they essentially mean the same thing, like antediluvian, pre-diluvian, pre-flood. Essentially, that time period has been identified geologically and through climatology as being before these events of the Younger Dryas. The uh -huh. Younger Dryas is called that because it's a very disruptive time period in history that came between uh, around 10,800 years ago and 13,000 years ago. And it's this time period of several thousand years that essentially has these incredibly disastrous events that occurred on the earth. And that's what we think of as the flood because ultimately the totality the of Noah those events. Flood. The Noah yeah, flood? exactly. Ultimately, the totality of that was that there was a massive flood. I, I think that was mostly based on tsunamis worldwide. But either way, what that means is pre-Diluvian or any of the civilizations that existed before that event. There's no question that the Bible has spelled out a lot of strange things that happened on this planet. But as you have pointed out, there's no other history. There's no other record of things that we had where the knowledge is lost. What happened to the plans for the, for the pyramids? Surely they had to be able to construct them architecturally with sketches or something on papyrus, where are they? Well, that's actually a very good point to make. When we look at papyrus and we look at paper records, what we find is that paper specifically can only last 500 to 1,000 years. And, and when we look at these, right, exactly. So how do you have a message be protected that can actually survive? And that really comes down to the ingenuity of the Sumerians, Akkadians, and Babylonians who realized that cuneiform etching into stone or clay and then baking that clay into tablets was the only way that something could survive more than a thousand years. And I think that's why, because the Egyptians relied so heavily on 
papyrus and paper records and and some hieroglyphs, although I think hieroglyphs were mainly done by the later um, dynastic pharaohs. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of that information has been lost. And don't forget the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's right. And that's but that, tablets, right? But, but that's paper. The Dead Sea Scrolls is paper. And it, thankfully, it was put in these these caves above the Dead Sea, which was a very, it's a very, very dry climate. So it enables something like that to survive longer than per, perhaps other places. How far back do you go? Well, if we were to look at things like the Baros, the Barosis, um king list that came out of Babylon and then compare it with the Uruk list of kings and sages and the Sumerian king list, if we take those three and we try to combine them with the ancient um, pyramid king list that came out of um, the Giza Plateau, we get dates that bring us well over 50,000 years old. Some of them really point us to something more like 200,000 years old, which is totally beyond our comprehension Jeez, today. That is amazing. But it really shows us that if we were to look at our civilization that has risen largely just within a thousand years, if you really look at it, over the course of all the technological advancements and things we've that have happened since the Middle Ages and everything, Really, we're think if we look at something that's over a hundred thousand years old, it almost is like beyond our capability to understand. And this history has been lost. How do we find it? How do how do you find it with ancient civilizations? The first thing we have to do is we have to shed this preconditioned notion we get from doctrines we're taught in school. This idea that civilization has only come from a six thousand year window and that everything before was nomadic hunter gatherers and was primitive. We need to totally take that and throw it out and start over again and actually look at what the evidence around the world is telling us. And what that evidence from whether or not it's looking at the ancient Maya or down into the the pre-Inca, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the, the ancient Japanese or throughout Southeast Asia. What we're seeing from all these civilizations is they, they say, look, there was a civilization that came long before us that taught us everything we know now. And that civilization disappeared. And that goes so much further back than we're told. So if we take megalithic evidence and look at radiocarbon dating that we're doing and we look at the totality of all of this, we can put together a timeline and understanding to be able to recreate a show like Ancient Civilizations that actually tells this story from the evidence rather than just from these doctrines we've been taught. Do you touch on ancient aliens, ETs? It's obviously an area, if something like that, if we have evidence of influences that come from the stars, of course we're going to discuss it. But the focus here is if, is he, does the evidence support that direction? And if it doesn't, then we don't go there. We have to be open-minded to say, what is the strongest evidence telling us from what this says? So it's an open-minded show, but it's largely evidence-driven as much as it possibly can be. You had mentioned the Great Flood. We seem to have stories abound about that. I happen to think maybe an asteroid hit the planet right in the ocean and created that tsunami you just mentioned. What do you think? Well, that's a really interesting thing is if we were to look at everyone from Robert Schock, who's a geologist, all the way to Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson. Great and people. Great researchers, great people, great minds. If we were to look at that, there's really these two camps that, that come into play. Now, I had a great conversation with Randall Carlson a little while ago where we were discussing this. And he came out, and he's, of course, a trained geologist. And he came out, and he was saying, look, you know, maybe maybe both are right. Maybe what we're looking at is this younger, dry, younger driest catastrophe period. Maybe both things happen. And by both, I mean we had impacts from celestial impacts, right. large comets. But maybe we also had things like coronal mass ejections, these mini supernovas from the sun. Maybe it all comes into play. 
because of these disruptions to our outer solar system and our star, the sun. So really, I think we need to look at it as maybe the Younger Dryas was a combination of, of all of these different disastrous events. Let's take a glimpse of the new season of ancient civilizations about the Great Flood. In the beginning, after a great devastation, according to the Sumerian text, the gods came and manifested humans again. And this is a theme that we see repeated many times in many cultures all over the world, that there was a creation of humans, there was a massive flood, and the earth was repopulated. You know, that's reflected in the Babylonian text, in the Hebrew text, in the Egyptian text. They all mention something similar. When you do a deep survey into the myths from around the world, you actually find that there are two different flood narratives that happened. And so in the very first flood narrative, it talks about a dark world or an, a beginning and the end of an age. And then there's this cataclysm and this flood occurs and the individual escapes the flood with the seven sages, the seven abigails. And then after that, it is the beginning of this golden age and this new period of time. With the Noah flood, there's civilization that is occurring and the flood happens because they are trying to wipe out the wickedness from on the planet, you know, like you find in the biblical narrative. And Noah survives the flood, and there's no mention of these seven sages or seven abigails. So in South America, we have the tradition of Viracocha, who is a builder god that suddenly shows up mysteriously after a global flood, wipe everything out. And he appears in specific locations uh, with a group of seven specialists. They're experts in their fields because wherever civilization appears on the face of the earth after the flood and is always one charismatic leader who leads seven craftspeople, experts in their field. Fascinating. Fascinating indeed. And who told Noah to build that ark? That story is uh, one of my favorites of all because... Really, what the first thing we need to do is they'll go back and realize that the Noah is actually a term that was given as a biblical term. His real name in the ancient Sumerian text and into, like, for instance, the Atrahasis, um, we find out, and, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, we find out he had a couple names in history that he actually were, was called by. His name was Untandapishtim, or his name was Zayasudra. I like Noah better. <laughs> well, um, but his story is, is really quite amazing because he was actually the very last of these pre-Diluvian kings of one of these original five cities of Sumer known as Shurupak. And his father, Ubaratutu, was the last great king of that city, and he was going to take the reins to rule over that city. He did briefly until this great catastrophe occurred. And he was the one who recorded basically mankind's entire story because he had a very special bloodline that connected to some of these ancient kings. And he was told through a reed bed from his his god Enki to basically serve how to survive this catastrophe so that his offspring and his bloodlines could literally bring and carry on humanity. I'm looking forward to the new season. Me too. I think that it's really going to help a lot of people piece together some of these aspects of understanding what this real story is 
but really coming coming from as much evidence as we possibly can. What is the great Anuna? The great Anuna was the original term of these celestial beings that came here that basically taught civilization everything. Because when we think of metallurgy or animal husbandry or mathematics or astronomy, every single one of those things came from one single point in history. The Sumerians claim that all of that knowledge, which is where we trace it all back to, Absolutely. was handed down to them through what was called kingship and the knowledge of the gods. And their gods, these celestial gods, not the forces of nature, physical or non-physical beings that literally communicated and taught them, they were called the Anuna. It meant from those who from heaven came to earth or from beyond basically came here. And they were called the great Anuna and later the Anunnaki to the Akkadian and Babylonian cultures. But that was their sky gods that they essentially state at all of the knowledge of civilization came from, which is why all of a sudden everything just took off. and We became something very different than what we were. Something exploded. Something happened. How do we know that there were lost civilizations, Matt? How do we know this without evidence? Well, if we were to look at, say, this 6,000-year model that we're taught in school, this doctrine, right? If we were to look at that for a second and try to consider what's known as the Mohs hardness scale, it means that if you have a civilization that's identified, like we're told, as being a Bronze Age civilization, right, using bronze and copper copper tools, it means that according to the Mohs hardness scale, those tools have a a certain hardness that, that they have to them, which means they can't manipulate something that's harder than they are. You simply can't do anything to it. And what we find is if we look at the telltale signs of these megalithic civilizations around the world, it means giant stones. And we look at how most of them are composed of quartzite and granite. On the most hardness scale, that's a seven or an eight, which means it's too hard to be able to carve. Meaning that it's from a civilization that had tools and technology that was far beyond the capability of this. these civilizations were taught. And that's how what, what proves that they're part of a lost civilization because their knowledge was more and more lost over time and not gained like we're taught. I can tell you're so excited about these subjects. You really are. You're like a little kid again. <laughs> I am. I, um, it's a very exciting thing to talk about because the evidence is all around the world. And what you know, when you know what to look for and when you understand the story from what they tell us, it invigorates you to a level of understanding reality and understanding this the history of who we are to a completely different place. And all of a sudden, your world changes and you see that, look, we come from something that's far greater than we were, we were told. We come from something that was like a spark of consciousness, a spark of the gods that turned us into something that was truly remarkable in the universe. And we have since fallen to such a degree that we've forgotten who we were and we have totally amnesia of who truly came before us and who we were. Egypt and Atlantis, is there a connection? There is. There's actually some phenomenal connections that people don't know of. And when you think about the story of Plato and how he came up with the Timaeus and Critias, a lot of people say that it was an allegory for the perfect civilization, but it wasn't based on anything real. But if you actually look at the evidence from that, you find out that Plato learned about the story of Atlantis from Solon and these temple priests of Egypt. See, this is where the two connect because Solon traveled to Egypt and he met these temple priests of a temple that used to exist called Sais, the Temple of Sais. And they state – What do you mean used to exist? It was, it was destroyed uh, about a 1,000 years later, and all the records that, that were there were, were lost. But Who destroyed it? We don't actually know because those records of what happened to that temple 
disappeared to history. But what the temple priests of Say State is that they were the ones who had recorded the, the history and information of Atlantis before. And they tell Solon that you remember one disaster, but there have been many that have come before you. And they go into detail about Atlantis and they state that they're the ones that had the knowledge contained in the temple and within the priests. And when it died with them, it only survived with Plato, Solon, and Diodorus. Matt, why is it so important for us to understand the past? Understanding the past, there's a famous quote, you can't understand where you're going unless you know where you've come from. And so we have to look back to understand how far we reached the level we were to achieve consciously and energetically and realize that we've fallen. And if we can't understand where we were, then we're not going to know how to get back to that again. And that place that we were once at tells this incredible story of civilizations that rose up to this level of understanding the universe, the earth, harmonics and energy and consciousness to a way where they literally became gods like those that created them. And we have fallen so far that we're simply trying to put these pieces together. And that's why that story matters so much. Did we ever find ancient maps? We have actually one of my favorite maps that we uncovered when we were researching season five of ancient civilizations is that in 1907, there was a map found in Tibet. And of course, of all places like Tibet, it makes sense, though, if there were global catastrophes, you'd want to protect some of that knowledge in the, in the highest areas of the world, right? And so in the story that it's really fascinating that's going to go into season five is that we're looking at these ancient Tibetan civilizations, right, that go far back where they describe back. how the story is that there was a monk in Tibet who was just traveling through the mountains one day in, in the early 1900s, and he found a cave far up on this mountainside that had been essentially lost to time. He went in this cave. What he found was a library with records all over the world. Chinese, Sanskrit, uh, thousands and thousands of years. And so what happened was he went back and he ended up telling this story to an ancient researcher and a writer who was traveling through the region. And he, that researcher and writer went into these caves and he told him the story and, and because he realized that the monk didn't know how to read or understand this because he wasn't a scholar. So this scholar went to this cave, and what he found and uncovered was there was a map in there, George. A map unlike any map that's ever existed in history. What did it show? This map showed detailed records from around the world, cartographic records of ancient Atlantis, but specifically the region it existed in, and another civilization that was lost called Lemuria or Mu. Sure. But what was so important about it? was that it depicts how it was being destroyed at certain time periods and that there was actually flooding that was still occurring in places like the Amazon Basin and the Mississippi River, which goes exactly with records from Younger Dryas of what occurred during that time period. Where was Atlantis sketched on this map? Atlantis was shown to be just west of Spain and going down into this region of the Atlantic, right down into the Mayan region. And Very the close Bahamas. to what Plato said. Exactly. And huh. it shows the Lemuria Mu civilization as encompassing places like Easter Island and over up to, up to Hawaii and down into places like Indonesia, which really aligns wow. exactly with what the evidence is telling us. Let's look at more from ancient civilizations. Comparing the pre-Diluvian construction from all over the planet not only challenges the mainstream theory of the origins of civilization but solidifies the evidence of an interconnection of knowledge between cultures long before the Great Deluge. 
Who were these beings with this advanced building knowledge that could move these massive stones? The question is no longer if these sacred megalithic sites around the planet were built before the Great Flood. The greater mystery is, how long before the Flood were they built? In a number of myths, one of the things we find is that there's no cultural memory in humanity of how they made these megalithic structures. There's no recollection of the engineering technology that's required to create these structures and lift stones a certain way because it wasn't their technology. It was the God's technology. And so that's why we can't do it again. Etched in the human psyche are stories of struggle and pain to conquer and rule different sections of this planet. Separation, division, and control became the dominant benchmark to gauge the success of a civilization, making it easy to forget how everything is interconnected. Most Western maps have been arranged around the prime meridian, showing the Americas on the left. But as the connections between ancient civilizations become more apparent, the map must shift back to the time where the unification of the planet can be seen and felt as the one divided into the many. The ice melted, creating new islands and covering old ones. As civilization began rebuilding, the division on the planet grew stronger. Turning back our celestial clock, we discover that whatever label humanity tries to put on this deluge period in history, there are foundational story points that connect all to a very volatile time on the surface of the planet. But when the hands of time go back to the time before the end of the world, the clues in archaeology and tales told in heroes' epic journeys around the planet show that most civilized structures eventually fall. But to uncover the fundamental ancient knowledge that ties the whole story together, the hero must return back to the foundations where the story begins. Congratulations on what is going to be an amazing series. Yeah, I I'm, I'm really am excited because we really put our heart and soul into this. And it's really based on this totality of knowledge from all of these amazing researchers, right? Everyone from Graham Hancock to Robert Paval to Robert Schock to Brian Forrester and this entire pyramid group of all these individuals that then take all this knowledge into this pinnacle. We take all of this and ingest it and try to recreate really what this story is. Absolutely. I want to look at some still pictures and have you explain to sure. us, Matt, what they are because they're dramatic. The first is what we call the obelisk Aswan Egypt. Let's take a look at this. Yeah, this is really, um, you asked earlier in the, in the show about what's the proof that these lost civilizations existed. Right. But this even goes a step further. It proves that they suddenly disappeared, which means it wasn't like the slow demise of civilization. It was something that occurred very quickly at the height of their sophistication. And this is the first of three examples that really highlight this. So this is in Aswan, Egypt, and it's the unfinished obelisk, okay? And it was the, going to be the largest obelisk in the world. How old is this? This obelisk is well over 12,000 years old. Jeez. Now, modern academia tells us that it was left unfinished because it cracked. But look but, at the stonework. It's magnificent. Exactly. But more realistically, it, it cracked from giant um, megalithic events and earthquakes that seemed to destroy these 
civilizations and literally wiped them out at the height of their sophistication, meaning that they were getting ready to finish that when they were suddenly wiped out. That's tremendous. Now, I want to point one more thing out. In the bottom part of the screen, notice that the bottom, uh, the, the lower part of the obelisk has these uh, ind- indications of almost like scoop marks or some means in which it wasn't um, basically sanded down right. and flattened. That's part of the technology, George, for how they seem to have taken these giant stones out of their hosts, meaning that some kind of a technological tool would basically scoop these out and then they would polish them down after. Exciting. Let's look at our next picture, which is out of China in a quarry. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is absolutely incredible. And for those who think this is this is a natural formation, it's not. This is um, part of what's known as the Yangsheng Quarry in China. And the reason we know it's not natural is right behind this, behind where the picture is taken, there are giant Finnish stellas that have been basically carved down and smoothed, basically cut in such a precise way that there were tools that we have no idea what they were. That looks like a little man down there, a sketch of something. You see that? Right in the front? I do. These are basically, this was a gigantic Stella that was left completely unfinished. It had just been taken out of the host rock. Now, here's the wild thing. This stone, George, is 16,000 tons. My God. Now, the second largest Stella megalith we have in the world out of Baalbek, Lebanon, is 1,200. Which is our next picture. Let's look at that one. Huge. Yeah, so this is out of Baalbek, Lebanon, and yet again, we find another situation where this was a quarry where this stone was not uncovered till 1994, meaning our understanding of these civilizations is not that old. We're, we're still figuring this out and trying to understand it, but the point is these stones were being the, of the largest of their civilization, meaning the height of their sophistication, were in the process of being taken out of their quarries when all of the work mysteriously stopped. Why? And that's the why is what gets into Did understanding. Something, something disastrous happened, George, where during the Younger Dryas, when we look at ice core samples, we see temperature fluctuations on the Earth that are completely unfathomable. You think there were Earth changes that caused the stop? We're looking at Earth changes so significant changes. that it's like something out of a Hollywood movie, where if you were to imagine every volcano in the, in the world going off and every tectonic place starting to move, you would have basically a a time period of over a thousand years of catastrophes that are occurring over and over again that would basically be enough to completely wipe out a sophisticated civilization around the world. It seems that ancient civilizations were wiped out by events that happened time and time again. Did you find that in your work? Yeah, it seems to be when we look at geologic evidence, and again, this was one of the conversations I had with the phenomenal geologist and climatologist expert, Randall Carlson, where we said, hey, look, there are these specific two time periods that keep coming up in geologic and climatologic records over and over again. That is around 5,000 years ago, every 5,000 years, and every 13,000 years. So it's not one event, but it's two events. But of those two, this 13,000-year event seems to be the worst. It seems to be the one that none of these civilizations, George, have made it through. And they never picked back up again, did they? They did don't. In fact, every time one of these have happened, and according to the, the ancient priests of Sais, the temple priests, and the ancient Maya and the Aztec, there have been at least four to five different civilizations that have risen up and fallen. And every single time, we've lost more and more knowledge each in each one of those falls. Matt, the great geologist Greg Braden, whom we've seen 
talks about ancient civilizations and why he thinks something happened. There are common themes that run through all of these stories. One of those themes is that civilization is cyclic rather than linear, that there have been previous cycles of civilization that have lasted for approximately 5,000 years. Something happens, those cycles come to an end, a new cycle begins. This is where it gets really interesting because even though the cycles change, there appears to be a continuity of knowledge, a continuity of wisdom when it comes to the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next. The Mayans divided one precession of the equinoxes, 26,000 year cycle approximately, into five 5,125 year long cycles. Each of those cycles, when they begin, something happens to the civilization during that time. And one of the questions that historians have asked is, could there be something that drives these cycles? Is there a cosmological phenomenon? Is there a climactic phenomenon? Is there a geologic phenomenon? Maybe it's a convergence of all of these phenomena. Something happens every 5,125 years. Well, if we take the year 2012 as the end of one 5,125 year long cycle, and we go back in time to the 5,000 years previously, this would be the time that we traditionally have been taught that civilization began from 5,500 years ago. Now, new discoveries are revealing the remnants of ancient civilizations that predate that 5,000 years many, many times. Gosh, wouldn't you have loved social networking in those days? We'd find out instantly what was going on. Right? Well, that's, that's one of the things that we have available to us that I don't think anyone else before us did. And so we may have certain technologies and certain capabilities that no civilization before us has had. And even though on the surface, it may seem we're very disconnected and almost broken in some ways, but that technology and those means that we have available to us, I believe are being utilized for us to survive this cycle for the first time in history. Let's go to Luxor in Egypt and take a look at our final picture. So here we are in Luxor, Egypt. We have, um, some of, if not the largest stone statues in the world. They're amazing. They look like pharaohs. They're called the Colossi of Memnon. Now, they guard this entrance into places like the Ramesseum and Karnak Temple. But what's so phenomenally interesting about these, first to give a couple of stats, these are 700 tons each, and they're 60 feet tall. One piece or is it stacked? One single piece that has been broken by earthquakes over time. Amazing. But what's so fascinating, George, is that on the Colossi of Memnon, there is what's known as vitrification or scarring on one specific part of each statue. On the northeast side of each one of these, we find evidence of catastrophes that occurred that literally were what's destroyed the civilization that created them. But those catastrophes seem to have come from a specific direction. And what we, what's interesting about that is that vitrification, which means melting of rock, can only occur if temperatures on the surface exceed 2,000 degrees. That's an asteroid strike. It's some kind of a massive heat, either asteroid strike or a coronal mass ejection, blasting the um, energy from the sun that basically comes through the ozone layer and literally can invade the Bigger than the Carrington event. Something Something much greater, but it may be a combination of both of those events, George, that led to this. But either way, those civilizations have evidence 
of environments on the surface that would have been you would have been vaporized if you were there. Matt, I'm looking forward to your next season of Ancient Civilizations. Good luck with that. Thank you so much. I can't wait for everyone to see it. It's going to be easy to find. If you're a member of Gaia, you can watch Ancient Civilizations as I'm going to. Thanks for watching. That was really a very uh, impressive conversation. What did you say, Ram? Yeah. It seems like uh, we're getting a a deep understanding of our origins geared to higher consciousness. And Rama, you ready with the next one? Yeah, this is Graham Hancock, Ancient Apocalypse. This is the first one which is talking about what happened before the flood and leading up to the flood and then after. And um, How many minutes is this, Ram? I'm not sure exactly. I think 30 minutes. Oh, short. I think so. And then the next one's 30 minutes. I'm not sure. Oh, so they go together. Yeah. What's the second one about? Um, well, if you just want to start that one, go ahead and we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get to it when we get to it. Here's, yeah. So this is pre-flood, flood, and post-flood. Uh, yeah. All right. Let's do it, Rama. Yeah. All right, bring it up. And take one. How would you describe yourself? <laughs> How would I describe myself? You've been described as a pseudo-archaeologist, someone yeah, who cherry-picks your data, your books read by millions, but dismissed by academics. Did you know that you were picking a fight with academics? Because there's a lot of people that just don't want to hear this. You have been at the front of the line for decades and you exposed me to a lot of these controversial ideas that have now been substantiated well i'm graham hancock i don't claim to be an archaeologist or a scientist i am a journalist and the subject that i'm investigating is human prehistory humans are a species with amnesia. We have forgotten something incredibly important in our own past. And I think that that incredibly important forgotten thing is a lost, advanced civilization of the Ice Age. I've spent decades searching for proof of this lost civilization at sites around the globe. Oh, wow. Now, my aim is to piece together these clues. And that seems extremely uh, strange. To show you evidence that challenges the traditional view of human history. It pushes back these days, far, far back. Ancient structures. 
built with surprising sophistication. It's the most amazing archaeoastronomy site in North America. Revealing the fingerprints of an advanced prehistoric civilization. This pillar is like our Rosetta Stone. The possibility of civilization emerging earlier than we think gets much stronger. It's going to absolutely demand a rewrite of history as we know it. Yeah. Of course, this idea is upsetting to the so-called experts, who insist that the only humans who existed during the Ice Age were simple hunter-gatherers. That automatically makes me enemy number one to archaeologists. Why not just say, we don't know? This is a spectacular mystery and leave it at that. It's my job to offer an alternative point of view. Perhaps there's been a forgotten episode in human history. But perhaps the extremely defensive, arrogant, and patronizing attitude of mainstream academia is stopping us from considering that possibility. I'm trying to overthrow the paradigm of history. years. I've been looking for something I was told couldn't possibly exist. An advanced human civilization much older than our own, lost to history. The mainstream version of history says that after the end of the Ice Age, on their own initiative, our hunter-gatherer ancestors suddenly began farming and raising livestock, creating settlements and eventually cities, until the first civilizations emerged around 6,000 years ago. But new discoveries keep on pushing that horizon back. One such discovery has been made here in Indonesia. On the most populated island, Java, about four hours south of Jakarta, near the village of Mukti. come here to investigate one of the most remarkable and controversial archaeological discoveries of our time. The initial evidence has utterly confounded mainstream archaeologists because it calls into question everything they've taught us about the prehistory of humanity. It's a site that raises a disturbing question. What if an advanced civilization flourished here in Indonesia during the Ice Age? A civilization that was lost to history until now. This is Gunung Padang. The name means mountain of light or mountain of enlightenment in the local Sundanese dialect. Local people speak with awe of its mysterious atmosphere. And pilgrims come from far and wide to honor the spirit of the mountain. They purify themselves at an ancient spring at the base before heading up the hill, 360 feet. The climb up it is steep and hard work, but worth it once you reach the top. 
Because Gunung Padang is like no place else on earth. For a long while, archaeologists thought it was just another hill in the jungle. But there was a problem with that view. You get to the summit and you see these blocks scattered across the landscape. Oddly hexagonal stone slabs strewn about everywhere. Thousands of them. It's quite a spectacle. But not out of place in Indonesia's volcanic landscape, where blocks like these are naturally formed. They're called columnar jointing and are created when volcanic rock, in this case basalt, cools and cracks into distinctive shapes. At first sight, this open terrace could be mistaken for a natural formation of volcanic rock, which is why archaeologists were so slow to investigate it. But take a closer look, and it becomes obvious that these rocks have been cut, repurposed as building materials, and placed by human hands. Among the jumbled masses of fallen stone, traces of structures show up all over this hill. Mounds, rectangular rooms, and long walls on carefully laid out terraces, all clearly man-made. When archaeologist Ali Akbar and his team began working here in 2012, they assumed that any structures on this hill would prove to be less than 2,500 years old. We don't know about the absolute dating in this site. This site was abandoned for so long and perhaps forgotten. The team also assumed that the ancient builders of Gunung Padang had found the blocks of columnar jointing naturally present at the site. But then they discovered something strange. The columnar joint is imported from uh, another uh, region, from another location. That means that every one of these blocks, up to 50,000 of them, and each weighing up to a third of a ton, were carried up this hill. When Dr. Akbar's team first surveyed the site, they quickly found evidence that humans have been present in what's called a cultural lair, but not where they expected. We are very surprised that this site consists of two cultural layers. The first layer on the surface, it's from 500 BC. But at four meters depth, we found another cultural layer. It is from 5,200 BC. It is very surprising. We are very shocked. It is very old. 7,000 years ago, far from being builders on such an epic scale, there's no evidence that the people of this region were anything other than simple hunter-gatherers. What could have motivated them to make the immense effort of bringing all these blocks here? I'm not really sure about the function of this site, 
However, we still not found uh, skeleton or human bone. So this is not burial site. Perhaps it is for ceremonial or rituals. We're dealing with truly a mystery here, a mystery that needs to be explained. It wasn't until another investigation looked even deeper into the site that an extraordinary new possibility began to force itself on the researchers. That they might be confronted by the work of a civilization lost to history. Dr. Danny Hillman Natawijaja studied at Caltech, but now works for Indonesia's Geotechnology Research Center. As a geologist, Dr. Hillman knew there was something very strange about Gunung Padang. Exploring the site, he found that the columnar basalt blocks don't just blanket the top of the hill. They also wrap around its terraced slopes, covering an area of at least 37 acres. This exposed section between two of the terraces appears to be some sort of retaining wall. There are some archaeologists I've heard who, yeah. who are still convinced that this is all entirely natural. I mean, I know this is natural rock, but they're suggesting the whole layout of the thing is natural as well. They are natural, but the position now is not in a natural position. And normally vertical. Vertical, yeah. And here it's right. laid on its side. And also it's not cut like this. Yeah. Here, always cut into like one and one and a half meters. Right. There's something else unusual that Dr. Hillman noticed between the blocks. The natural position, there is no uh, ground mass in between. It will be very tight together. But here, in between these columnar rocks, there is a mortar that holds them together, just yes. like cement. Uh, yeah. The thickness is like five centimeters, and it's very consistent. Right. So they're kind of leveling out the construction blocks with the mortar between them, put there deliberately by human beings as part of a yes. construction process. Yes. So Danny began to investigate this, and this is where the surprises began to appear. What Dr. Hillman started to realize as he put together all his data was that Gunung Padang is much more than just a hill. This is the ancient site of Gunung Padang. The north side features a stairway climbing more than 300 feet until it reaches the first of five terraces. Over an area about 490 feet long by 130 feet wide. The entire hill is ringed by retaining walls of columnar basalt. Using an estimated 50,000 blocks, it's a massive terraforming project that remodeled a volcanic hill into what can best be described as a step pyramid. So this is all man-made terraces here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not as the same uh, shape of pyramids like Mayan or uh, Giza pyramids. No. It's a similar idea that it rises in terraces to a pyramid. Yeah, yeah. but it has like, like, circular features. Indeed. There's a question of definitions here. How do we define a pyramid? But if we define it as a structure that rises in a series of terraces to a summit, uh, that's what we're looking at at Gunung Padang. 
And the fact that such an ancient pyramid exists here at all could radically alter what we know about the capabilities of our ancestors. Archaeologists currently believe the oldest pyramid in the world dates to around 4,700 years ago. And it's not in Egypt, but in Peru. But Dr. Hillman has found evidence that Gunung Padang could be even older. So how old is it really? Who built it? And why? Dr. Hillman and his team turned to technology usually deployed in geological surveys to look for answers deep inside the structure. So we have three methods here. The GPR. Yeah, that's uh, ground penetrating radar. The ground penetrating radar. Yeah. yeah. And the uh, resistivity tomography. Yeah. And also the seismic tomography. Previously, archaeologists had dug down into the site only a few meters and in a few isolated trenches. This new technology covers much more ground and goes far deeper. So we're going to do the ground penetration radar, the GPS surveys. Ground penetrating radar emits pulses of radio waves into the ground. When they hit something, they bounce back. And that data is recorded and analyzed. Uh, we chose the frequency of 40 megahertz to uh, penetrate down to like 30 meters. Okay, let's go. Dr. Hillman and his team learn from their scans of the interior, the more mysterious it's become. The nature of the structures underground became more and more complex, although the columnar basalt is always there and was always used as a construction material. Seismic tomography in particular has uncovered an intriguing spot deep inside the hill. It has a seismic velocity about 200 meters per second. Right. Which in A-man's terms means what exactly? There's a void. A void, an empty space. Empty. And you can get a sense of the shape of that empty space? Yes, as you see here, it's a rectangular. It's a rectangular. Yeah, so. yeah. And the spot is just right. Yeah. Because in the center of this site. Right. Beneath the terrace one, there's also a chamber. Yeah. Connecting to this chamber beneath the second terrace. What Dr. Hillman and his team have discovered are at least three large rectangular chambers. One around 10 meters down, perhaps an entrance hall of some kind. It seems to have an access tunnel leading to a larger main chamber. And another passage connecting to a third chamber between 20 to 30 meters deep. All three located right along the central axis of the site. Very intrigued by all these chambers. I so much wish you could get the archaeologists to actually excavate this site. When we see these chambers, three chambers, it's just like we are men. You know, you found something significant. Sure. At that point, yeah, it's it's un unmistakable. Yeah, yeah. 
But to historians and the archaeologists who first excavated this site, Dr. Hillman's discovery just doesn't make sense. The accepted timeline of human history tells us that the tribe of hunter-gatherers living atop the hill around 7,000 years ago wouldn't have been capable of building a structure of this colossal size and complexity. And yet, here it is. A mystery crying out for investigation. To put a date on this hill that's not a hill, Dr. Hillman and his team turned to another geological tool, core drilling. As expected, samples of the top two layers dated from 3,000 years ago, back to around 8,000 years ago. But when they drilled to 15 meters, around 50 feet or so, they found something completely unexpected. Those sections had been laid out around 11,600 years ago, pushing the origins of this site back to the end of the last ice age. And Dr. Hillman's discoveries didn't stop there. Going further down, around 100 feet or so, he hit the earliest layer of construction. Let's try and put dates on when this okay. was shaped. Layer four. Could be before 20,000. Could be before 20,000. Those drill cores were pulling up datable materials that dated way back as far as 24,000 years ago. Organic materials clearly associated with structural elements now deeply buried. And this convinced Danny, and I must say it convinces me, that Gunung Padang goes back to a remotely ancient origin. Danny's findings are utterly extraordinary and bewildering. Hitherto archaeologists had regarded it as a long-established fact that no large-scale structures were built anywhere in Southeast Asia until around 4,000 years ago. Your datings of this structure put it right back to the Ice Age. So for me, this raises a sense of enormous excitement. I yeah. can't help wondering whether those chambers contain some evidence or information that might have a bearing on my search yeah. for a lost civilization. Yeah, I think we know little about our history. Right. I think we miss a big thing here. This is an idea that mainstream archaeology finds very hard to accept. The notion that it's um, a man-made structure is no longer seriously disputed by anybody. But what archaeology finds very hard to swallow and very hard to accept is that the origins of this structure could date back as much as 24,000 years to the depths of the last ice age. scholars seem reluctant to get to grips with is that the Ice Age was a very special time when the world was very different. You see, back then, 20,000 years ago, Earth didn't look the same as it does now. The island of Java wasn't an island. It was the southernmost part of a vast Southeast Asian continent. 
a continent that geologists call Sunderland. During the last ice age, sea levels were about 120 meters, 400 feet lower than they are today. So what is now the Java Sea was actually an enormous landmass extending out from the mainland of Asia. Sunderland covered an area around 695,000 square miles, about the size of the Western United States. It was an entire subcontinent. We know that tribes of hunter-gatherers thrived on Sunderland's abundant wildlife as far back as 45,000 years ago, and probably much further back than that. Why shouldn't another, more technologically advanced culture have been present here as well? In a cold and forbidding world, this huge Southeast Asian landmass would have been amongst several warm and inviting locations where early humans might have had a real stab at developing an advanced and sophisticated civilization. I think that whoever built Gunung Pada shared our planet with the hunter-gatherers who we know were also widely present at that time. It's not such a wild idea. Even today, the technologically advanced nations of the world coexist with hunter-gatherer societies like the San in Namibia, or the Lacandon in Mexico, or the Kazakhs in Western Mongolia. Different cultures at different levels of development have always lived alongside one another. Gunung Padang suggests that some culture was around in the area of the Sunda Shelf, which was capable of creating a gigantic megalithic structure. One that specialized in building with blocks of columnar basalt. It's a style of construction I've seen before in this part of the world, on the tiny Pacific island of Pompeii, at a site known as Nan Madol. It too was constructed using volcanic basalt blocks, laid out one atop the other, just as at Gunung Padang. Archaeologists believe most of the construction visible at Nan Madol today dates to around 900 years ago when the blocks were quarried at a neighboring island. But during my explorations on previous visits, I found several of its megalithic pillars extending out below the waterline, suggesting that earlier versions may have been constructed when sea levels were lower during the last ice age. Could Gunung Padang's architects have made it across the South Pacific to Micronesia? And if so, what happened to them? Well, I believe it has something to do with what happened around 12,800 years ago, when the Ice Age suddenly and quite dramatically shifted gears. Things had gradually been getting warmer for quite a long period of time. And then suddenly, two things happen at once. First, global temperatures plunge to the level that they were at the peak of the Ice Age, and they do so almost literally overnight. And secondly, there's a sudden and inexplicable rise in sea level. Now, normally, in an Ice Age, when you enter an episode of freezing, 
you do not expect to see a large amount of water dumped in the world ocean because that water has been turned into ice. What happened was a literal great flood. Between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, the oceans of the world rose dramatically in a series of immense deluges, one after another. Eventually, the great continent of Sundaland was engulfed by the sea, a lost world. It prompts the obvious question. Could there be more temples and structures out there in the Java Sea, still waiting to be discovered? Goodness knows what was lost to the rising sea levels. This epoch of immense floods would have traumatized all of humanity. And indeed, there's testimony that it did. Nearly every ancient culture preserved traditions of a great flood that swallowed up the earth. Here in Indonesia, the Batak people have their own version of this global flood myth. Once, long ago, the earth grew old and dirty. So the creator god Debata sent a great flood to cleanse the earth of every living thing. The last human pair had taken refuge on the highest mountain. But just as the waters were about to drown them, the god repented from ending humankind. He conjured a clod of earth into being, laid it on the rising flood, forming the islands of Indonesia. And thus the pair were saved. And the pair had children together to repopulate the earth, becoming the ancestors of the Batak people. It's a story of an ancient apocalypse that one finds again and again in traditions from all over the world, passed down for thousands of years. Of course, there's the account of Noah in the Bible. But Indian folklore also tells of a fisherman, Manu, who survived a great flood after being warned by a god. From the Sumerians to the Babylonians, the ancient Greeks to the Chinese, all have similar versions of the same tale. The notion that all of this is just a coincidence, just invented independently by individual cultures, doesn't make sense. No. All these things are probably tales that, of stories that people pass down from generation to generation that survived this time. Yeah, but truly global cataclysmic events involving rapid rises in sea level yeah. uh, did occur. And suddenly the, the worldwide tradition of a global flood stops being just a myth and starts being a memory, yeah. an account of, of real events. I'm fascinated by Indonesia's ancient history and the secrets it's beginning to reveal to us at Gunung Padang. But the way archaeology works, there's going to continue to be huge resistance to new evidence. And that's really problematic because science should be open to new evidence and it should be willing to change its mind when new evidence suggests that a change of mind is needed. What sort of reaction have you had from the archaeological profession? They're still not accepting it. Right. I regret because archaeologists or any other researchers just stop researching. That's very sad because at the very least there's an intriguing mystery here which archaeology should, should be paying attention to. If we could prove 
clearly and accept that is uh, advanced human cultures before 11,000 BC. That will be a big step. I've been arguing that there was a massive global cataclysm about 12,500 years ago that wiped out almost all traces. We're left with these haunting memories, which we try to dismiss and say, no, they're not memories. They're just folklore. They're just a myth. They're just a tradition. I think they're memories. I think they're real memories of something terrible that happened to our ancestors at the end of the last ice age. Preserved in legends, in art, and in stone. And they don't just talk of a great flood. They also reference survivors of the cataclysm, wise travelers who sowed the seeds of humanity's rebirth. It's a tradition that's particularly strong in the same ancient culture that created the largest man-made pyramid on Earth. It's where I'm headed next. And it's not Egypt. forgotten a vital part of our own story. I'm Graham Hancock, and many archaeologists hate me for trying to find out. The notion of a lost, advanced civilization of the Ice Age is extremely threatening to mainstream archaeology because it rips the ground out from under that entire discipline. It removes the foundation. I don't care about that. There's people that come along, and because of their impact, it changes the way people look at things. Graham Hancock is a man who, despite all of the insults and all the people disparaging his work, he has trekked on and on and on. What I care about is learning the lessons of the past in order to clear away that fog that surrounds prehistory. And it's a fog because there's no documents. We have to build our picture of the past from fragmentary evidence. Folk stories, legends, myths. These, for me, are all important evidence. And one of the most mysterious and revealing mythologies of prehistory comes down to us through the ancient cultures of Mexico. my search for a lost civilization, I've come to a land of fertile valleys and simmering volcanoes. This is the Puebla region, east of Mexico City. The site of this country's oldest continuously inhabited city, Cholula. Today, a modern metropolis of over 100,000 people it holds an ancient secret at its heart. 
history is written by the victors. That's especially true in Mexico. When the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Cholula in 1519, they massacred its inhabitants, obliterating not only their culture, but also almost all traces of the more ancient cultures that had preceded them. But the invaders couldn't erase everything. The conquistadors at first assumed this hill was just that, a hill, and they built a church on top of it. But this hill isn't the natural feature it's often mistaken for. In fact, it's the most massive monument ever built anywhere in the world. And yet, chances are you've never heard of it. This is the Great Pyramid of Cholula. After centuries of neglect and pillaging, it's impossible to understand the sheer enormity of what once stood here. But we do have some idea of what it must have looked like in its prime. It's estimated that the Great Pyramid of Cholula rose to at least 213 feet, 65 meters. Evidence suggests it was originally dedicated to the ancient Mexican god of rain and floods, whom the Aztecs knew by the name of Tlaloc. Built mostly with mud and straw adobe bricks, it wasn't as tall as Egypt's Great Pyramid of Giza, but it was larger, with nearly three times the footprint, measuring 400 by 400 meters at its base, roughly 30 football fields making this the largest monument ever constructed by any civilization anywhere. Archaeologists quickly established that work on the pyramid was completed around eight centuries ago, 1200 AD or thereabouts. But when they began cutting tunnels through the body of the structure, they were stunned by what they discovered inside. It's a surreal feeling, descending into the largest pyramid on Earth. Within are beautiful murals, depicting mythological scenes and creatures, and tantalizing glimpses of many layers of construction. Do they offer clues to this site's biggest mystery? Could it be part of a global legacy left behind by an ancient, advanced civilization of prehistory? I'm joined by one of the world's leading experts on the Great Pyramid of Cholula, University of Calgary anthropologist and archaeologist Jeff McCafferty. We're in the heart of the most massive monument ever built anywhere in the ancient world. You get almost the same sense as when you go into a church. You know, there's a, a tangible sense of an aura of that power. These tunnels were uh, excavated by Mexican archaeologists. There are a total of eight kilometers of tunnels. That's of, extraordinary, eight kilometers of tunnels. Yeah. Using these tunnels, Archaeologists made an astounding discovery. The 
Pyramid of Cholula is simply the latest in a whole series of more ancient pyramids hidden beneath. Inside is an even older pyramid, dating back to 800 AD or so. And beneath that, another one, dating at least 200 to 500 years earlier. Until, like a series of Russian nesting dolls, we get to what's thought to be the first and oldest pyramid built here. Still an impressive 120 meters square and 17 meters or 56 feet high. When did construction first begin here? So the earliest evidence of construction of the ceremonial zone dates to about 500 BC. It was a good-sized pyramid. Then over time, it was expanded, sort of larger construction over the top of the other. So this pyramid building project must have been carried out by multiple generations over a span of 1,700 years and possibly longer. A fact now acknowledged by archeologists. Yet modern scholarship knows next to nothing about the original architects or why they chose to build a pyramid here. Precisely the mysteries that most interest me. Do you get the sense of something maybe missing from the archeological and historical story of ancient Mexico? Well, not to be overly dramatic, but I think that a better understanding of Cholula would fundamentally change the perception of Mesoamerican history. It is a black hole. It is a black hole in Mexican history. Do you think there was something here before that first pyramid was built? The pyramid was built over an important spring. Yeah. A spring represents a, a passageway into the underworld. Mm -hmm. So it was clearly an important uh, sacred space as well as a ceremonial focus. The fact that the pyramid was the structure that was chosen to be built upon that site is not accidental. On the contrary, I believe it's a critical clue to understanding the motivations of the original builders, because that repeats a theme that we find all around the world. We've already uncovered evidence of a similar terraced pyramid in Indonesia at Gunung Padang that also has a sacred spring at its heart. It's a pattern found not just in Mexico or Indonesia. That's the case with the subterranean chamber beneath the Great Pyramid of Giza. In my view, that is the first sacred place on the Giza Plateau, and the pyramids are later built on top of it to honor it. The Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan sits on top of a natural cavern. They modified it somewhat, and then they built a pyramid on top of it. But the first thing was the place itself, the sacred place, and the pyramids mark this. You start off with a place that, for one reason or another, is regarded as sacred, that had a special magnetism that people could sense, that made it important and that made it matter. The Great Pyramid of Cholula shares another key feature with ancient pyramids all around the world. Hints of hidden chambers. 
not long after the Spanish conquest of Mexico, a reliable eyewitness, Father Bernardino de Sahagun, reported that the Great Pyramid of Cholula was full of mines and caves within. Today, modern investigators have confirmed that observation. One of the former archaeologists found somewhere inside the pyramid um, an open room, and there were tunnels leading into it. It's never been published. I don't know what the current situation is. That's a very tantalizing hint. <laughs> you um, think so? Has that, well, has that, has that room ever been excavated? Has it ever been revisited? Not that I know of. Why hasn't this inner chamber ever been revisited? What secrets could it hold about the intentions of the original builders? Regardless, the fact that the Great Pyramid of Cholula has a hidden inner chamber at all, like its cousins in Gunung Padang and Giza, is yet another striking feature shared by these structures. And there's more. So it's pretty well established that the structure is oriented to the setting sun on the summer solstice. That's correct. The sun is setting between the two volcanoes to the west. So it's very much a, a solstice-related orientation. We know that the indigenous Mesoamericans were very clued into astronomical cycles. As were the ancient Egyptians who built their Great Pyramid of Giza to align precisely to true astronomical north. The fact that these ancient pyramids, whose builders supposedly had no contact with one another, have so much in common is a mystery. Is it just coincidence? I don't think so. The general view that archaeology puts forward is that pyramids around the world were built in the form that they have because that's the easiest way to make a high building. The problem is that these structures are universally associated with very specific spiritual ideas. What happens to us after death? This is always connected with pyramid structures. And that's the case whether you find them in Mexico or whether you find them in ancient Egypt or whether you find them in Cambodia or whether you find them in India. It's a detail that defies the accepted mainstream view that various human civilizations around the world independently invented pyramids. What it suggests to me is that something else was going on behind the scenes. Could we be witnessing the unfolding of some extraordinary master plan? A shared legacy from a lost global civilization that provided the seeds and the spark of inspiration from which many later civilizations grew. It's a possibility that leads me to ask whether the pyramid building project at Cholula could have much older origins than most archaeologists want to believe. What about the dating of the structure? Are there any carbon dates from the earliest phases? No. We've got ceramics that are similar to ceramics from the basin of Mexico, dating to like a thousand BC. Does that give us enough to be confident about the whole story? No. No, I would say absolutely not. And there's just a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done throughout the prehistory of Mexico. Yeah. 
I'm not disputing the archaeological evidence that dates the first monumental construction on the site of the Great Pyramid of Cholula to around 2,300 years ago. But there are older pyramids in Mexico. And what really interests me are the ideas that underpin them all. By 1519, when the Spanish conquistadors arrived, Cholula's Great Pyramid had fallen into disrepair. But when they realized it was much more than just a hill and asked who built it, the locals regaled them with a fascinating legend. According to myth, the Great Pyramid of Cholula was the work of a race of giants. Once upon a time, there were giants in ancient Mexico until the rain god Tlaloc grew angry and sent a great flood to destroy them. Only seven survived the cataclysm. Fearing that a second deluge might follow, the giant, Chelwa, known as the architect, went to Cholula and with the help of its people, built a massive artificial mountain out of bricks, a pyramid, and dedicated it to the worship of Tlaloc, the rain god. Archaeologists regard this as just a fanciful tale. But I think that by ignoring it completely, we're in danger of missing some important clues to the origins of this incredible place. Perhaps that architect who appeared in Cholula after a great flood wasn't a physical giant, but one of the intellectual giants of an advanced civilization lost to history. We shouldn't expect the evidence to be easy to find, precisely because, as at Cholula, ancient monuments are often located directly on top of still older constructions, obscuring their origins. About a two-hour drive to the northwest, another remarkable site offers me my next clue. Perched atop this uniquely shaped hill is an ancient Aztec complex known as Texcotzingo. Here at Texcotzingo, we encounter a pyramid again, this time a creation of the Earth herself. It's easy to understand why this place could have exerted a powerful magnetism on the ancients. Pyramids clearly mattered in ancient Mexico. Here in the 15th century, the Aztecs built a remarkable network of garden terraces and pools, fed by cleverly constructed aqueducts that carried water down from a reservoir at the mountain's top. It's like the hanging gardens of Babylon, Mesoamerican style. But intriguingly, for my investigations, all of it was dedicated to the same ancient god associated with the earliest pyramid at Cholula. Tlaloc, the god of rains and floods, whose cult long predated the Aztecs. Archaeologists believe that the Aztecs were the first to pay attention to Texcoatzingo. But could this incredible site be much older? 
The Spanish conquistadors took it for granted that Texcotzingo was entirely the work of the Aztecs. And that is what most archaeologists will tell you too. But what if the Aztecs simply renovated and added to a site originally created by a much older civilization? Author Marco Bigato believes the evidence suggests that's exactly what happened. This site was clearly reworked over a very long period of time. The rock was a very hard type of porphyry stone. If you look around at this site here, you see that some of the stone surfaces are very heavily weathered. Some parts of the site that clearly show evidence of erosion it must have continued for thousands of years, taking into account this is an extremely hard type of stone. Right, so in your view, the Aztecs, well, we know they were latecomers, mm -hmm. uh, but they found this site at least partially uh, worked already, and they took it over and developed right. it further. Right. It's a radical thought. Could a much older culture have carved out some of the more unusual features on the side of the hill? Like these deeply weathered megaliths strewn on the ground. And this chamber, carved out of the bedrock. This was almost certainly a pre-Aztec site. It was simply reoccupied and reused. It's a conclusion archaeologists would dispute, but there's some relevant evidence to consider. Not far away, in a dried-up riverbed at the foot of a mountain, a huge statue of the rain god Tlaloc was uncovered. The largest single cut stone in the entire Americas. Archaeologists have dated it to around 700 AD, long before the Aztecs dominated these lands. It's proof that Tlaloc, the rain god, had already been worshipped in this area by earlier cultures, perhaps under several different names, for nearly a thousand years, and maybe longer. In fact, Tlaloc as a mythological character goes back all the way to the earliest known cultures of prehistoric Mexico. And he's not alone. The global flood sent by the rain god sets the stage for the appearance of the most intriguing character in Mexican mythology, Quetzalcoatl. After the great flood, a stranger from the east landed on Mexico's shores, riding on a boat with no paddles, said to be carried by serpents. His name was Quetzalcoatl, meaning the feathered serpent. He and his followers taught the locals how to grow crops and domesticate animals. He gave them laws and instructed them in the ways of architecture, astronomy, and the arts. They worshipped him as a deity. But after being violently ousted by the followers of a Mexican war god, Quetzalcoatl sailed away towards the east, promising one day to return. The legend of Quetzalcoatl has been told for generations, even down to today. 
get a description of a heavily bearded individual. He sounds a bit like a foreigner from across the ocean, and he brings the gifts of civilization. What I find so astonishing is how often we've heard this story from cultures that supposedly had no connection with ancient Mexico. Setting is always the same. There has been a giant cataclysm. The world has been plunged into darkness, floods, chaos everywhere. Society is collapsing. And then, out of the darkness, appears a figure who has knowledge of what is necessary to make a civilization. And that figure teaches the demoralized survivors of the cataclysm how to start civilization again. In ancient Greek mythology, it's the Titan Prometheus who, after a great flood, shares with humans the secret of fire. In the South American Andes, pre-Inca civilizations describe a robed, bearded figure named Viracocha. Who emerged from a great lake and taught the local people how to create amazing works of masonry that still exist today. Even in the Pacific, Polynesian legends talk of Maui, who created their islands by pulling them up from the ocean floor, and then taught the islanders to work with stone tools and to cook their food. Archaeologists say that these civilizing heroes are just inventions of the ancients, elaborate fictions. But I find the similarities hard to ignore. What if these accounts describe the survivors of an advanced civilization that was lost in the great cataclysms of flood and fire that we know occurred near the end of the last ice age? of Mexico and the story of Quetzalcoatl in particular are tied to just such an apocalyptic moment. And Marco believes there's a record of it, just a few hours drive south of Mexico City, amongst the ancient temples of Chochicalco. Like Cholula, this city was originally built by an indigenous culture we know little about in the 7th century AD. Here you'll find the remains of two large pyramids, one dedicated to the rain god, and the other dedicated to Mexico's civilizing hero, Quetzalcoatl. I've come here to learn more about these so-called mythical characters. For archaeologists, myths are fanciful fragmentary. They ignore them completely in their attempts to reconstruct the past. But here at Xochicalco, some researchers see an attempt to create a permanent record of one of the most important myths in ancient Mexico, a record they believe that preserves a forgotten episode in prehistory. Wrapped around the four sides of Quetzal, Sarcoatl's temple are intricate carvings of this deity in his manifestation as the feathered serpent. Clearly, he was an important figure even back in 700 AD. But Marco believes 
caves, these glyphs carved in stone, may reveal missing details from his origin story. What's special about this temple? So what you have on the lower tier of the pyramid is really a representation of uh, the arrival of Quetzalcoatl that unfolds on the three sides of the pyramid until we get here, the first uh, significant leaf here. And what you see there is a flaming temple. You have these uh, scrolls of smoke or fire. As though it's on fire. Right, right, exactly. What about the, the coils of the serpent around it? How do you read those in this context? Right, well, this is the tail of the serpent yeah. that sort of wraps around this flaming temple. It almost looks like a wave hitting okay. the, the temple from the side. You could almost uh, see that as a representation of an island. So we have a temple which is on fire and waves are washing over it in your exactly. reading. Yeah, yeah. Give me your interpretation of this scene, Marco. You have this uh, clearly powerful sitting figure who looks like a wrath of snakes uh, that's uh, almost heading away from the direction of this flaming temple. What you're seeing here is the depiction of a cataclysm which occurs in a certain place which Quetzalcoatl then is a survivor of. You have this idea of the god coming from a land that was destroyed. And what you have is the arrival of the god Quetzalcoatl here in Mexico as a founder of Mesoamerican civilization. It's a chronicle that goes back to a very remote past. Marco's reading of the temple's glyphs as a depiction of an ancient apocalypse flies in the face of all archaeological opinion. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's wrong. The Temple of the Feathered Serpent is about 1,300 years old, and archaeologists are right to say that there was no global cataclysm in that epoch that could have inspired the Quetzalcoatl myth. This misses the point. The tradition is certainly much older than the temple, how much older no one knows, but there's one period of prehistory that fits the bill perfectly. Geologists have confirmed that there was an ancient apocalypse of some kind, a period of great cataclysms and floods that had as big an impact here as it did nearly everywhere else in the world. Sometime at the end of the last ice age, around 12,800 years ago, could the story of Quetzalcoatl's arrival date back as far as that? I do not question the age of the structure itself. What you have here is just the telling of a story. It is, in fact, much, much older. So perhaps what's sadly lacking in archaeology is an archaeology of ideas. Perhaps they focus too much on the dates of a particular construction and don't consider the ideas that it's expressing. Right. If we're willing to look back beyond the artificial horizons that archaeology sets, then the myth at once begins to make sense. Not as a fanciful account of imagined events, but as a true record of a lost and forgotten past. Archaeologists reject any such suggestion. But I find it impossible to ignore how widespread these tales of civilizing heroes are. Sometimes speaking of gods, sometimes of humans, who come in a time of chaos after the great cataclysm. 
teaching the skills of agriculture, architecture, engineering, and astronomy to the survivors. In these traditions, I believe, the fingerprints of a lost civilization are to be found. So where was this lost civilization based before the cataclysm that destroyed it? There are many possibilities that have never been properly considered. Because as we've seen, at the height of the last ice age, the planet looked very different. But further clues await us, a quarter of the way around the world. There, just as in Cholula, dozens of immense temples were believed to have been built by an ancient race of giants. On islands that once weren't islands. In the heart of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where my journey takes me next. To a gigantic riddle in stone. The mysterious megaliths of Malta. Traveling through the Gaia world here, everyone. You got a good idea? Okay. I just have a sense that um, we're unraveling the very end of the end of the end of a very, very old story. And this is kind of interesting because this is a foundation that we can take another direction from. The creativity of our our minds and hearts you know you could do something like this Rama how about these things mm-hmm. you want to do that one okay okay this is something from a while back but we never played it this goes all the way back to 2021 in November, late November. And it's called Lemuria, Mu, Atlantis, and Egypt. It is, is it possible Egypt was seeded by the Atlantean civilization? I'm sure that's yes, to preserve their legacy. Join esoteric researcher Johnny Enoch as he digs into epochs past and why stories of sunken cities are vital to our understanding of history and what we inherited from the ancients. Exploring humanity's hidden history from Pangaea to the present, Enoch explains how cyclical cataclysms 
fact-based geology and ancient texts co-relate with old and new research on the last civilization of Mu to paint a new picture of our origins. You're ready. Here we go. This is a 25 minutes. Here we go. mystery teachings. According to esoteric teachings, survivors of lost ancient civilizations seeded us through the mystery schools and left behind a trail of symbolic breadcrumbs. In this episode, we will explore the origins of our ancient progenitors, what happened to them, and their influence on us today. Traditionally, there have been many theories about submerged continents such as Hyperborea or Plaxia which was believed to exist in the far north of the Arctic Circle. It was mentioned by our ancient historians like Herodotus and Pliny the Elder. We're told that they were a beautiful race of giants and used flying machines to circumnavigate the earth. They inhabited a land free from disease and old age where the sun would shine 24 hours a day. Then there was Mu in the Pacific Islands where Hawaii and Vanuatu is today. Well, probably the most famous of these legends comes from Atlantis and Lemuria. The theories about Lemuria come from a 19th century British lawyer and zoologist, Philip Sclater, who was perplexed by the presence of lemur fossils in Madagascar and in India after none could be found in mainland Africa or the Middle East. In 1864, he wrote an article entitled The Mammals of Madagascar, where he theorized that Madagascar and India were once part of a larger submerged continent in the Indian Ocean called Lemuria. And for a while, his theory was really starting to take off and was adopted everywhere. But what's confusing about this subject is that while some people use the name Lemuria as being synonymous with Atlantis or Mu, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It actually has a very specific geographically and linguistic connection. In my conversations with J.P. Hagg, a British lawyer and researcher living in Mauritius, he tells me that lemur is an ancient Malgesh word from Madagascar, meaning the souls of the departed. At the turn of the 20th century, it seemed like Sclater's Lemuria theory was completely debunked due to new sciences emerging at the time about continental drift and plate tectonics. However, that didn't stop Tamil revisionists from adopting the story into their literature around India, which they already had a similar pre-existing theory from around the second century CE that was written in the Salap Adi Karam, one of the five great Tamil epic stories. It was about this ancient place called Kumari Kandam that was ruled by the Pandian kings for 9,990 years. It says in there that the cruel sea took their land. The Tamil writers would also claim that this was the place where the Brahmins or priests reside, where Shiva was worshipped and where the Vedas are recited. Lemuria was even mentioned by the great Russian occultist and psychic Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, 
In the secret doctrine, Lemuria was called Shamali, and it was a lush, beautiful tropical paradise until volcanoes erupted everywhere, destroying it and submerging it underwater. According to theosophists, Lemuria began over 34.5 million years ago. It was inhabited by a hermaphrodite race of giants that were 15 feet tall, had four arms, and were coexisting with the dinosaurs around the middle of the Jurassic period. They would later evolve into various primitive hominid groups. The idea of a submerged continent is not hard to imagine if you think of places like Port Royal in Jamaica, just outside of Kingston, which was once a bustling port city of great importance to the British Empire and home to the pirates Sir Henry Morgan. Two-thirds of the town, or 33 acres, sunk into the sea within hours and disappeared off the map after an earthquake in 1692. And there are countless other places like this, such as Thonis Heracleon, just outside of Alexandria in Egypt, or the underwater temples discovered near Okinawa in Japan, and the submerged pyramids off the west coast of Cuba. In recent years, new interest has emerged into Sclater's Lemuria theory, and you might even say he's been vindicated. In fact, scientists have made important discoveries on the island of Mauritius, claiming that not only does this part of the Indian Ocean have a strong gravitational pull, indicating a thicker crust below, but they found a strange mineral crystal on its beaches called zircon that's three billion years old and has radioactive particles. This has puzzled geologists since Mauritius is only eight million years old. There's also a land bridge off the northwestern coast of Sri Lanka that connects to India and is made from limestone shoals or sandbars. It's called Rama's Bridge because of a story we get from the Indian epic, the Ramayana, when Rama is sent into exile by his father and has to rescue his wife Sita from Ravana, a ten-headed demon king. In order to complete that, he and his brother Lakshmana assemble a large army of ape-like men, but they need a way to cross the water. This is when they get help in its construction from the Vanaras, or the forest people. According to the story, the bridge was built in five days and was 100 leagues in length. This structure has also been called Adam's Bridge, which it's believed in Islam that this is the place that Adam fell from the Garden of Eden. But what's fascinating about that is that geologists now tell us that these places are in fact connected and the continent of Mauritius was part of an enormous supercontinent called Gondwana, which broke up and became Antarctica, Africa, Australia, and South America. Another interesting fact is that we know that the sand on the beach of Australia actually comes from Antarctica and is hundreds of millions of years old. Another strange fact is that Lake Titicaca in Peru is over 12,500 feet above sea level and has fossilized seashells and seahorses in it. Not only do we believe it was once a great seaport, but we know that the Andes are relatively new mountains. In other words, someone managed to get up there fast enough to build walls around the place. When I visited those parts with Brian Forrester, I was captivated by the megalithic structures at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku in Bolivia, where we find evidence for advanced machining and magnetic anomalies around the infamous H-blocks. The whole place is crawling with subterranean networks. 
Even the blocks there show vitrification from some sort of extreme heat or scorching by a cataclysmic event. But what I find most interesting about Mauritius is that there are these seven ancient pyramids there aligned with the bodies of Orion built from volcanic rock. Also think about what Blavatsky tells us with the eruptions of volcanoes destroying Lemuria. Nearby, there are connected islands and strange mountains in the shape of a skull and a lion or a sphinx shape. But speaking of pyramids and sphinxes, we cannot leave this subject without talking about Atlantis. The location of Atlantis has been speculated by countless scholars. We have the traditional theory held by Manley P. Hall, Ignatius Donnelly, and Blavatsky, who said that Atlantis was probably located in the middle of the Atlantic Ridge. That's right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, in the story, we learn about something known as the Pillars of Hercules. Well, those could be the Rock of Gibraltar. And then, of course, we would see the Azores and Canary Islands acting like their mountain peaks with a slow migration coming out while Europe was still under ice, melting after the last ice age. Even Rudolf Steiner, who used a science called anthroposophy, an earlier type of remote viewing or psychic archaeology, to look at what he called the Atlantean Epoch, claimed that it existed at a time when Europe was not even around. Why the Lemuria story is important is that we're told that Atlantis was an extension of the survivors of Lemuria in the same way that Egypt was an extension of the Atlanteans. They inherited their rituals, they inherited their teachings in the very same way that we are inheriting those of the ancient civilizations that came before us today. But if Egypt was an extension of the Atlanteans, we find similar structures to there all over the world. For example, we find pyramids on both sides of the Atlantic. We find pyramids over in Mexico with Chichen Itza, over in Teotihuacan. We find them over in Tikal in Guatemala. There's over 140 pyramids in the Azorean Islands, and some of the largest pyramids in the world are found in China. This was a continental diffusion of culture. Where I think people go wrong in theorizing the location of Atlantis is they think much too small. When we want to imagine where these great pre-cataclysmic civilizations existed, we have to think of these supercontinents or think of Pangaea, where when we look at a map or an atlas, you see it looks like all the continents fit together like puzzle pieces. Even in the Bible, we find in Genesis 10, 25, it says, And to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. This is literally telling us that we have records of a great continental diffusion of cultures. Well, we know that the original Atlantis story at the Temple Nefru has since washed away on the Nile Delta, we find an exact copy of that story over at the Temple of Edfu in Egypt. When I visited there with Egyptologist Mohammed Ibrahim, he's decoded the entire story on the wall for me as we see these great seafaring people. And what's really interesting about the advanced knowledge and culture they brought with them, on the walls we notice that there is a great cataclysmic event portrayed above them, with a serpent that is coming down to destroy them. 
And while some authors and researchers out there like Graham Hancock have theorized that this illustration depicts an asteroid of sorts coming towards the Earth, we know in the mysteries that the serpent always represents electromagnetic energy. I think that what happened is around 12,000 years ago, the Atlanteans were experimenting with this energy and gravity using our Earth's grid of ley lines harnessed by the power of pyramids and obelisks, causing something that geologists call the Younger Dryas Cataclysm or the Meltwater Pulse 1B. This melted the polar ice caps, causing sea levels to rise. And what we would have found is there was a shift in the axis of the Earth by 23 and a half degrees, moving the equatorial lines. But I think there could have been a combination of asteroids and solar eruptions. This would have caused a change in the Earth's gravitational fields, causing a mini ice age. That means that the North and South Pole would have been very different places. As even Emmanuel Velikovsky points out in Worlds in Collision, that we can find flash-frozen tropical flora and fauna and mammals in the Arctic. When I visited the ancient temples of Egypt with Brian Forrester, we've gone to places like Luxor and Karnak, and Brian has used various instruments like his Tesla meters to measure the pre-cataclysmic entrances to the temples. And what he's found is that these are 23 and a half degrees off from the cardinal directions of north, east, south, west. This proves the theory that these temples existed at a time before the cataclysms. At that point, we're told that the surface of the earth became unlivable, so these groups descended into the subterranean depths of the earth. One author named Valerie Bonwick has a very interesting series of books, which she claims to be in telepathic contact with the survivors of Atlantis, called the Dagonites, and tells us that they have underwater bases to this day. Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, tells us that before the destruction of this great continent, the Atlanteans were scientifically advanced and had flying machines and submarines. Could their survivors have seeded our civilizations after the cataclysms? I tend to think so. We learn from Diordus of Sicily, who wrote in the Bibliotheque Historica in 50 BCE, that the Egyptians were strangers who, in remote times, settled on the banks of the Nile, bringing with them the civilization of their mother country, which might have been Atlantis, the art of writing in a polished language. They'd come from the direction of the setting sun, or the far west, and were the most ancient of men. So we know that the Atlanteans spread out after these cataclysms. According to Plutarch, the gods of ancient Egypt were actually the antediluvian or pre-cataclysmic kings who were deified or made into gods after death. This was probably the way that the dynastic Egyptians saw them as these great gods or their progenitors, the survivors of Atlantis. Perhaps J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings wasn't far off when he talked about the Middle Earth. As we've heard about the inhabitants of Cappadocia, Turkey, the tunnels used by the Templar Knights under Scotland, and the Tuat the Danann, of the people of the goddess of Danu in Ireland, that arrived onto their shores with flying ships, only later to flee underground with the arrival of the Fear Bullet, or the men with bags. Maybe some of you have heard of the men with bags, as we find pictures of them from all over the world. 
Some theorize all kinds of crazy things, like maybe they're holding some kind of psychedelic substance and they're handing it to primitive people out of their bags, or this is some sort of weapon from the future that has electromagnetic qualities. But the answer is more mundane, as we find them from the Assyrians, the Akkadians, the Phoenician Canaanites, the Etruscans, and many people do trip out on them. But when I wanted to get the story about them, I had to visit the British Museum and talk to the historians about these depictions that we find on the reliefs or the depictions on the walls at the Assyrian section of the museum. Their answer was very interesting. When we look at them directly, you see they're holding something in their hand. I was told that is the date or the date palm. And in their bag, I'm told that that is pollen. Why that's very interesting is that these are the ancient pollinators of humanity. We know the date palm has long since been associated in the Middle East with beekeepers that need a beehive for harvesting honey. What's also very interesting about this symbology is that all the early Egyptian and Babylonian kings were called the beekeepers. When Adam Weishaupt was first starting the Bavarian Illuminati on May 1st, 1776, he originally wanted to call them the beekeepers. In fact, we find this symbolism is very important to Freemasonry and our secret societies, as the little honeybee is very industrious and it's associated with hard work and determination. We even find that the coin of Ephesus had a bee on it. When we examine the headdress of the nimbus of the Egyptian king, According to Manley P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, not only does this represent the auric body or the energy field, but we might also look at it as representing the honeybee. This is very important when we consider the fact that the early Egyptian kings were all called the beekeepers, and this represents their role as the great pollinators of humanity. But speaking of ancient worlds, when we go back to J.R.R. Tolkien, we know he spent a lot of time writing in a pub near the Cliffs of Moor, right next to the Gollum Caves. And of course, in the story, Smeagol turns into the Gollum creature, obsessed with a golden ring forged by Dark Lord Sauron in the fires of Mount Doom as he hissed, my precious. Do we have anthropological evidence for such extinct races and civilizations? Well, we have to look no further than a short ancient hominin race that lived over 17,000 years ago that are literally called hobbits, or Homo florsensis. They were discovered on the Flores Island of Indonesia. And then there are the legends of the four-foot-tall pygmy people who inhabited Greenland in northern Canada, mentioned in the 16th century by the geographer Mercator. We're told they were wiped out by large and aggressive birds or cranes. Manly P. Hall tells us in The Secret Teachings of All Ages that today's civilization was inherited from the Atlanteans with our arts and crafts, philosophies and sciences, ethics and religions, but also our hate, our strife and our perversions. The Atlanteans instigated the first war and all other wars after those were fought in a fruitless effort to justify the first one and right the wrong which it caused. Blavatsky tells us in her work, Ices Unveiled, that Atlantis became corrupted and fell under an evil ruler of the air, Tetvatat. This caused the Atlanteans to become wicked magicians, or maybe we could say scientists, and a war was declared. This was created out of a disfigured allegory of the race of Cain or giants and the story of Noah. 
If we think about the famous story of Noah's Ark for a moment, biblical scholars maintain that it can be found on top of Mount Ararat in present-day Armenia. This is very significant when we think of the story as Noah the Atlantean. After all, we're told that much like the story of the flood in Genesis, where the water rose up from the earth of the underwater mantle, Atlantis suffered earthquakes and floods, swallowing it up as we find a lot of interesting clues when we look up at migration patterns towards high-altitude places like the Ural Mountains in Eurasia, Machu Picchu, or Tibet. Blavatsky goes on to say, The conflict came to an end by the submersion of the Atlantis, which finds its imitation in the stories of the Babylonian and Mosaic flood. The giants and magicians and all flesh died in every man, all except Exutherus and Noah, who are substantially identical with the great father of the Thlinkithians in the Popol Vol or the sacred book of the Guatemalans, which also tells of his escaping in a large boat like the Hindu Noah, Vaiswasvata. We know before Atlantis was submerged underwater, its spiritually illumined masters and initiates recognized that Atlantis was on a path of destruction and it deviated from the light. So they established themselves in Egypt, where they became the first divine rulers. These priests brought with them the sacred and secret doctrine, which is where the myth of the dying god, astrological sciences, the cross and the serpentine rulers came from. Even the colors of red, white, and blue that we find on the American flag came from Atlantis. This is also connected to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Nearly all our great cosmological myths forming the foundation of the various sacred books of the world are based upon the Atlantean mystery traditions. Another great secret about how the Atlantis story has been preserved is that if you go into the last book of the Bible called Revelation, this is based on something called the Book of the Apocalypse. But if you ask any good Christian out there who wrote the Book of Revelation, they will tell you it came from John of Patmos. But of course we know that John of Patmos is belonging to something called the Johannian or Johannian theory that attributes this book to him. But all the great church fathers that came along from Martin Luther to Erasmus, they all dismissed this. They said the book of Revelation was not a Christian book and it was tossed out of the Bible over a dozen times. We know that when Christianity came to take over paganism and Christianize the mysteries, this was a way of the pagan doctrines being preserved. In fact, if you go to any good minister and ask them to really decode what the symbolism in this book means, they'll have a pretty hard time really telling you its origins. The reason for that is that this book comes from these very ancient monks that lived on that island called Patmos in this rocky area of the Aegean Sea. They served two gods. One of those gods' name was Attis, and the other was Ion, the god of the air and electricity. This is just like, as Blavatsky said, the Atlanteans were ruled over by an invisible serpent king of the air called Tetvatat. Well, Ion was this god that was ruling over them and gave them this book of the apocalypse. Well, in this story, we find that it is essentially the Atlantis story. In the Atlantis story, we have the seven cities Well, in the book of Revelation, when it was Romanized, we know that there are seven hills of Rome. It's talking about a warning for an advanced civilization that you don't want to take a mark 
to buy, sell, or trade, and it's describing a beast system, which very much sounds like some sort of artificial intelligence or other sorts of advanced systems that led to the corruption and the downfall of the Atlanteans. But the Atlantis story doesn't end there, as the mystery schools have seeded many civilizations, which every time one is destroyed, another rises from the ashes like the great Phoenician firebird known as the Phoenix. This brings us to the story of Sir Francis Bacon in the 16th century. Sir Francis Bacon is known as the father of modern Freemasonry. We know he was born Francis Tudor, and he was the bastard son of Queen Elizabeth. According to esoteric teachings, Francis Bacon was the true identity of William Shakespeare. This comes from something known as the Baconian theory, where we're told that there's no way that Shakespeare, who was a Stratford man who could barely spell his own name, could write these brilliant and incredible books with so many layers of different analogies and ideas and stories. And what we're told is that he was writing these books to prepare the minds of the civilization for something he called the New Atlantis, which was the great plot to build America from the Masonic orders and secret societies. These great works were a way of elevating our consciousness and bringing us to a point where we wouldn't make the same mistakes as the past. In the very same way, you might say that we are currently evolving for our next great unfolding of civilization. If there's a takeaway from studying Atlantis, Lemuria, an ancient civilization, we know that they rose to greatness. We know at times they were drunk on ambition and had the psychosis of success, which later became their downfall. As we look to the future, let us not make the same mistakes as the past, but grow from all that we have inherited from them. We should ask ourselves, how can we be of service to others? be more kind and compassionate, and learn to be the caretakers of this planet. Let us grow and evolve together into an even greater civilization than ever before. I'm Johnny Enoch, and thanks for watching Mystery Teachings. It's really time, isn't it, Rama? Mm -hmm. We can tell. Yeah. Things that's things we've been playing is everything's pointing to this new civilization mm. where we're going to be civilized, right? Uh, what a thought. Pardon? What a thought. <laughs> okay, we're going to do something. Two, three, four. Yes, we've played these things before, but we're going to do some stories from the stage. Mm -hmm. So let's see what we've got. This is called Through Thick and Thin. Let's see. Let's turn it up. There is a wall of black clouds barreling toward us. But for once, I am not afraid because I'm in first class. My parents sat us down and told us that they were losing the little blue house 
don't happen. We stand in formation, holding our salutes. Let us have soldiers placed onto a helicopter, and we hold it until the helicopter can no longer be seen. Tonight's theme is Through Thick and Thin. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. So they say that challenges build character, right? But sometimes when you're in the middle of that challenge, it is extremely difficult to keep pushing and finding your way through to the other side. Sometimes we feel hopeless. But when we're able to muster up that courage and find some perseverance, you might just find yourself one step closer to your dream. My name is Linda Button, and I live in the Boston area. I head up a communications for a large nonprofit. I have two kids and three stepkids and um, a wonderful partner. And I understand that your writing has appeared in the New York Times and Boston Magazine, and you're currently working on a memoir. What sparked your interest in storytelling? I used to like fiction, and then life kind of tapped on my shoulder and said, I can do one better. I think we each have life experiences that other people have had too, and it's great to share those. You tend to include humor in your stories. Can you talk about your approach to that? When do you find it most challenging? You know, humor, I think it's like that really important spice in any dish because life is so absurd sometimes. But I also find in the writing side, it's the hardest part. So after I write a draft, I'll go through and look at opportunities for humor as almost a layer to put on to something. And sort of the opposite, too. If I'm glib about something, it usually deserves a, a little bit more digging um, to be more real. I'm waiting for my husband at Logan Airport at the gate of the Boston-Philadelphia shuttle. This is many years ago on a bright, busy day. Everyone in a suit has already boarded the plane, and I am alone, pacing, yelling into my phone, wondering where the blank my husband is. Three minutes, says the gate attendant. We cannot miss this flight. We have a meeting with our biggest client, this enormous cable company based in Philadelphia. You see, my husband and I run an ad agency together, and we've been married about 20 years. So this is a familiar situation. Now my husband, he is the charming half of us as a couple. He's that guy at the party that everyone gathers around, drinks mid-sip, enthralled with whatever story he's telling. As his best friend says, it's like he's tapped into this mysterious energy force and the rest of us wanna tap into it too. I certainly did especially the early days, you know, before the business. I am the worrywart half of the couple, the martyr. <laughs> the one who's like, no, I don't need any help. So my husband was clients, I write ads, and that's not a bad balance for a business or a marriage. But lately, the balance has been a little off. We also have completely different relationships with time. I measure minutes by the teaspoon. 
That's how I keep our lives glued together. My husband, on the other hand, considers deadlines suggestions. He is always late, but never this late, and, and not for such an important client. One minute, says the gate attendant. I used to love that moment in flight where you, the tires lift off the tarmac and the whole world spills out in front of you. That ended the day we had our first child. And suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, someone needs me back on earth. So now at the slightest bump, I grab onto the arm of my husband or whoever is sitting next to me and I weep with relief on landing. This is all going through my head as I'm walking back and forth and the gate attendant, that woman has been watching me. She calls over, it's time. So I hoist on my backpack and I hand her my ticket. She scans the seating chart. Oh, we have one seat left in first class. Shall I upgrade you for free? First class? Free? I, I don't even know what to say when suddenly I feel my husband right behind me. <laughs> See, he says, I made it. He always does. And he is all smiles and charm and no apology, as usual. First class, she says again. Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. And, and it dawns on my husband that I have been offered something that does not include him. <laughs> what, he says? You're, you're going to abandon me and coach alone? You bet. <laughs> That's what he gets always being late, right? So I walk on the jetway and I find my seat in first class. And my husband trudges behind me with the bags and disappears into coach. The first class attendant swooshes the curtains together and secures them. <laughs> Another one offers me a tray of champagne. I unfold that secret little table in the armrest, smooth out the cloth napkin, and take a glass. <laughs> My husband has poked his head through the curtain. <laughs> He looks a little like Jack Nicholson, you know, in The Shining. <laughs> and then he says in this deep, godlike voice, as if he is summoning the powers of the universe, you will be punished. <laughs> and he smiles, so I know he's teasing. And I tilt my glass at him, and the flight attendant shoo-shoes him away. I open a book and settle in. We're just outside of Philadelphia when the pilot comes on and announces that everyone should buckle up because we're headed into bumpy air. Don't you love that expression, bumpy air? I look out the window and sure enough, there is a wall of black clouds barreling toward us. But for once, I'm not afraid because I'm in first class. <laughs> Nothing can hurt me there. I open my book again and resume reading. Bang! Was that a bomb? The, the plane jumps, the lights flare bright white, and then pfft, 
go out completely. We are rocking like a token world. I look over to the flight attendants for reassurance, and they look stricken. Someone is screaming. Oh, that's me. <laughs> I'm screaming. Oh, I'm I'm still screaming. And then the flight levels out. Lights flicker back on. I unpry my hands from the armrests. My heart is beating in my ears. And the flight attendant smooths her uniform and picks up the mic and says, "Well, folks, first class just got hit by a little lightning. Nothing to worry about. This happens all the time." <laughs> This does not happen all the time. <laughs> I, I have flown so many business flights through storms and over mountains. This has never ever happened to me before. <laughs> There's my husband. This time, he looks exactly like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> See, he says, "Told ya." Wow, he really does have the entire cosmos on his side. And maybe I shouldn't have taken that seat in first class. We land and we're rolling our bags through the airport, laughing at what just happened because it was remarkable. And as he's sort of savoring the story again, going through each detail. I sense glee in his voice. He thinks I deserved what happened, and maybe I did. But not what he thinks happened. I deserved that moment of kindness that the woman at the gate offered to me. The odds of getting hit by lightning are one in one thousand hours of flight time. And you know what? I feel really lucky I got hit. I survived one of my worst fears. I landed. I got back to my kids safely, and I learned maybe not to worry so much. I also learned that if you're lucky and you play your cards right, some of life's lessons come with free champagne. Thank you. Here in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm a second-grade teacher by day. I dabble in investments. I love to dance and travel. I have a five-year-old daughter and a ten-year-old son, and then I live in Dorchester with my family. Where do you think you get your knack for storytelling? Hands down, absolutely, my dad. My dad is the biggest and best storyteller ever. And storytelling is not a word、um, used a lot, I think, in the black community. So I'd never heard that. But once I figured out and found out what it was, like in the Webster dictionary, next to storyteller should be a picture of my dad. And、uh, what kind of stories do you like to tell? So I tell adult stories、um, that are true from my life, and I also tell stories to children. So when it comes to the adult stories, like the personal stories, why are those stories important for you to share? When you share stories, you learn so much. You learn. People who hear them learn. 
it's a great way to educate and inspire and to relate to people and let them know that this happens to many people all across the global universe. Serena, we need you to come straight home after work. Your father and I need to speak to you. It's an emergency. Now, my sister received the same message. Neither one of us came straight home. When we finally came straight home, my parents sat us down and told us that they were losing the little blue house that we had grown up in. And I was devastated. My parents bought this little blue house in Boston in 1979 for $30,000. My mother had this beautiful exotic rose garden in the front. My father had this delicious vegetable garden in the back. There were tulips and crocuses on the side, a rainbow of them that would greet us every spring. That The kitchen always smelled like homemade goodness. Music was always playing in the background. Someone was always coming over. The door was literally always open. This was my happy place. My stomach churned and churned, and I'm thinking, oh, snap, this is totally my fault. See, I was the first one in my family to go to college, and my first year of tuition cost $60,000. Now, I kind of remember some talk of refinancing, but I didn't exactly know what that meant, but this was my fault. But wait, my parents, they had a plan. They said they were going to file for bankruptcy and then ask a loving relative to put the house in their name. My sister and I were going to contribute to the mortgage, and that was cool. Okay, we can do that. All right, plan. The Webb household deteriorated quickly. See, a few months prior, my dad's job told him he had too much vacation time, so he had to use it or lose it. So naturally, he used it. Two months worth of vacation, and when he got back, they told him that they were letting him go. See, my dad was up for a big, well-deserved promotion, and he was passed over once again for a younger white male with a degree. My parents started to argue all the time. My world was upside down. But me, this was a time of my life. I mean, I was 25. I had the job of my dreams. I was a dance teacher. I was in a dance company. I was touring, performing. I was getting paid to do the thing that I love to do. I knew I had to help my family. So I turned to the most powerful person in Boston, the person who was making moves all over Boston. I wrote a three-page detailed letter to Mayor Menino. <laughs> I never heard from Mayor Menino, but I did get a call from Joe. Joe told me family first. He said he would send us Renee. I didn't know who Renee was, but I told my parents and they were hopeful. Renee came to our house and she was a beautiful caramel color. Her hair was all layered and she had very fancy glasses. She sat down on the couch and she laid out all the paperwork and read them in depth. There was a lot of, oh, her eyes got big and it was, oh, oh, mm, good Lord, oh. A 
eventually Renee turned to me and she said, Tarina, on paper, it looks like your family sold this house for a lot of money. Although no actual money had passed between my family and my relative. But somewhere on this paper, there were thousands of dollars missing, unaccounted for, just not there. At this point, Renee gave me a real estate 101 hard knocks lesson. I learned about predatory lending, not having an attorney present, cash out refinances, adjustable rate mortgages, quick claim deeds, and more. But she said all we had to do was have this relative give their social security number and permission, and they will look into it and handle it, and we would be good. Easy, but my relative wouldn't give their information. I was heartbroken. This loving relative made it worse for my family. We were in a deep hole. I knew I needed to help my family, so I applied for a mortgage. Somewhere in between that, I get a phone call from my mom. This time it says, TT, see if you can stay at your boyfriend's house. And I was like, what? Okay, all right. It did not register that she said, the gas has been shut off and we can't cook and we don't have any heat. The next week it was, Another phone call. This time it was the water. This was getting old really, really fast. The stress caused my parents to split. My loving relative put our belongings on the curb and changed the locks. I got an apartment and I applied for that mortgage. Renee told me that I only made enough to get a condo. And I couldn't have a condo because I can't have nobody telling me where to plant my tomatoes. So she told me to save and I did just that. I came back to her a few months later and gave her my updated statements and she said, where did you get this money from? And I said, I saved it just like you told me to. She looked at me and she said, you can always come to me before you sign anything. You have me look at it and I will look over you. And she did. My fiance and I closed on a three family in Boston. We moved mom into the first floor. We moved into the second floor and dad later joined us. I am now the proud owner of my future dream home and three multifamilies. I am teaching my children generational wealth. We are planting a seed, one seed at a time. Thank you. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I currently live in Burlington, Vermont, and I currently work as the Associate Director of the 1850 Fund for the Frederick Gunn School in Washington, Connecticut. I understand that you spent some time in the military. Can you tell me a bit about that? I'm a combat veteran of the U.S. Army for eight years, uh, mostly active duty, and I was an all-source intelligence analyst. What exactly does an all-source intelligence analyst in the Army do? An all-source intelligence analyst mostly focuses on all the sources, right? So, we, you know, you think of uh, internet, phone, all these things, all these pieces of the puzzle, we, we put them together and fuse them to create a, a large picture. 
from the commander. For many people, storytelling involves quite a bit of vulnerability. Has it been easy for you to be vulnerable on stage in front of an audience? Uh, not at first, but now uh, what I've learned is vulnerability allows me to be my authentic self. And, and what I think about the community I live in, uh, it allows me to sort of really be a part of that community on a deeper level. I'm sitting in a large windowless room made of plywood, two by fours, and spray foam insulation. Green, red, and blue Cat 5 cables run along the floors and walls, keeping us connected to the outside world. The hum of generators can be heard just outside as they provide electricity for our lights and computer systems. I am an intelligence analyst in Afghanistan. The days are long, 15, 16 hours at times. Most of those hours are spent staring at our computer screens gathering information, analyzing that information, and disseminating that information to the commanders and soldiers who are on the front lines fighting the Taliban. See, I don't know many of these soldiers, but what I do know is that I've most likely stood next to them in a line waiting for powdered eggs at 4 a.m. at the dining hall facility. There are days and we received information of a soldier being lost on a battlefield. When that unit returns back with that soldier's body, we leave our computer screens and go ahead to the flight line so that we can honor that soldier as they return home. We stand in formation, holding our salutes as that soldier is placed onto a helicopter and the helicopter takes off and we hold it until the helicopter can no longer be seen. The next minute, I'm back at my computer screen. There's no talk about to process. We don't talk about feelings. No time to process, no space. This happens on a daily basis. Heading out to the flight line, back to the computers. Flight line, computers. This starts to take a toll on our mor morale. And I can tell because we brief to our commanders is we, we lack the confidence in the information that we're providing. At my lowest point, I receive a package from the summer camp I had attended as a kid. And in that package are postcards from kids that I had as leader at summer camp. And this lifts me up. It makes me feel so good. And I remember these kids are sharing their stories with me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, these are the kids I connected to. These are the kids that I created an experience for. And I had this idea, I could do the same thing here. So I approached my commander and I said, hey, I know there are a few of us who have some talents. And my commander said, sure, go ahead. So instead of giving an intelligence briefing, we decided to do a talent show. I was the host, of course, right? So I would stand and make uh, poke fun at the situation we were in. We had several guitar players. We had people who played, who, who did poetry and this one soldier I remember, she had the most amazing voice. See, when we did this, it gave us an opportunity to be emotionally and mentally present for each other. It created a safe space for us to heal. This event was called Live in the Hive. And the reason why we call it Live in the Hive, just imagine 20 analysts inside of a windowless room typing away at keyboards. 
The news had spread to our regimental commander, the guy who made all the decisions, and he showed up one day to a live and hive event. And for a small little moment, all the weights of being responsible for thousands of soldiers left him. A year had gone by, and it was, almost, it was time to get ready to leave, and we transitioned out, and life and a half had to come to an end. On our way out, I remember stopping at Kandahar Airfield, and we were in this large tent that slept hundreds of soldiers. And one night, as I lay in my cot, the alarms came on for a mortar attack, and what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to get up, grab your gear, and head to the nearest bunker. But instead, I lifted my head, I looked to my right, I looked to my left, no one was moving. I put my head back down and closed my eyes and heard the explosions off in the distance. The next morning we all got up and everyone had talked about hearing the mortars and we joked about our platoon sergeant sleeping through the alarms. We were tired. We were ready to go home. On the way out, as we were walking to the flight line, I bumped into someone who I knew from summer camp, Doug Green. What are the chances? Doug and I shared and exchanged soldier stories with our friends and so fellow soldiers, and then we went on our ways. That was the last time I saw Doug. He died several months later. It's been 11 years now since I've left Afghanistan. And I had the opportunity to create an experience for my soldiers where we were able to share a moment. And it allowed me to stand here in front of you to heal the same way we healed during Live in the Hive. Thank you. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Okay, everybody. We did it. I'm just going to... Sorry. Okay, we got to make sure to turn the sound down. That's helpful. I'm just going to read this little phrase um, from Astrology for the Soul, uh, K. Pacha. I have important decisions to make that affect both myself and others. As I can't see all and wish to stand tall, I will ask for the help of the Father. While I will be taking more, talking more about the Sun, Saturn, and Venus Neptune conjunctions next week, I felt that you might feel, feel them for that report. Taking these two conjunctions and combining them with the Mercury-Pluto conjunction happening Friday brings the picture of what is happening now into focus. It is truly the end of what began last year. The Sun, Mercury, and Venus are all dying. And in parentheses it says balsamic conjunctions. Dying into the slow-moving planets. They are ending, finishing, completing, and resolving evolutionary intentions that began with the conjunctions a year ago. 
The seeds that were sown a year ago have grown and evolved, changing their shape, form, and nature. Some of these impulses, ideas, relationships, businesses, etc., like some flowers, are annuals, quick-growing plants, and others are slow, multi-generational trees. Now, as these three conjunctions occur in the last three cosmic collective signs, the value of what has sprouted needs to be evaluated from that cosmic collective perspective. Hence, the mantra on today's report focuses on the objective sky god, the father. Secondly, we can also see, and today's report focuses on the objective sky god, we can also see the planting of new seeds, impulses, desires that seek to manifest into form. It is beautiful. It is beautiful that that these decision, decisions and choices are coming in from these cosmic signs signaling perhaps some heavenly intervention in worldly affairs. That's what we've been hearing for a long, long time now, everybody. Certainly in our private lives, we can tap into these celestial spiritual beings and uniting our intentions with theirs create more heaven on earth. Blessings and love. And I pass this talking stick to my sister Rainbird with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and that emerald serpent feathered one, emerald green serpent feathered one, Quetzalcoatl. Here it comes, Rainbird. I got it. <laughs> All right. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good at catching this time in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I'll catch remember it. remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a great day. Woo. We covered it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of gratitude, and may we have a wonderful, wonderful Valentine's Day. And yeah. I'm sure we'll meet before then at Cheryl's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love holiday. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Mama. Here it comes. Okay. Rama, before you before mm. you play, let's just give the phone number for anybody that would wish to come to Cheryl's evenings on Sunday evenings and Monday evenings. Uh, and her number is 425-436-6260. Again, 425-436-6260. And then the pin code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. Join us. Uh, 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. 
on Sunday nights and Monday nights for about three hours. Until we meet again, let's uh, see what Rama's got to share with us for closing tonight. What you got? What's this, Mama? Whoops. What's that? Oh, I'm trying to get here. <laughs> Do you need to put the sound up now? Yeah. What's happening, darling? Christian or Jew or Muslim, not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, or Zen, not any religion or cultural system, I am not from the East or the West, not out of the ocean or up from the ground, not natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. do not exist. Am not an entity in this world or the next. 
did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is the placeless, a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know. First, last, outer, inner, only that breath, breathing, human being. I belong to the beloved. I've seen the two worlds as one. And that one called to and know first, last, outer, inner. Only that breath, breathing, human being. Thirteen things on the heart. No, live long and prosper. Satnam.